Hey, good evening, people. This is uh, April the 25th. Uh, it's the Monday night seminar number nine. So we're kicking off at uh, 7 p.m. in New York City time, although people are dialing in from all around the world. Uh, today, we've got uh, Dave Newfelds back on as a semi-guest. Semi um, he was uh, a little disappointed about what happened last week. He thought that we could go further and get into uh, some more McLuhan patterns. And so it's great to have him there. We're also responding to some of the correspondence that's been unraveling between uh, Bob Dobbs and Scott Taylor. Scott Taylor um, appeared on the earlier session and his themes are social autism. He's looking at the distinction between the analog and the digital. And we will uh, be engaging with what he said, which is posted on the site if anybody wants to follow through. So um, welcome to everybody who's here, and let's put the show on the road. Yeah, I'd like to uh, offer anybody uh, the opportunity to bring up a topic uh, that they felt wasn't covered over the last eight uh, seminars, uh, or anything they've always wanted to bring up that hasn't uh, been discussed. You're all welcome to interrupt here. But if nobody has anything to suggest right now, we'll go into uh, Scott Taylor's uh, uh, review of last week's uh, discussion around Dave Newfeld's work. Anybody have anything else they want to talk about first? Okay. So Scott wrote this uh, note um, a few days ago. It's called Fibonacci, which refers to the famous Fibonacci mathematical or spiral series, probably invented about 700 years ago or something, or noticed, Fibonacci and the ecstatic digital club scene. He starts off the club scene and slash social media. So he's saying that social media is a club scene or it's what the polarity he has here, the chemical body club scene that people go to uh, hang out and dance and mingle, and then the social media. So he has the club scene slash social media. And he says, the anti-cave cave. Now, it's interesting that McLuhan said in the 50s that advertising was the art on the suburban person's cave. Cave. The suburban, what was it? The cave art of the suburbia is advertising. So the anti-cave cave, to me, is a good beginning because Scott is always going to say a word, then cancel that word with the apparent opposite and that's the way you write about tactility or the tactile environment. You say something black and then white, and you have to have them canceled out, and it's the canceled position that uh, you begin with. And uh, Arthur Croker wrote about um, this dynamic. He called it uh, ecstasy slash catastrophe. So you had those two dynamics going on in the modern discarnate life we have. So Scott accurately starts off with the anti-cave cave. And that phrase could refer to the club scene itself or to social media. Then he says, the cave-in. Now, the anti-cave cave. So a cave would be acoustic space. But then it becomes a global theater. And analog media create the global theater cave effect with the satellite proscenium arch. And then you have the digital allows you to flow around the cave to... Uh, orbit around the, the uh, tactile, adult tactile cave of the analog media, and that's the uh, rush of autonomy. It reminds me of uh, 
William McLuhan's interpretation of Burroughs' emphasis on junk versus LSD, LSD created cinematic visions, whereas junk allowed you to put on the whole universe. So you can put on the whole universe with the digital technology, or what I call the Android meme. So the anti-cave cave is the, the club scene. It's, it's retrieving, but then he says the cave-in. See, this is really good, the way he begins. You've got the cave of the global theater, and then the digital media goes around that. That's the social media. So you're anti the cave, but you still go back and forth and drop into the cave, to the uh, actual club, which is the miniaturization of the global theater cave. You drop into that as an antidote or respite from the anti-cave physician, which you get when you're home surfing your, the web. So the dialectic between the anti-cave and the cave can be squared as you see that the Android meme itself does that. That's digital media coming live, and it's acting out the anti-cave cave and the cave-in, which would be um, uh, cancellation. Coker talks about catastrophe and ecstasy, the two modalities in bimodernism, and then the cancellation. So... Um, I think with what Scott's written is that it's the first document that we can look at that talks accurately, at least from the level I work with and the level Croker does. So, can I, can I just, yes, uh, go ahead. You, um, like reading this as a slightly younger guy, it's uh, um, always, I mean, it's interesting to see how Scott is dredging up uh, the cave, which seems to be uh, particular for, I guess, people of uh, his generation when approaching um, uh, um, things. Uh, McLuhan's assessment of uh, freedom control and that basic uh, problematic. The, the Plato's cave is always dredged up as a, an image which they go back to. Uh, the... the um the Plato's Cave comes in with the uh, beginning of visual space. I don't think that's the cave of the uh, caveman or Paleolithic, Paleolithic man. Remember, the caveman puts his art, his pictures of the bison and that, they're not to be seen but to evoke, to be almost magical. And he says this is a technique of modern advertising. He said this in the 50s. The ads are not meant to be noticed. They're meant to evoke the energies. So uh, isn't that a bit different from the, the search for meaning and truth in Plato's cave where the, the um, uh, occupants are looking at the flickering on the cave and that's supposed to be a reflection of a higher, more real reality, the archetypal level, that they can't see. See, the, the whole direction there is to get some kind of higher reality, not to evoke something. So you can actually... I don't know, uh, I don't think Scott would be limited to the, the, the Plato cave. He knew McLuhan's work too well, and he probably would agree with what I'm saying, uh, that he didn't mean the Platonic cave. Now, maybe he does, and we can ask him, but you see my point, Andrew, is that to, to have a cave that has signs or symbols that are uh, distortions of the real reality is not what goes on in the caveman, in the Neolithic, or the Paleolithic cave. It's a whole different purpose. It's not even meant to be noticed. So um, that's my response. Anybody got anything to say in response to that? How about you, Andrew? <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I, sense, uh, I get the distinction. I'm just uh, picking up for me. Uh, there's a lot of resonance with, um, I guess, the, the, the platonic cave. 
And so no, that's the most popular. It's one of the most well-known cliches. The average educated person, they do know that metaphor, that story. Everybody yeah. knows what Plato's Cave. They got it in first-year philosophy or some course or something. Yeah. Interesting thing in the club, the signs, the light, I guess, is the exit where you go and have a cigarette and then come back in. And then the signs inside the cave are, are you know, promotion of, of gigs or gig, famous gigs that that establishment might have had right there. Those are the signposts. And I suppose the rest are who are the buzz people in there that, uh, that people want to get with that, that are evoking this energy of, you know. You know, that's a good happiness. point. The, the the cave art for suburbia is on television, and that's meant not to be noticed and have subliminal effects or whatever. But you're right. In in the cave, the actual chemical body, physical body cave, the signs are to be noticed. There are ads for other clubs, other bands, right? So there is a difference in the physical body cave. So anybody want to notice, work with that? That... There is an element. Are they signs of a better place? Yeah, if you see a poster for another club, another, well, it wouldn't be another club, but another show, that implies the you same. something happening or, or thing, just like you mentioned about the drawings of the bison were not necessarily to be noticed, but to evoke energy. And I'd say the same thing with the posters in the club. You're not supposed to stare at them forever, but just notice them and quickly look at them and pick up the energy. Oh, okay, all right. So you see them as evocative not just pointing to a better place, a better performance. No, not necessarily. Mm, okay. The, remember, the whole visual space dynamic created the limited idea of the physical body. It's really interesting that if you read McLuhan's, one of his explorations, I think it's number eight, Verbi Vocal Visual, he talks about in the time of the printing press uh, that characters were described by their humors and the humor was an environment that determined the person's character. You actually have a figure ground dynamic in the way uh, stories or novels or culture was done in the medieval, in the Elizabethan era. Uh, it's something to notice that McLuhan's figure ground is uh, at least two figure grounds involved, not just one figure ground. And to have a figure ground say, okay, that person is a figure, he's being controlled by this humor quote, humor, that's uh, you know, the medicine and psychology of the day. That's the idea that there's a ground controlling the figure. That comes in with literacy. So innocent figure ground awareness is a product of visual space and the printing press. And when McLuhan talks about figure ground dynamics, he's appealing to a visual bias, at least as a hook, but he doesn't want you to be limited to that one I don't know, mono, mono figure ground. So that means that most people, when they talk about television evoking things, that is a retrieval of the same uh, Elizabethan awareness that a humor controlled the people or the individual. So that's something about figure ground. It's more complex than just a simple figure ground. Um, I never had a chance to talk about that before. So um, check that out. If anybody's got very vocal visual, I haven't got it right here to look up, but in one of the little essays, little articles that McLuhan does in that. He points it out. Have you ever noticed that, Andrew? That particular aspect of that book? Uh, no, sorry, Bob. I was just uh, busy tweeting all that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm experimenting he, on myself in terms of patterns of split attention. Right. Well, you're being the environment. The tweeting is more important than anything that's particularly being said. 
Well, as soon as I uh, get sucked into um, actually contemplating what you're saying, uh, <laughs> I need two weeks to go and uh, to uh, break it down and consider it. Right. So the the idea of figure ground uh, may be lost in the 18th, 19th century, retrieved in the electric 20th century, but visual cultures just retrieved um, retrieved the medieval literate version of it. How would you describe awareness of figure ground, figure ground, figure grounds interacting? Um, that's that's the question if you want to do. So if you look at this cave anti-cave, you got figure ground going on there. And then, Dave, you have people coming to the chemical body cave, the physical body cave, for release from the the chip body in other discarnate states, and they may want temporarily a sign. They drop in to engage their mimic heritage of of the platonic cave meaning, of a sign, of a meaning, and that is just done for a few hours on the weekend or whenever you go to the club. It is not how you live your whole life. Hey, Bob. To, to, what, to what extent, Bob, is uh, he uh, going, adding one, like, uh, one additional layer in, in the sense of like uh, interfacing figure ground and figure ground? You've got uh, a double engine you know, or, or uh, double ends joined. But when you add an additional uh, figure ground pair in that, you tend to get some sort of sense of, uh, of sublime or um, the surreal is evoked. Right. Oh, one thing. Um Am I coming through loud? And if I put my volume down like this, is that, am I really normal now, right now? There wasn't a difference in volume. Okay, just a minute, i got to close the door here. On, on Mondays they do the mowing lawn, mowing lawn and all that. Uh, what, did, what did you say, Dave? How am I coming across? No, it didn't seem to make a difference in your volume. Okay, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just your volume. Okay, well, I'll move my, if I move my head... Mike back. Is that weaker? No, you just pick up more of the room. <laughs> oh, it picks up more of the room. Yeah, um, just move away. You can hear the echo of your voice because you don't have a lot of carpeting and stuff. Right, that's right. Down. So there's less echoing here, at this way. Yeah, when you're close. Right. It's not that bad. Okay. Not that bad. I don't think you should worry about it. Just do, do your, do your, um, All right. have your charisma. Okay, Andrew, to address your point. He, he, his first words are the club scene slash social media. So he's uh, they are both figures there. Then he says the anti-cave cave. He's showing uh, a, large, a larger ground. And then when he says the cave-in, that seems to be the next ground. There's, uh, there's three grounds, figure-ground relationships there, or two figures and a ground. Um, that's how I see how he writes. He is actually putting more than one figure ground. Is that what you were saying? Uh, yes, he's uh, definitely uh, pushing, and like if you find later in that post as we'll go down, it's, um, that seems to be one of the, um, the issues that uh, Scott is dealing with. Like uh, when, when you've still got the um, analogical relationships of uh, uh, figure ground in relation to figure ground, you've still got um, analogy, you've, you've got um, a way of uh, coming to grips with the situation, but when you throw in an additional figure ground or possibly even an additional figure ground pair, then uh, things start uh, disappearing, flipping, flopping. Yeah. So... Hey guys, for the yeah. for the novices and and that, maybe you can can you just 
clarify this whole figure ground thing? Just for some of the listeners listening, maybe they're just to get a just a clear handle on, on what you guys are addressing. Okay, I'll try it this way. Um, I'm listening to to you guys talk right now, and I might not be noticing the uh, refrigerator's buzz or other environmental things happening. That would be my sensory ground, to and the figure would be me listening with my ear. So when you're the figure is the sensory operation you're engaged in, and the ground is the other sensory operations you're not noticing or attending to. And so new technologies tend to be ground in terms of their effects, and later people have more of a sense of, a partial sense of what are some of the effects of the older technologies when they become obvious, but, but rarely taking a perception what exactly is working over our perceptions at the moment. Okay, now that, that's a really useful thing for me to point out that one way to see the word medium is that that's the past technologies. So when television, a new, envi- new technology comes in, it is not noticed in, no, how to say this? The effects on the older media are not noticed. If you consider looking at the content of the television, certainly TV in the normal perception, when it came in, everybody said, wow, I can see and hear a live broadcast. So that would be a figure. The medium is radio, movies, books, bulldozers, cities, and all the previous media. You then notice the effects of television as a ground it's more than the content, but the instrument itself, it's sensory makeup. You notice that in, in the past, in the medium. So it's interesting. You notice the past, but you miss uh, the reason the past is getting upset. Like if you're watching TV in the 50s, after a while, your family members become, McLuhan said, menacing. You want to watch TV, and your son comes in or whatever and interrupts you. You might be a little more irritable and because you're not really there in the physical family context while watching TV. That's, and so the effect, okay, so you, your, your, your son gets alienated by your lack of interacting with him, so you would notice the effect of that, but you wouldn't notice it was caused by television, the form, or how it altered. So persons become irritable. Right, and you might not notice that... Their personality shifting, but you wouldn't tie it into the new environment. Yeah, that you had actually left the home when you were watching TV and uh, were not there, even though the, the son thought you were there. So I'm, try, I'm just using this as an example of how what we notice is what McClune called the medium. That's the past, the previous media, and how they're affected, including people. What is not noticed, which is the ground, is uh, the total invisible effect of television and the industry requirements of TV. See, he used to say that the gas and the oil companies and the gas stations were the ground or effects of the automobile, not the automobile. So new factors. So, so would the suburbs would be at a ground of the automobile? Okay, I have to bring in another point. He says man never changes, only the ground changes. So again, you got you got the behaviorally man never changes kind of thing, or or just in his innate makeup. You mean is that what he's saying? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly, but he's saying that humans are always just human. He does say in Take Today that man is still the content, but he puts still in quotes as if it's dead. You know, is still is still the content, but who else would be? Yeah, yeah. but the changes go on in the media or in the ground. So 
we should get to this a little more complex level of interpreting that. So if you take the definition that ground is what you don't notice and figure is what you do notice, definitely you notice the kind of t- content of TV. But the point McClellan was making is the, the ground was the uh, aspects of TV as an industry and what it does to social life. That's, that's the newer ground, but the older ground is the old stuff and how the kids don't do well in school anymore. You know, they stop reading because they're listening to rock and roll or watching TV a little more. That's the old medium of literacy is affected. So, Andrew, what, what do you make of that? Uh, you have a couple of grounds here. Yep, yeah, I'm following along. Yeah, and, and McLuhan never said till the sometime in the 70s that he meant by the medium the old technologies. It's just an obscure reference made, and he said, I've never really spelled it out this way because it was too hard to understand. So he had accepted the surface understanding of ground as the new technology, as the, the surface meaning of now of the word medium as the newer stuff. It was only, you know, 30 years later he pointed out, well, I never really admitted this to you, but uh, I consider the medium referring to the older technologies. <clears throat> so these shifts are interesting in themselves, why McLuhan changes, apparently changes, or holds things back. That's showing, he's really orchestrating what he uh, says at certain times because he's working on the principle of certain designed effects he wants to create at the time he does something. Yeah, I guess the other side of that, um, which is, I guess, the slightly more cliched approach, is that he genuinely seems to have been an explorer in you know, the, the not-so-silent sea, the idea of uh, um, using every uh, handheld or foothold or whatever just to get a purchase on uh, a situation that hasn't been uh, talked to about before. Yeah, he definitely is not an ideologue. He's not yeah. sticking. And you notice in, I think it's his first essay in, in the first um, explorations called Culture Without Literacy, it's either in that one or a subsequent essay where he says this study group, the, the seminar he'd been, he was running, had, <clears throat> had the privilege or the right or the something for self-correction. He said it would be a dialogue with the right or the proviso that self-correction was allowed. In other words, they were kind of winging it and looking for open to new patterns that might change what they uh, thought they were talking about. I thought that was always interesting to say, we're open to self-correction here. Yeah, and I guess it's always, uh, there's an interesting energy and dynamic from McLuhan's work when he discovers something 10 or 15 or 20 years later in his own work and he rediscovers himself and uh, how often how right he was before he even uh, had that sense of knowing how right he was. Yeah, it's it's always playful to read where well to know that Marshall would phone up people in the middle of the night and say uh, say like Barry Nevitt and say I made a big discovery Barry and he'd say something that Barry had heard said five years before and knew it was sort of an older discovery, but Marshall was rediscovering his discoveries or acting that out as a pro as a provocateur to to reinvigorate his own discoveries and. I just read something somewhere about uh, Marshall re- saying, great, Eric. He was saying to somebody, didn't you see this in a recent post? He says, we just, I had a great day, hundreds of discoveries. <laughs> Where did I read that? It might have been posted. According to McLuhan saying he had great discoveries. He and Eric had discovered all this stuff. But I can tell you that if you actually heard those discoveries and you knew Marshall's work, they had been said before. 
So you'll see that he writes in the later days, uh, I, I now realize that, that people, of, people are, um, will not study the ground, Western people, because they have a private identity. And a private identity is the real unconscious, and it does not want to be disturbed. That's why people don't understand media. And you'll find he said that, you know, eight years before. So either he was covering so much territory and he literally forgot that he discovered it, or the mind is limited and just has eureka of making discoveries, and, and it's a pleasure that um, you'll repeat. <laughs> Bob, along those lines, this is Michael talking. You remember when we uh, interviewed Thiel? Yes. And at the end, I asked him, uh, since I think more we interviewed you, but uh, that was another, that's another question. But um, at the end, I, towards the end, I asked him, I said, well, talking about the, the whole gang of the late 40s and early 50s, did you guys, like, really know what you were doing? And he kind of just took about a half a beat. And he said, yeah, like, we were fully aware of what we were saying and where we were going. I don't know if you remember that or not, but... Uh, I don't remember that, but remember, he was only 22 years old. I mean, Don's Ph.D. Uh, under McLuhan and comes out about 54 is pretty precocious. It's all Marshall stuff that was said in his classroom, but Woodhouse, the competing professor with McLuhan, didn't even recognize that it was Marshall stuff and thought that Don had made a whole breakthrough in his, in his thesis. Who, you know, reading Marshall's biography about how Woodhouse would have debates with McLuhan, because because Woodhouse was from the history of ideas school versus the new criticism. So, uh, so Don Thiel was pretty intelligent, and when you read his thesis, it's a great document of what was taught in, in, the, in McLuhan's classes in that period. Uh, so, we have, so we see Don's pretty bright, but that's extra bright to know what's going on with uh, Marshall and Carpenter. Yeah, exactly. exactly. There is anybody a, doesn't know, um, his thesis was on uh, Pound. Uh, Joyce Yates and uh, Elliot. Elliot, and he didn't do uh, he didn't do Wyndham Lewis, and that was left to Sheila. Right, and and Wyndham Lewis um, Marshall that began the tension between Marshall and Don because Don uh, Marshall kept uh, telling him to uh, do Lewis too to make it five people, and Don said you couldn't get access to Lewis paintings. Uh, this is after the war; they were all locked up at the National Gallery in Canada. And it would be just too hard to do all this stuff, this extra work to crack the code on Lewis because he had like three or four kids and he was trying to uh, get his PhD so he'd get some payment because they got, they got paid very poorly at St. Michael's College. He and McLuhan, as, uh, they weren't priests. So um, there was a lot of pressure and Marshall, Marshall was always calling him to do it and he hung up the phone. He disconnected for about a year, 53 to 54. He stopped responding to McLuhan's phone calls for that last year so he could finish his thesis. And Marshall didn't like that. So I was talking to Scott Taylor yesterday, and he personally said that McLuhan uh, overrated uh, Lewis. Scott himself doesn't like think that much of Lewis <clears throat> and thought that McLuhan uh, turned him into a hero and wasn't justified. But what Scott Taylor added is if you, the best writer on Wyndham Lewis is Sheila Watson and her Ph.D., and I agree with that statement that her thesis is incredible, you know, for someone so early. And when I talked to Paul Edwards, the main Lewis scholar in England, and he did the Yale University book in 2000 on Lewis, the coffee table book, 
he said if they, those Lewis scholars, and he's a baby boomer, if they had access to Sheila's thesis in the 60s, 70s, Wyndham Lewis studies would have been way more advanced. That, that's how smart Sheila Watson was. And, and, and Steve, no, um, Scott thinks that her thesis is a better, more balanced appraisal of Lewis than McLuhan's own enthusiasm, which is just a side note that I heard yesterday. So you're, that's but, a good note, but the, I mean, Scott maybe come in later. You can add, you know, to ask him if he what he thinks of Hugh Kenner's take on Lewis. Then. Yes, uh, I t- we talked about Kenner yesterday. Now Scott will be um, uh, here maybe later in a couple hours. If not, he said we've reached a platform. Uh, he likes our response to his ideas. He wants to begin at this point. And I got a note from Jen, uh, who was on last week, who said. Um, the Newfeld uh, thing was really good. It was kind of like a, a purging of nostalgia for sensibilities and this, this consumer level or that, and thought we'd arrived at a good point with this thing we're looking at now, the document. This is the beginning point we should be talking about. It's para-croaker and uh, maybe beyond croaker. So, so let's come back back around to it, Bob. Let's get back focused on it. So we're still okay. On I wanted. To, I, I look at these forms partly to put be a, have a record of anecdotes that it will never be heard again. So, in talking about Theo, I want to tell you this. I don't know if I've said it before. He told me if you look on Andrew McLuhan's Eric McLuhan's blog. No, Andrew McLuhan, Eric McLuhan's son's blog about the Marshall's Library at Eric McLuhan's. Uh, Andrew and I are doing a series on it, so maybe I mentioned it there. What's really interesting is Don says in 53, it's the year Dylan Thomas dies, the week Dylan Thomas dies in the fall of 53, I think. Roy Campbell, the South African poet and friend of Wyndham Lewis and outsider like Lewis, uh, was visiting McLuhan in Toronto. And Don said it was a very uncomfortable week because Roy Campbell was a very right-wing guy and he was tr- he was uh, invaded by Roy Campbell, who was who kept trying to tell Don, who they thought was an important representative of the next generation or something, that Campbell did not want Carpenter influencing Don. Campbell actually caused this division for Don, Don Thiel, because uh, he wanted um, McLuhan to be more on whatever you call the Campbell agenda was, and he considered Carpenter the opposite. Carpenter being a, a working-class uh, uh, Marine in World War II, and had, but actually was a, uh, a secretary or something at the Nuremberg Trials and saw that whole, that Project Paperclip stuff. I don't know how deeply he saw it. So, Car- but Carpenter was different from McLuhan as perceived by uh, Campbell, and here's Roy Campbell trying to c- make sure that Don, the next generation, is aligned with Campbell and what he perceived as McLuhan versus Carpenter. Have you ever heard that story before, Michael? No. Yeah. It's an interesting point of the, of the tension there when something new is happening, like the Explorations Group. The, the ones who are monitoring what's new, they, uh, they recognize it and they want to get a position of authority in it or, or hijack it. So Roy Campbell, apparently, if Don's telling the facts, that's what he was like and what he tried to do. Yeah, but the, anyway. uh, the, the thing that needs to be said is that it, it didn't work because uh, Thiel and um, Carpenter remained uh, good colleagues and friends. That's right. So Thiel was pretty smart in handling that. Okay, so you know the document we're looking at, Michael? Not really. I just kind of came in a few minutes ago. Yeah, Scott Taylor's thing I sent around called Fabonacci. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. 
where we're on the first couple lines. So, Andrew, do you want to you want to get back to it? Can you say something? Yeah, well, let's read. Uh, I'll just uh, read out the second paragraph. So okay. The total decontextualized. You didn't get past the first sentence. Wait, wait, wait. Start at the, why don't you start at the start of the whole thing? Because you guys didn't really go past the first sentence. <laughs> yeah, there's no paragraph you went through. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, okay, so I'll read uh, the first and second paragraphs, and hopefully we can uh, keep, keep moving on this. The club scene, uh, and in brackets slash social media, the anti-cave, uh, the anti-cave cave, the cave in... Not the place to unwind DNA, but the place to wind up, as in reconnecting all the damaged, disconnected, autoil tactility of the general environment. The ecstasy, and in brackets MDMA, uh, serotonin overactivation slash depletion, uh, reduction of present forms of anxiety through the creation of new forms of anxiety, creates long-term brain damage of self and group liquidation. And brackets, buzz, wah-wah, anamorphic, distorted eye and ear and mouth environments inside and out. Self and group loquacity as smart drink, smart drug with more immediate neurological connection but in a dumbing down environment for hypernumbing procedures, i.e. in a minimalist chill environment engineered for pseudo-social networking. So socializing with society, uh, identity making without identity and so on, full stop. Okay, uh, just, um, he has uh, the ecstasy and then all the MDA serotonin bracket. He goes, the ecstasy, in quotes, of self and group liquidation. That's definitely um, Crokerian or Croker, because Croker talks about the daily life of people being ecstasy and catastrophe and cancellation, you know, done rapidly several times during a week. So is the club at... people want to drink. <laughs> what did you say? Under that environment, no wonder people say, give me a drink. Yeah. <laughs> and and also go, whatever. It's a verbal <laughs> statement. What else could you do otherwise? Yeah, if you really adopted it wholeheartedly, yeah, what, how would you really respond? Yeah. So he says the ecstasy of self and group liquidation. This would be the, I, what I call the chemical body is the body created by literacy in the printing press and, and early hardware industry. It's that body that is the ghetto that is the suffering, the abuse value, and the, McLuhan said in the 50s, the hydraulic jack. He said, we're all hydraulic jacks, meaning we pump up the physical body. Here, the, the, the liquidation of the physical body and the group dynamic of the physical body is an art form because it's hard to deal with the liquidation of the chip body or actually the reappearance and shrinking of media via the chip body. So I see that this is an old environment, self and group liquidation. That definitely started by World War I. You see it, you know, under telegraph and radio conditions or automobile and plane. So it's the... Yeah, the Roaring Twenties. That's the chemical body. That was traumatic because that was the the first thing hit in the front lines by the radio effect. But now the, the, uh, the liquidation of the, of the physical body and the physical group is a playful art form, what McLuhan called a play, uh, an art form, not ground, because they're all escaping from the huge uh, ground effect of uh, the chip landscape tending toward make everybody in their own chip uh, matrix tube, which is not visualizable what that is. Okay, that's it. There's also an interesting thing insofar as Scott's uh, hooking up uh, irritant and counter-irritant right beside each other all the time. And McLuhan, I guess in his prose, the attempts, like he does treat them 
in each uh, essay that he does, but there's a, a distance. But here, um, both uh, irritant and counter-irritant are immediately present as figures. Right. And, and so, yeah, McLuhan, you know, when Barry Nevitt did his book, The Communication Ecology, in 1982, the idea that there was an ecology already happening in the mixture of, of the environments is an interesting poetic vision. So McLuhan would heighten up about, uh, say, the new tactile effect, and only rarely would he say rock, or in the time of the print world, opera, was a counter-irritant or a counter-balancing action. That there was this ecology, if you have a certain kind of ground, like visual space, then a lot of acoustic arts, like classical music, is made. He hardly ever pointed that, that compensating nature, like our senses do with, the, with their different relationships, and he never pointed that out in the environments. But Scott, it begins with that as an immediate awareness. It's like the the the, the big insight of McLuhan now is is cliche for Scott. He's going to see the ecological uh, interplay of different modalities immediately. And then it's it is not the ground though. That balancing factor uh, that Scott sees as figure is due to a, a worse situation or a hyper situation. The, where the digital body brings in a whole other level, and you see in retrospect, McLuhan was only talking about the ecology of the chemical body and its extensions, not the ecology of having several bodies interact. You, you see what I'm saying, Andrew? Why? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that's um, probably one of the clearest statements of the uh, five-bodied uh, or four-five-bodied model in relation to uh, McLuhan's work that you've uh, offered, Bob. Right, and he really says it when he goes buzz, wah-wah, I guess that's the, the pedal, the guitar or something, buzz, wah-wah, anamorphic distorted eye and ear and mouth environments. I've never seen the phrase mouth environment done before. That's really good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Inside and out, which would mean the chemical body environment and the, at least the, the discarnate, early analogical discarnate self. There's two. There's the TV landscape and the chemical body landscape oscillating back and forth here. But, but uh, Scott is pointing to the hidden uh, autistic effect of the chip landscape, or what I call it. He's always pointing. Uh, I would just say that you could bypass the, um, his canceling, uh, putting opposites and counter words beside each other by just pointing out that there's, you could simplify by saying there's several bodies going on. Yeah, but it's it's. I guess he's drawing attention to the to the uh, the headless bodies. You know, he's pointing yes. to the fact that uh, none of these uh, bodies have uh, centers nor act as centers to each other. Yeah, he he is explaining um, the background to my five bodies. How you work from McLuhan and the sensory dynamic, and then you move to the cliche interaction daily of of the different discarnate levels, and that is a necessary spelling out before you can know what I mean by the bodies. You know what I mean? So he is educating you on the, on the tactile interplay of uh, the chemical and its extensions. So when he says a dumbing down environment for hyper-numbing procedures, that's really good. That's a very good statement because um, you... And would procedures be the engagement and activity of engaging? Yeah, the, the sensory modalities in the club. Uh, See, so you're numbing yourself from the chip body lifestyle. So you go back to the chemical body and you immolate it, you abuse it, you disappear it, plus the group dynamics of that, which would be speech, speech-organized society. Um, all of that is, um, 
is uh, bombarded to, n to numb to a larger ground. And then he says it's a dumbing down environment. That would be uh, no recognition of one's own chemical body talents. You, go, you become dumb and you just abuse your body or heighten it in, in ecstasy. See, and That's what the new Keisha the new hit, or not the newest one, the second last one said. We're dancing like we're dumb, 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 dumb. Na, 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 na. And it's weird. We are who we are. It's, it's amazing that uh, that this song would describe the audience as dumb and they would embrace it. it would right. It's like, like wrong lyric for a tune, that, for a populist kind of thing, but no. <laughs> and, and no, that's a good thing to say because I wouldn't be surprised if Scott actually in the car or however he listens to radio heard that song and it gave sure. him the idea. You know what I mean? Or he said, there it is. Sure. That's what McClune yeah. would do. He'd see, yeah, yeah. He'd see, this is a symptom of... of yeah. yeah. He'd say, okay, there's proof that they know it so the ground has shifted. There's a larger ground. No, that that's... Uh, see, he could enhance this, put an asterisk, and incite that song on this sentence, dumbing down environment. Yeah, see, now, when, if the educators say, uh, wow, these kids, they want to be dumb, they cannot have a sane response to it unless they know there's more than one body. If they're upset that the kids are get, celebrating dumbness and get all moralistic about it, that's why they remain in the 19th century and hopeless and made fools of, you know, as, as authority figures in, in, the, in the high school. Uh, you cannot respond, uh, you cannot think that, um, why would these kids, if, if you think the kid has one body and he's celebrating dumbing it down, the kid doesn't know it's a multi-body dynamic, but the authority who's going to judge whether it's healthy behavior for the community or not, and we don't even know if people even care about that anymore, but um, that role uh, is not informed if you uh, think there's just one body that's rebelling against being intelligent or something. Because they, they, they're talking about being dumb, but they have smart drinks and smart drugs. What is it that's smart? The object is smart. Well, also, too, it's like if you go to the club as an anti-environment to be spending the rest of your week in, in the electric and digital environment, interesting to suddenly transform and put on the old chemical body and celebrate it almost always involves some kind of drugs, whether it's liquor, because it's a bar, to get people socially, you know, the so-called so, so social lubricant, or in this case, he mentions MDMA. It's, it's also interesting that the, the ground of a lot of these club scenes are uh, that there is some kind of drug that will sort of shift the user. Yeah, because he says reduction of present form of anxiety, that's their weekly multi-bodied life. They go to the club, which creates new forms of anxiety, which require sub-drugs to deal with the new, new forms of anxiety caused in the club because there's always hyper-pattern recognition going on. Actually, everybody's an ecologist studying the effects of what they're doing immediately. It's called being cool. You know, you're, you're acting. No, you're, you're, you're watching your reactions. See, That's Bob. a natural thing that came in with the 50s, uh, the TV generation. It was called being cool. They knew they had to watch their reactions. And Maybe that's why a lot of people are alienated from clubs, because they'll say that very thing, that I don't like going to the club. I'd rather be with a few of my friends in my living room, and we'd have such a great conversation, and that never happens in the club. Yeah, there's less, there's less anxieties. See, this is very perceptive to point out that you create new anxieties when you go to the club. Temporary. Doesn't the club and the cave suggest acousticness or acoustic space? Oh yeah, that's what that's what I was saying. Is the the global? You see, when the satellites went around the environment, and created the global theater. 
McClune called that an odd-aisle tactile environment. So it wasn't just acoustic because electricity itself is a tactile extension of tactility. So you include the both. But on the most bland level, it's acoustic space or an oral culture. Well, you know what I, I mean? I was thinking if we're talking literally about a club, they have these driving bass beats that cause resonance and, you know, the, the cave and resonating. But uh, uh, That's proprioceptive, Ada. Mm -hmm. Now, Zappa talked about that in Life magazine in 1968. He talked about the new psychedelic music. The kids liked bone conduction is what he called it. Yeah. They wanted the, the thing to really ram their bodies and rev it up through the amplification. So that well, my, is not just ear. That's feeling it with your skin. Yeah, and Bob, Remember Howard Stern did that in his film? with the lady having the orgasm on the speaker while he hummed into it. Right. That's, that's exactly what I'm getting at. And what I was going to say is you, you go to the club to kind of resonate. You could shake a building down with the proper uh, resonant frequency. You resonate all these other uh, body attachments off of you for a while, and then you go back and you kind of accrete them back onto your body. Right, but do you see that's not uh, acoustic space, that's audile, tactile, proprioceptive? Yes. Yeah. It's a mixture of the whole thing. Right. Remember, original acoustic space sounded like an air raid siren. Those old Glenn Miller albums and that, people heard them. They didn't have a really a lot of low end. And really, not till the 50s did they bring in big low end around Gene Vincent records and that. You start to hear deep bass. But, yeah, a lot of records before that, it's, it's kind of cut off in the low end. You never really felt it. It was more, yeah, just about hearing the, the melodies and that part of it. That's right. It went from hot or surface patina of homogeneous limited hearing to bone conduction or depth probing of sound and the electrification of it. It definitely... And, and that's why in cars, too, in kinetic space, it really evokes that, the actual force of the sound waves and that, and blow up by cars going down the road, and the whole thing is pulsing to the, the low-end kick drum or whatever. Yeah, and I'm proposing you shake off your chip body and, and your TV body, shake them off, and, you know, after you leave the club, they, they kind of regrow and, and accrete back. Onto right, now here's something. Yeah, but, you know, this cave, this cave thing is interesting because um, when they've done, uh, looked at the, in uh, caves in prehistoric times where people hung out and had the fires and stuff, that uh, when they've done studies, all those spots where the acoustic resonance placed in the cave. So they weren't they just weren't random places that they picked in the cave, but they were acoustically, environmentally creative places. Uh, do you guys find Michael low, or is he normal? I find that there's a delay on his voice. I don't know if he has uh, some other speakerphone. Yeah, on. I think he's got the speakerphone. So, Michael, no, I didn't I'm catch... Just a, I'm just on a handset. Yeah, there was an echo. Could you restate basically what you said, because it was so too low. The whole cave metaphor thing is interesting because uh, when I've looked at that business of uh, cave dwellers in prehistoric times, and uh, people have researched where they had their kind of gatherings and their fires where they found like there was activity, those places in the cave were always the acoustic resonant places. Yeah, better sound acoustics. They'd, they'd find a better place. Yeah, something was going on there acoustically. Yeah. They were, whether they were chanting, dancing, beating drums, whatever they were doing. So this and you see that in the history of churches. Yeah. As well in churches, sure. Yeah, and Don Thiel wrote a lot about that, that the original cave rituals was mimed by the Roman Catholic Church and their cathedrals. The multimedia, Don would point out, was back in Greek culture and pre-liter cultures. He would remind you that 
the multi-sensory mixed media thing is not just a 20th century situation. It was simpler, but the dynamic was there. And, and so, so when Hugh says that, see, when you go back, when you go to the cave to try to retrieve your chemical or physical body and sociality, you can't find it. That's why you've got to take, you're not getting back to the physical body. You can't get back to it. You can only get to a simulation of it, and it seems to need uh, stimulation like, uh, like uh, drugs to um, pretend that you're getting the authentic, retrieving the authentic. can't be done, and there's something about that that's part of the failed mission. That would be the new anxiety. You go back to make contact, and it's really hard to make contact in chemical body, physical body terms. So that's the new anxiety. In Toronto, it seems that more and more people go to the club scene in order to get shot at when they come out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Michael, you got an echo going. Is someone else, uh, Carol, listening? Uh, You know, it's not useful. (laughs) Okay, I'll uh, I'll switch the phone. Yeah. Reading, Bob. Let's uh, move it on. Let's go to paragraph two. Hey, before, before you flip one question, what, uh, let me turn the lights so I can throw They mentioned, yeah, what are the new forms of anxiety in that first paragraph? That's what I'm talking about. You, when you go there and you fail to make connection, what you thought was the reason, you're trying to escape to the chip body to get to some other local anthropomorphic mm-hmm. level. You get there and after a while realize you're not getting there, and that creates new forms of anxiety. That's why you have to come back next week. To try again, you mean? That's where it becomes yeah, obsessive. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that oscillation between accepting your chip life at work and then going and trying to find another space, that oscillation is part of the tactility, and it's post-tactile. The, the, the chip body is post-tactile, and they're trying to get back to an, a, a, a tactile physical body level, and they can't do it. So it's accepted to have the drugs and all the other accoutrements that go with it. But they call it smart. So, so maybe, you see, you've got a smart drink. Well, a smart drug, that's, not, that's more referring to one. I don't know if smart drinks are they regular right at the moment per se. I don't know if I'd put this on the present environment. No, but it was in 8-Bit's talk in the early 90s. Remember he, right. his Absolutely. gang? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But the... But it's interesting, you have a smart drink to bounce off the dumb-down that you're, you're doing. Mm-hmm. There's ecology, there's so much ecology and balancing going on, we call it a more complex life. Balancing or balancing? Yeah, there's a lot balancing? of balancing that, that yes. the later generations since the 40s are doing all the time. They're, they're, they're um, instinctive ecological balancers, you know. It's always in a panic state and not fully comprehensive. Uh, but it, the balancing action, which, which is just like McLuhan said, that primitive societies would not tolerate any new technologies coming in. They had a great ecological sense. Well, this will upset everything. We'll kill the guy, the inventor. That that non-literate uh, sensibility is what you have as a cliche all over the latter part of the 20th century. And, you know, the phrase socializing without society, see, it's... It's not without society. That's too broad. It's socializing with the chemical body, whereas on the, the actual social media on the first line is the socializing with your interactive chip body. So I would, uh, I would supplement, I would correct. Those. It's good to say that, but to say without society is just the old postmodern Baudrillard point that there is no public space anymore, no social space. So it, it's actually socializing... Uh, with the society, the afterimage of the society evoked by the chemical body. It's 
So there is a kind of society image that's, a, that's being groped for. And identity making without identity, well, not the classical identity, uh, the literate identity, but you make identity by showing up at the cl- club. I mean, Dave sees that all the time. People show up to be seen, to have a temporary identity within that mystique, that environment, wouldn't you say? And to, ne- well, and to, and to network, too, as well, to be there, exactly, and then, and then to talk and get chatting, and, and that's how, you know, relationships are made. It, yeah. To some degree. For other environments. You're doing it. I mean, I think it was Fran Leibowitz or one of those, no, maybe it was Catherine O'Hara, who used to be a comedian on Second City. I remember an interview with her years ago, and she said she didn't go to parties. The only reason to go to parties is to do business, and that's what it's like in the bigger cities. You go to the parties to make the connections because in a virtual society, you can't reach that guy because you just get his answer machine. But at a party, you've got the spontaneous possible of bringing your own physical charisma into a meeting situation and, and interest the producer in you or something. You see? Right. And there's also an assumption if it's a certain type of party and that you have access, that at that point the people at that party have been filtered such that this person would you know, want to give you audience. Right. And I'm just thinking that the club scene is an antidote to those kind of parties. If you're doing business parties... You dumb yourself down and go to a party with no business purposes, though that probably lingers, and that's why they call it a dumbing down club scene. That's an antidote to the official kind of partying where you do that to make your ambitious and ambition leaps in your profession or whatever you're fucking doing. Yeah, well, and you know what else, too? There's a large, I'd say in the case of the Toronto club scene, a lot, a lot of it's just characterized by, it's, it's a meat market, too, and it's just a bunch of people, you know, from 18 to 25 or 30, all charged up, and they want to get laid, and that's a huge factor in it, too, you know, that's a big part of the pursuit, you know, and so you see that played out, and you would have seen that played out even 100 years ago. Right, so the, so sex is the best, one of the best things, uh, along with eating, for the, chemi- for the reason to have a chemical body, so that is the... The, the uh, temporary ground for the club is sex, drugs, and eating. Yes. So, but it is so mixed up with all these other balancing and identity forming and identity killing and caving in and collapse and, and not wanting sex. All these dynamics of ES, we call instant ESP pattern recognition that's going on. And to drown all that out so you have a sense of a group mind is to have huge loud music. And, and and visual, whatever they have for visuals. Lights. Yeah. Pulsing to the music. And, you know, McClellan wrote that in Cliche Archetype, that society is becoming more and more a light, a sound and light show. So that is really a weak statement compared to what's happened in the 40 years. I mean, you know, the sentences Marshall writes are, are profound for his day, but that's thousands of years ago. Do you know what I mean? To say society is a sound light show... Um, does not uh, get the intensity that Croker's prose did, you know, 20, 20 years later. Croker would list like 10 things, 10 aspects of the sound light dynamic and, and bring in the ecological cancellation factors, which what, what Croker didn't know and what Thiel wanted to bring to the Croker world was uh, how Finnegan's Wake wrote that. Finnegan's Wake was already doing uh, the, the post-complex McLuhan. That's just a side um, plug for fitting its weight. So do you think we ransacked enough of it, Andrew, to go on to the next paragraph? 
Yeah, I think uh, by by its nature, um, the further we move through, it'll start uh, folding and flipping back on itself. I think we'll get okay. a sense of right. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so the total, this is paragraph two. The total decontextualizing of the digital has created the total detribalized tribe, i.e. the virtual dithrambic, virtual rhapsody of the social autist is a form of neo-capitalistic, neo-fundamentalist crowd control, ecstasy as pseudo-pan-trance, pseudo-empathy. The club scene is pan-optical, pan-holoric? Holoric. Uh, pan-holoric. I've never even heard it. That's a new word. Uh, counter classroom, penitentiary for maximizing hedonic calculus, the greatest pleasure of the now at expense of the past and the future. So does someone who hasn't spoken yet want to say something? No, but I want to say that that's, uh, that's basically what Lewis was saying, as much as Scott likes to dis, dis him. That's yeah, no, uh, Lewis's essay was called The Dizzy Rambic Spectator. There you and, go. And I think this is pretty good, uh, updating virtual dithyrambic. Now, I don't want to belabor my terminology, but I'll just tell you, the, the surface excess, like the phrase detribalized tribe, someone not used to reading that kind of stuff, how can you have a detribalized tribe? Um, the, uh, if you mean there's no tribe, but there is a tribe. So for me, these, this paragraph is not adequate to the dynamics, and I prefer to use my uh, five bodies because he is putting uh, the mixture of the five bodies on one flat level and then creating contradictory talk and saying counter-classroom penitentiary. You know, these I would take um, panopical, uh, panologic would be maybe, what? What's that mean, please? The panoptical. Uh, pan, panoptical was uh, uh, the or whatever. Panoptic was a term made famous by Foucault, where he said that when they built prisons in the 18th century, whenever it was, 1890th century, they'd have someone at the center of the prison, and he could look visual space perspective through the whole prison. So it's like a detached hyper visual perspective. Yeah, it's actually uh, Jer Jeremy Bentham, the Panopticon Bob. Right, right. Yeah. Yes, and and he's about seven, eighteen hundreds, eighteen twenties or something. So you've got um, it's the heightened what? And the next word? Panholorgic. I don't know what that is. I think that's uh, a Scott word, or I don't know. I've never seen. I've seen him use it before, but I don't know what it means. Uh, and let's say it means not just the eye. Panoptical and panholorgic sounds like holistic or the other senses. Yeah, but it's holographic just, it, and uh, I guess orgiastic. Um. Yeah, organic hologram. So it could be a it could be within a hologram, which is that's inevitable under global theater conditions. Makes sense. The head of the club scene too, in terms of from each person in the club, they look around and see a circle of people surrounding them, and everyone is having that perspective. Yeah, yeah. And then when they say counter classroom penitentiary. Does he mean the classroom is penitentiary? Probably. Counter-classroom penitentiary. Or is it a counter-classroom but a will, uh, desired penitentiary for closure? There's different ways you could read that. Penitentiary is a really loaded term, isn't it? Yeah. And well, actually, the penitentiary is where Foucault analyzed the panopticon, you know, the prison. So right. it does relate so, to... Sticking with this analogy. About yeah. And... and and alliteration. For maximizing hedonic calculus, McLuhan talks about the hedonistic calculus of uh, 
I think it's Bentham, uh, the philosopher's uh, utilitarianism, you know, 200 years ago, and he changed it to hedonic. I don't know if that's conscious or not, but the hedonistic calculus was um, the new uh, mathematics for public management. Yeah, so, it's... Uh I guess, yeah, it's that Bentham, but probably the more uh, significant figure would be the Marquis de Sade, I think, in terms of uh, McLuhan's thinking. Right. Doesn't he mention de Sade later? I think he does. De Sadean. real big in the 40s in terms of um, McLuhan is just as, um, it seems like he gets caught um, doing battle uh, on two fronts. He's got the left and, and the far right. So the, and de Sade's the far right. Yeah. Yeah, it's either in something else Scott wrote um, that I didn't post yet. Uh, no, I read some essay he did in the yesterday, and I think he may talk about Desaad in that, um, unless it's in here somewhere. Uh, anyways, Desaad is part of his uh, ammunition or repertoire. So yeah, to bring in Desaad is important here. The, and, the, and that's what Scott will be showing, that right-wing ideals, left-wing ideals, movements, agendas are canceled out. And you'll see, he says later, the Syrian rave, the Libyan rave, aren't really about democratic rights. You cannot have that kind of industrial visual space dynamic going on in a Facebook world or a Twitter world. What would you characterize them as? Uh, the, the revolution, supposedly, what's going on? Um, I, I would... Um, Let's see, they are uh, nostalgia for the chemical body, but actually responding to the, uh, the new mystery landscape in this sense, that um, it's interpreted as people uh, recognizing that they can control their politics and their economics. But that's review mirror for them becoming indifferent to all dynamics, and they can ignore the authorities and the economy is really what's going on. So it's actually uh, not just a retrieval. There's something new going on. Kissinger was interviewed in Charlie Rose, and he says, this is the first time I've seen a revolution. I don't know what the hell it is or where it came from or what's its agenda. It's the first time I've seen a revolution where I didn't know all the people behind it. Yeah, that I wasn't running it. <laughs> and uh, in my terms, that's the new mystery landscape. But, the, but if you look at um, uh, it is not, I don't think the concern about whether it's democracy or not is not what the people involved with them are concerned with. They're just recognizing that they can travel around the world. They can go wherever they want, and they're not constricted anymore. Well, aren't a lot of them saying they just want their personal human rights and liberty? And not yeah, that's what I mean. They want, you know what McLuhan said in the late 60s, that people wanted, he said, women's lib represents women wanting mobility. That that's what that and that's they don't want people standing in way of their mobility. Yeah, that's what I mean. They want mobility, and that doesn't necessarily mean uh, uh, getting a car. That'd be part of it. But the uh, mobility is nobody interrupting me. I want to be part of the flow, and I can flow wherever I want, and, and be a starving person in Pakistan as well as in Belgium or Brazil. Let me starve wherever I want to starve. Yeah, that's what you expect of the environment rather than what the environment is expecting of you. Yeah, yeah, you make your own space. So there's that. That's that's why, I don't know, what, what's going on there this week? I mean, I see in the news that just glimpses, they're shooting at people, or people get killed. I, I don't know, what's happening in Egypt? What, what, what came of all this that was so televised a couple months ago? Oh, I see. What, what, where, where's it led? 
It's in limbo, isn't it, with the military dictatorship? Right after it happened, you know, they were saying, we don't want to bug you on your night of celebration, but, uh, you know, now there's no government and the military's in full control. Uh, and, and, they, and they said, well, we just have to hope that they'll be on our side. <laughs> <laughs> isn't this what uh, Scott's pointing to, Bob, is that, is that, you know, what happened? I don't know, what is happening in the in the where that it was, that the, the how that the boundaries that were somewhere before that kind of, we can't say what's going on. I mean, what is going in the Middle East? Where is the Middle East anymore with the boundaries being uh, redrawn, drawn? Right. Can you actually talk and say, this is what is happening? And I'd I'd say that Scott is on the right track calling it a rave because it was a celebration of the the chemical body that Western media interpreted politically. It was just them raving together, hanging out. Funny you say the rave. It's much larger over there to the tens of thousands of people uh, crowding in the streets and hooping and hollering and protesting. You're saying it's larger than a club? Uh, Yeah. Just it's like a rave, like you said, a rave. Yeah. Crowds have gotten way, 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 way huge. Are they still doing it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, some footage I saw of it yesterday and the day before in, I think it was Syria. It had okay. shifted over to Syria. Ooh. That's, that's Hakeem Bay's autonomous zone. It, Anybody it, wants to compare a rave to... Ducking fucking bullets is out of their mind. <laughs> oh, no, no. Is that you, Michael? Uh, no. You wait, wait, wait. I, I, Tina, I, Tina, I got something. Hey, Michael. When you come out. Michael, However, you talked about being shot at in Toronto. Yeah, you, sure. There's people shooting all over the place. They're not raving. Well, come to this rave and you've got a good chance, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait. But they go to the club, you said, Michael, 20 minutes ago, to be shot at. They, yeah, exactly. And well, that's that, that's that streamlined uh, Syrian rave. Right. They go to a rave for human rights. Yeah, it's well, the rave without walls. You don't need to have mosh, mosh pits and all of that that used to go on. I don't know if they do that anymore. Do that what? Mosh pits. You oh, yeah, mosh pits. Yeah. Yeah. Hip-hop is supposedly the main music that's in, like, they're making songs in Benghazi and uh, lyrics, you know, about their revolution and change, and it's in hip hop. And they say, "Why hip hop?" to the guy. And, and he, a lot of the rap is in English too. And they mix the English and the language they speak in Libya with it. And he said, uh, "Because you know, hip hop is the music, you know, of the, the downtrodden." I think he said. <laughs> yeah, and that speech. Remember we said. Expression. Remember last week I suggested that the rock and or black music rules the last fifty years because they represent speech. And the word dynamic, and that's a downtrodden medium. And they keep being a hydraulic jack, keeping speech and song going. That's what this guy meant. He said, well, we represent hip-hop is the black stuff and the latest downtrodden objection. Yeah, it's the the last poetics of uh, rhythm and pattern recognition and uh, data stream. For a chemical body. And the poor are those that don't have access to the computers or to have editing studios or editing spaces. Yep. So it's interesting that the these raves in the Middle East are are highlighted by the journalists as uh, being uh, involved Twitter. I just make one little correction. I would say that the the hip hop is is not really analog. It's very digital. It's very computer. It's producer music. 
Yeah, it, it's post-tactile because they fake. That's why, you know, the uh, gangster rap and that, they would uh, make fun of the journalists who say, you guys are thugs and all that, whereas they would show in the videos their hand signals. It was all done scattered as if there was meaning, but there was no meaning that they really intended. They just say, who, who, would, who would think we mean this? And, and that would be their put on. Who, who thinks we're trying to be violent? Who's, who's interpreting these gestures as, uh, as tribal warfare? That seemed to be the put on in hip hop culture. They knew that people would interpret that way and they, they uh, laughed at it. Well, I mean, but that was what was going on out in the streets and, and the gangs and the cities and stuff was all the violence and. Yeah, there was that. The, the thing is, you would, you would juxtapose that for other reasons. The violence of, uh, of the actual killing of people is people um, pissed off that they, they can't get a role in the, in the digital theater. Right. Okay. That's a major identity crisis. Yeah. And the, uh, the larger right. consumer group creating an identity. Yeah. Situation. It's like getting getting a job or more cornflakes. What, what were you saying, Andrew? The uh, the actual uh, consumer base for um, hip hop is is the white middle class. Yeah. Male. That's right. Aren't they the consumer base for everything, though, Andrew? Well, I don't know about everything, but uh, definitely uh, the propping up a gangster uh, rap. It, it's the uh, the white the white chemical body wanting to be another kind of body, and yeah. roman- romanticizing it. Or on BET is huge too. What? It's marketed it to, to everyone. Well, what's it mean to market it? Is is do the kids in the ghettos? They have their media. They can look at stuffs going on. But they they want to make it. Yeah, if you look listen to top forty stations in most U.S. cities, they they usually have for the last fifteen years hip hop tunes. Right. So the white culture is is literate and passive. That everyone's listening to. Yeah, yeah. Right. The consumer is the uh, is the dynamic of a literate industrial society. Uh, the the blacks never were consumers uh, on a mass level. They were makers, either on the Harlem doorsteps or down south. It's the it's the actual the 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 consumer part of our economy is done by white people or white kids, but now a lot of the black kids now have a whole higher middle class level the last 15 years uh, all over the United States, so they're not really black people anymore, but they've become consumers like the white kids. So you go to school and sit in a classroom for 10 years, you're learning how to be a consumer, to be a passive receiver of data. All those Oreos are black on the outside, white on the inside. Right. Now, that's a phrase that's been around for 30 years. Take that phrase and see if you can update it with the multi-body dynamic. Well, in Toronto, we talk about bananas. You mean cabana? No, bananas. <laughs> I know. But what, what's that called in July, the Caribbean Festival? A Caribbean. Uh, Carabana. Carabana. Carnival. Yeah. So, 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 what are you saying, uh, Michael? No, bananas are white, are white on the inside and yellow on the outside. Okay, that's so the. I guess uh, to update it would be: What are white people? White yeah. on the outside. What are we on the inside? Uh, synesthesia. All color. All, all, yeah. media, all colors. 
and colors mutating into other other senses. Because That's, the yeah, we're like our on the inside, we're uh, our colors have mutated into other senses. Yeah, we're we're not white inside. Well, we're not any color inside. Right, it's synesthesia means tactility, the interplay of different modalities. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's an update. <laughs> so what? These new economic environments that are being implied, and we don't have bodies. Right. So what fruit is that? Zango. Zango. No, that's one color. What is something, uh, you know, when you get a nice drink, I uh, haven't got one lately, but they have all those colors in the glass with a stick in it, like some Hawaiian martini or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those colorful drinks. Tequila Sunrise? Yeah, they have many colors in the in the liquid. Right, right. With the different thicknesses, they they mix them properly and they sit and make like a sunburst. Yeah, yeah. That that's what that's what white people are. So uh, now, <laughs> a Long Island iced tea. Say that again. A Long Island iced tea. Yeah. It's like a mix. Yeah, yeah. So we had the Orioles. The what were they called? The Oreos. Oreos. And then the bananas, the bananas are the Chinese kids going to university, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. and then, now they say the uh, the new fad is those things um, that Tiesto plays at in L.A., 20,000 kids go to, and the aesthetic or is everybody loves everybody, and there's no worry about race or anything. It's like a melting pot aesthetic. And the guys play every kind of music possible. That's, that, that makes sense. Yeah, and Evan Ray told me this a year ago that that is the big scene. I don't know if it's anywhere else, but in L.A. And you know, uh, Tina, when we were talking to Pam on Tilgate the other day, she, her boyfriend did that. Remember, she, he said, Do I yeah. play rave-ups or mash-ups or something. But these, you know, thousands of kids, it's like a mini Woodstock, and they go and the musicians do their... Uh, Dance, uh, what do you call it? Um, what do you call what Tiesto does? You know, modulating their keyboard. What, what's it called, Dave? Modulating their keyboard? <laughs> yeah. What do you call just DJing? What do you call just DJing? I guess you call it DJing. Well, what they do, she said, they don't just play one kind of music. They play oh, maybe okay. a new stuff and overlay yeah. some yeah. 50s R&B. Yeah. Well, isn't that really hip-hop's been doing that play for you for the longest time whether it was some cool tune that would like you know, take sample Annie which is like the last thing you would think you would use for inspiration for a dope track, you know what I mean yet you put them together and, 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 and people get used to hearing these juxtapositions as time goes on in all environments where suddenly anything works as music I, I think people are, are just we have so much music that our people are used to that so it makes complete sense that you would not want to be limited to one genre Yeah, that's what Evan, what what they describe as going on, what's unique, is that they don't limit themselves to the style of music DJs are known to be doing. They will play R&B or 60s music, mix it all up, and give those other music a chance to be heard, or at least to be in the mix. You know, it, it's... Um, what I did at weddings and uh, and this is like unhip club for eons where I literally it was like almost schizophrenic where you could normally, I always thought it was cooler. I thought, I can go through so many genres at this club. I could never do that if I was playing at a cooler place. They want me to play everything that's in the last six months in a certain yeah. genre for the most part. Yeah. Well, they seem to be mixing it even more than that 
whatever I'm trying to say. It was it was right. new the sure. level of mixture going on. So they actually were Especially celebrating. What? They were they would overlay like hip hop with swing. You know. Yeah, and, yeah, it's and our, our way back. Right. So they were actually celebrating. I would say the Android meme, all the history of recorded music. Yeah. Total participation. It's almost the the death of the death of uh, quality, and it's only now it's uh, only the connection that that matters. And that's partly what he's describing. What did you say? The death of quality. The or death. The <laughs> lacking of quality. Or the death. <laughs> D e a t h. Yeah, but that that would also flip in and push it to the abundance of quality. That there is so yeah. much to blunder and, and and to recombine. Yeah, it's. Beams. Yeah, but in the sense that nobody, nobody's weighing up, oh, that was good, that was bad. It's, uh, it's almost all, all is grist to the mill to the point where um, the, the, the real artistry is at the level of um, is participatory environments at the, at the post-content level. Yeah, the medium is a nano-massage. They get massaged by the music, but each mood lasts about 30 seconds. So you get many massages. It's a massage, a nano massage. Multi. Everyone wants to get their. Everyone wants to get a, their on a capitalist level, and in that sense, their fingers in on the massaging. Yeah, they 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 uh, they criticize in postmodernism the ten the, the modernist tendency to what they call totalism, like thinning its wake would be, or the pounds cantos would be considered an attempt to be totalistic to swallow it all up. Well, now the cyclopean human being chip body. Cyclopean was McLuhan's term for the one-eyed. Uh, TV victim, uh, the new cyclopean is retrieving totalism. The kids are, are post-postmodern, paramodern, and are, don't mind being totalistic. All pastimes is pastimes. Right. All pastimes, all artifacts is uh, here, present. Well, he says the greatest pleasure of the now at the expense of the past and the future. That's, that's not really what we're saying here, is it? Because he's including the past and the future. But we are talking about a club. That's different from maybe these uh, outdoor things that are going on in California. Yeah, I mean, to, to an old literate mind, this is kind of recreational fascism. To what kind of mind? To like a, an old literate uh, person who is, um, uses such categories as political <clears throat> economy or something like this or um, nation state. This is, it's, it's full-blown recreational fascism. Yeah, and that and that's uh, and that is what you you can detect that disgust in Scott. He does have that. Uh, he, he he's a um, he has that literary disgust with the group mind, and I've that's where you know my comments below about what he's trying to retrieve the old fashioned analog analogia community. Yeah, he's 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 howling the horror, Bob, the horror. Yes, yeah. And and um, he's not. If you discuss it with him, he's not that knee jerk. He knows it's more complex. But in the end, the tone is uh, the horror. Like I, I would, if you put me with with him, I'd emphasize the services of this situation. Yeah, one is one is. I'd give us some headlines of those. Well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I've been a Canadian for a long time, and Canadians have no identity, is what McLuhan said. So I'm all for promoting the, the Canadian aesthetic and having no identity, and anything <laughs> is established, just erase it immediately. Let's call it the Eraserhead Quadrophenic. I'm not for establishing any for, anything for very long. And this environment we got that we're describing does not establish anything for very long. 
and that's good. Do you remember that time, Dave, one Christmas party, <laughs> New Year's party, I think you were there, where I was, we were dancing around, so I had the radio on, and I was going up and down the dial, rapidly shifting it, ridiculously and irritatingly. Do you remember that? Vaguely. I remember you sticking out, finding a good song, and jumping, doing a walk up and down your stairway. Music. <laughs> right. I, but you, I know you used to come to these New Year's parties, and one time I remember... Yeah. Just whipping the dial up and down. I guess I was trying to do my version of uh, DJing, you know, hip-hop, sampling. <laughs> yeah. So if that was an indication of anything, I like the shifts. Uh, so that's why am I saying this? Um, oh, that's an example of the service of the Android meme. It does not allow you to stay long in any one place. Yeah, but that not staying long in any one place is in and of itself its own symphony. If you if you don't stay, the movement is a symphony. Yeah, the movement itself is, yeah. is, is a is a road, is a pattern, and is yeah. a, you may as well call it music. Well, so you can't lose. The symphony is going to be implied, but you can undermine even that symphonic effect if you can. I mean, we did it on the radio show all the time. Sure, sure. If you, yeah, well, I, I guess uh, I guess the conscious mind can look at it. Sure. Yeah. Now you could you could say that. Um, I did that to myself because I spent most of my week sedentary being in one place. I didn't have a job to go to, so I, I could have a, stat, a kind of a, stat, a patina of staticness. So I required the anarchy of, uh, of release from that um, by having chaotic uh, preferences. I wouldn't call them chaotic as so much as um, kind of... Uh, Discontinuous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what? Never mind. No, spastic? Spastic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it. That's it. But the... Uh, just cut loose and, and, you know, yeah. Not stay. Yeah. But, yeah. but the, uh, the, what we're describing here, in my case, is what's going on in the club scene, isn't it, Dave? They are quadrophenic. They are shifting a lot. To some extent. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know how this would apply or if it applies to anything, but you have these uh, outdoor gatherings of 20,000 kids in L.A. listening, vibing to the music in a very uh, uh, blissed-out state of fun. And on the other side of the planet, which would be daytime, you have these gathering of... 20,000 plus people outside in the streets uh, screaming and hollering whatever it is that they're protesting going on at the same time. I just find Many that odd. Well, no. So the common denominator of the matrix tubing of everybody, everybody in their own little virtual chip body space, has created an ecology balance of everybody celebrating group group numbness, group dumbness, group group behavior. That's what would be the common thing. Right, and look at the contrast in the chemical body, and that the one group seems to have a more hedonistic, fun, carefree sort of uh, picture being painted in the West, whereas in Libya or Syria, you know, they're all young people in a lot of these events, but they think they might not make it to the next day. So it's a, right. And they're just trying to get into that situation that, that, that they see in the West, because uh, 
once they go online too, they would see, you know, is this the kind of level of affluence that they have in that part of the world? That probably has a large impact when people see that. Yeah, McClune took the phrase "emotion of multitude" from uh, an essay by W. B. Yeats, and he saw a lot of the uh, new sporting events and music as the emotion of multitude. This this is the emotion of multitude, you know, hyper. And now the the kids at these raves in L. A. Are they looking at their uh, their texting at the same time? Probably. If they make a concerted effort not to bring their texting, which I doubt, that would be radical. But they're probably looking at their their little hand, whatever you call them, uh, iPhones and stuff, texting devices, while in this big crowd, right? Yeah. Or filming filming the event. Yeah, it's filming it. It's, yeah. It provides a common language, Bob. It's a, a point where a common language is forged. What is the point of common language? These uh, t- these 20,000 plus uh, gatherings, in a certain sense, if people are no longer watching television and participating in advertising in these collective environments, these uh, collective uh, spasm situations provide some uh, foundation for actually making noises towards another that they might understand. Right, so it could be all on a broad level the death of TV. These m- massive... Uh, uh, massive envir- uh, crowds are people no longer fascinated by television, and at best say they should be the content and and put up their placards for that purpose. Yeah, so in lieu of an earthquake or a tidal wave, the only way you can get uh, a shared language is possibly this a uh, massive wave. Yeah, it's an, it. It's not as long lasting in the West. They only require this Esperanto for a weekend. Then it's off to your own fragmentation and the services of that on Monday. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I guess the uh, visual space of, of, of accounting provides a language for people's uh, workaday wor- worlds. Yeah. So, um, are we simplifying what Scott isn't getting? Or, no, Scott's describing, but it could be more simple. Yeah, well, in, in defense of Scott's um, uh, work, I think, it, it, I mean, this is an email. Like, this, this is him just <laughs> whacking off a, a real quick email to you, uh, yeah. some thoughts and reflections. So, in a certain sense, we're doing him a disservices, disservice by uh, uh, going over this with your lemon squeeze in mind. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, he's definitely uh, gesturing in the direction that we want to be going. So, let's keep reading. Does us Well, let's, let's just look at the inventory, though. He says, the total decontextualizing of the digital. So, the digital decontextualizes the chemical body and the TV body. It's created a totally detribalized tribe. Does that mean detribalization, or that it's a tribe that is at the same time detribalized? I would say the tribe is... What? You're saying, like, is it fostered and eroded? Yeah, is is detribalized um, and tribe, is is too many words there? Is that Hendiades, one by means of two? Or is he saying that the tribe is always there, but then he puts on the uh, surface uh, environment of detribalizing? Why say detribalized? Why not just totally detribalized? Maybe, maybe, too bad he didn't call in yet, eh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, so the decontextual has created the Totally detribalized. Okay, that's right. No tribe under uh, chip landscape conditions. So you have a nostalgia for the tribe, i.e. the virtual dithyrambic. The dithyrambic is a spectator, and that's someone who's uh, watching stuff, his text come in, whatever he's doing on the computer, and it's a virtual situation. Then it, and then you're a social autist, 
So virtual rhapsody. So he's saying that the club scene is the way to retrieve um, the tribal emotions. Because remember, the ground is, the average characteristic is social autism. The virtual rhapsody. Now, wait a minute. Does that, does that mean the computer? Oh, wait. The, the computer world is the rhapsody. Is a form of neocapitalism, neo crowd. No, it's still talking about crowd control. He, he seems to be talking about the, cloud, the club there, right? Yeah. He's so saying the club virtual, scene. Well, what is virtual rhapsody of the social? What is virtual rhapsody first? An ecstasy, I would say. So uh, he's saying that. Or the form? He's saying the club. Yeah, the club. So is that referring to the club? And then that, that and it's addressing this social autism as a form of neo-capitalist, neo-fundamentalist crowd control. No, that's right. It's, it's chemical body uh, uh, fundamentalism. So to go into a club is to experience, you know, uh, MKUltra or crowd control, right? It's, right, and some of the people of that same peer group are also on a capitalist level, making money off it. So it is a form of an economy, too, right. because there is money being made from this. Yeah. I, I, when I read that kind of sentence, this is, this is hoiking up that this services too much. Because ecstasy as pseudo-pantrance, pseudo-empathy. Scott is looking for genuine empathy. What's wrong with pseudo-empathy? What's yeah, wrong? At least it's a good starting point. Yeah, and and since you you don't want to engage it for very long, you know it's good that it's pseudo. It's just for a weekend. I, I, I'm just gonna hook up. I'm just having a quickie here. This is just a quickie. Yeah. <laughs> it's what they call hooking up. So Scott and Scott is talking from uh, a Buddhist uh, position in some way. He is, does this in other essays. He's trying to the very last line. Uh, of this thing is um, you go down to the bottom he says uh, such a global holistic perspective has to be adopted and all such diagnosis becomes increasingly perceptual he's, he's asking for something that he's asking for a larger antidote to a bad situation and uh, Bob's working on it yeah I, I produced the antidote but <laughs> It's a specialized. It's a specialized market right now. Well, possibly, Bob. One way of getting into it is, uh, I think McLuhan often talks about uh, civilization being founded on that uh, the visual acoustic metaphor, the, the capacity to translate the uh, written word into spoken word and spoken word back right. into written word. That's civilization, technically. Yeah, in terms of his technical understanding of civilization, and so. Uh, Scott Taylor is uh, is certainly nostalgic for civilization, but he now uh, Scott Scott was uh, trained in the Gutenberg arts, you know, to extreme. He was a classical pianist, you know, very young. He's well versed in all the arts. I think his parents were artists in that. So he he is uh, has the the most advanced education in Gutenberg terms. So that's what he's conditioned by. That, and he does not want to stay there, but he told me that he doesn't like um, John Cage kind of stuff, the electronic uh, avant-garde. He, uh, he, he named some composer, like someone who's still slightly classical. Like he doesn't like Murray Schaefer. He doesn't like the Murray Schaefer kind of uh, go out in the woods and create an acoustic environment uh, and call a symphony and get it broadcast on CBC. He, he's kind of conservative in, in his uh, artistic, aesthetic taste. But he certainly 
does not hide behind that. He sees the present very accurately. Yes, absolutely. So yeah. that's like the missing, um, I guess that's the, uh, the difference uh, that uh, is being registered, that this is a deviation. It's a, it's a post-civilized situation that is being uh, discussed here. And I mean, so many of our uh, understanding of the qualities of the good all still um, harken back to civilization, that we don't murder each other en masse. That we don't, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. The uh, so Scott, he um, it's like McClune, you know. He says, I, "I'm at heart a 19th-century man, and I teach literature." And, and nobody really considered him, at least as mine, 19th century. But he admitted he was conditioned by that, and that's where his sentiments lay. It's like and his contrast. Yeah, and his contrast. Yeah. He, he hates Hitler. He hates genocide. He hates all of these things. <laughs> these uh, normal tribal things that he finds yeah. disgusting. Yeah, <laughs> the flow of blood from the pyramids for um, you know five five years in a row or something like this. Yeah, he does say one of the interviews. Uh, the tribal people are isn't it the recording we have uh, we featured? Uh, it's tribal people are ruthless. He talks about that. The, the ruthlessness of the global village. Remember that in that 1969 talk? Yeah. Right. The ruthlessness of the so-called collective, the yeah. collective image. Yeah, he says you don't mess with tribal people. So he doesn't romanticize the noble savage that way. But, okay, so, so Scott, he, it's, Scott unfortunately had an isolated upbringing in the classical arts. You know what I mean? What, what did you say? He fortunately, unfortunately had, <laughs> unfortunately had a, had an education in the in the Gutenberg arts and was really good at it, and he did become a university teacher. So in that ivory tower world, but it is it is not he has not instinctively felt a uh, a resonance or a empathy or a enjoyment of. Uh, of the present. Now, he did go to a Zappa concert in the late 60s. He actually got to talk to Zappa. I've covered some of this yesterday talking to him because I wanted to find out what his bias is or what his definitions are before we did this. And um, he also, uh, he'd go to rock concerts and that. But I think that he is nostalgic and it's coming through in the article. His position is there's something to be retrieved. And uh, that, that probably is not possible. And I don't know what kind of person uh, likes the present. I know the kids do, but they don't matter. As McLuhan said, kids are vegetables. They're going to grow through a long, long process. You remember that, Andrew? Yeah. They'll grow very slowly into approximate humanness. But um, <laughs> if anybody wants to hear it, it's in this. Uh, isn't he talking on ideas, CBC show ideas, talking about the kids being Slow growth. That's what he says. The kids are like vegetables. And this is a father of five, six kids. The kids are like vegetables. Slow growth. Very slow. <laughs> it's funny because, you know... Oh, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, well, no. I'll just quickly say the exams from 1918 or whatever in Ontario, whatever that you're supposed to do when you're in grade, I think, seven, like yeah. 14... They were the equivalent of grade 13, like when I went to school. They're like saying, use the word ameliorate in a sentence, and that's like, wow, I didn't encounter that word until like grade 13. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, so it was amazing when, you, when, when McLuhan would say, well, they go really slow. At a certain level, the way, you know, you're really expected to memorize a lot of stuff back in the day, you know, that was just expected. 
Yeah, a lot of left hemisphere abilities. Now, at the time he was saying that in 667, Zappa is putting out a song called Call Any Vegetable. There was an interesting resonance uh, between Zappa's, you know, youthful just imagery with what McLuhan was saying technically. I mean, McLuhan recognized that his kids were not chemical body people. They were vegetables, literally. And they had to be grown to acquire some kind of chemical body maturity. He's way beyond the cyborg. They're like amoeba. Now, Zappa says a little later, he calls uh, his audience consumer amoeba. To, to recognize that the, the biological normal form, the cliche image of the body, is not what humans were anymore, you know, it comes from Joyce and then William Burroughs and then Zappa, and McLuhan is part of that sensibility. He knows these are not chemical bodies. He says the universe had a biological orgasm in the 19th century. Now, Tina, tell that to your mother. Did you know that the biological universe that we know has had an orgasm in 20, 100 years ago and ain't here anymore? Try to tell that to your friends. <laughs> they already think I'm weird. Yeah, you'll want to push it. But no. this, this is how outrageous... Uh, I mean, people don't even know McLuhan said it. It's said in an obscure uh, review of William Burroughs, written in a magazine in December 64. Um, so anyways, Dave, just want to show you that um, uh, Marshall's right there with us right now as we're talking. He's, he's, we're, not, we're not pushing the envelope past him, maybe just a little bit with Scott's help. But the fact that he could be resonating in 1964 with this right now is pretty futuristic. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, he literally understood uh, that the discarnate state wiped out the biological image. And that begins in the 20s. Okay, so anyways, uh, so what do you think, Andrew, or anybody about him trying to get a global perspective? That's what the thing is. And he says it's perceptual, but he's making uh, his mythic stage of culture the the uh, the global perspective the Buddhist culture yeah it's it's I guess that's part of the the collapse that Scott seems to be dealing with and that um, I think which brings us up to date is how do you get a, a global perspective when the global has uh, disappeared like the digital is not the global when it doesn't invoke uh, the global village, the global theater, or the global anything. It's a, a total uh, fragmentation and fracturing of, of all of those things. So it's almost impossible to get a sense of a scale or overview, it seems. Yeah, and the overview is a literate bias. McLuhan says the bird's eye view comes into literate cultures. He's, take, he's looking for a panopticon. Yeah. A global perspective. It's pan you, you, you can't under, understand uh, the digital situation because there is no there is no place to stand. That's right. He did say to me that he's his social autism uh, metaphor or probe has been useful for the last thirty years, but he says he does not think it applies to the present kids. He finds it hard to figure out what they're doing. And I did find the Desad reference. It's just near the ending. The uh, second last big paragraph it, start, it says as for my own optimism I attempt to enact the opposite of a decidean in brackets mechanical deconstructive enlightenment imagination and proffer the annihilation of the notion of a mechanical decided universe where all is permitted such a decidean notion is an illusion and if adopted as it has been by a selfish mechanical materialism like that of Dawkins now 
that is selfish mechanical materialism does sound a little old-fashioned. Might be appropriate before World War II, but to say Dawkins, not that Dawkins is right, it, that's, that's iffy and mechanical materialism. It could be. These, a lot of scientists are like that. Can produce delusion and the medical criminality or anti-society of such. Illusion is permitted so that the creation will know illusion and not follow its example. Now, that's a good ecological statement. Illusion is permitted so the creation will know illusion. Empathy is not mimesis. It is the ongoing flowing reality of psychic extension and intention. It is not making, making or matching. It is being as in following through in harmony or concert with, or not. It's good that he puts in the or not, right? So it shows that he's not just following a simple classical nostalgia. Simply the unreal imagination, which is quoting, uh, in his terms, the Buddhist imagination, the unreal imagination allows creation this knowledge in order to gain, say, experience of all real reality. That is the all real reality transvoid, through, above, and beyond the void. I would object to using the terms all real, real reality. To base you know, your meaning on that capitalized letters is uh, it's too provincial. Now, I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Okay, well, let's uh, uh, stay on point, Bob, and just progress through. So we'll just read the next uh, paragraph and then go from there. Yeah, do you want to read it or shall I? Oh, so I'll let somebody else read it. So I'll let somebody else here do it. Okay. You want to read it, Dave? Okay. Yeah, my comments regarding nostalgia is the paragraph. Oh, I thought you meant the McLuhan thought. We, yeah, I, yeah, it's the McLuhan thought that the. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, wait, man, where, where, what are you reading? It's the third paragraph. <laughs> oh, I thought you were down, what, going into the no, ending. No, you flipped to the end. No, 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 Andrew's oh. saying let's go back. In fact, okay. why don't we just keep consistent? Andrew, if you want, do you want to read it? Because you've been, you say, well, I always know you're quoting the... Uh, no, no, you do McLuhan's thought. I, I see where you are. McLuhan's thought. All right. <clears throat> McLuhan thought the... McLuhan thought that the resonant intervals created by the new electronic, electrical, anti-environment environment, the mosaic world of intervals, would generate a violent reconditioning, but such as deconditioning, too, in that it wipes out previous neurological connectivity and behavior. At the same time, it standardizes and destandardizes the present, he puts brackets, ecstasy, and obliterates future connection. The use of ecstasy depletes psychophysiological physiology of the ability to forge new communicated structures. Huh. Try it again. The use of ecstasy depletes psychophysiology of the ability... I don't... I mean, I'm reading what he said. Sorry. Like, it's weird. But it's too much they, nowness. The nowness of now and not making any linear past or future. Yeah. The use of ecstasy depletes psychophysiology of the ability to forge new communicated structures. So as technoculture invents brackets, privileges, new drugs, brackets, trends, and telecommunications, there's a kind of homeostatic equilibrium dynamic whereby a drug like ecstasy depletes communication. I don't find that. That's my own. I just added it. I'll just continue reading. I'm sorry. Yeah. Whereby a drug like ecstasy depletes communication, brackets, and information. At the same time, telecommunications provide extra communication, brackets, and information. Right, now he's exactly right what he does, but the problem is he, uh, he uh, is, um, what is it? He, he wants to conduct a seminar in the middle of all this. He wants some matching to happen in this uh, colossal multi-nano environment. He's looking for some meaning to be established. He wants to get back to Plato's cave, 
or at least have the cave that you can go to a higher reality. But why complain about the situation? Why say there's no communication? There's lots of communication, lots of information. What is the kind of communication he wants to have? Yeah, strange, but obliterating future connection. The behavior at the same time standardizes and destandardizes the present and obliterates future connection. Hmm. Yeah, he's, he's talking about the wiping out. It does both. It always does the uh, polarity. It does this and the opposite. Uh, conditions, reconditions, and deconditions. But he says something's missing. Something is missing uh, that we're losing. And what is it that we've lost? And what is it we should uh, go back towards? Good it, question. He's not here to answer it, eh? That, that's yeah. too bad he wasn't here right now, eh? That's well, we... It, hear his response. He may come in a couple hours, and we can just easily go back to it. He'll be here, Bob. I, I'm going to tune out probably soon. Not tune out, but go and do something else, actually. Okay, well, you've made a good contribution so far, but, but the, while you're still here, um, he, he may be putting on, since he writes for, uh, I guess, academic audiences or some specialized audience, you have to look like you're for something. <laughs> you're trying to save some humanist mandate. That may be what he's putting on here. But he says well, the illusion... Perhaps if I can uh, interject there... Um, uh, Scott does uh, differentiate between uh, rhetorical and poetical exegesis, and you know he does make that point that at a, at a certain point the knives have got to stop being sharpened; they actually have got to start cutting. You know, there is a point on which uh, the judgment takes place. Right, but what is he for? The words are not appropriate um, to say all real reality, capital letters. Um, uh, he should say something like cold fusion a technical environment that would move us out of the uh, Well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's why, why, uh, is why this, uh, his work resonates, is that it's a part of a, a quest for the qualities that we uh, ought to be propping up. Right, but um, would you, uh, can you condemn millions of people for, for their, uh, their kind of ecstasy? <laughs> yeah, well, there's the question, eh? Yeah. What's the point of even addressing anybody? Which I think McLuhan uh, raised that question. Yes. He did, he did have a question. He had one of his magazines in the 50s. He goes, just this one-liner, is anybody listening? So he said he had questions, not the answers, but the questions were the answers. Uh, you know, to, to, have, to hear a question may be all you need because it shifts your worry, the, the whatever linear connections you're trying to make. If you have a question that stops that, then you're ready to move on to the next experience. And a question shifts you into that rather than having an answer, which then you might lobby for, and then you become an organization, and that's a distracting activity. Uh, you'll lose touch with the, uh, the future now's coming. Yes. His, so, his next paragraph is pretty bleak, and I guess it continues in the same... There's a bit of the tone. Okay, let's do that, Dave. Here. Do that. What we see in Africa regarding the social networking and the political environment is the emergence of the population, uh, brackets, the Syrian rave, the Libyan rave, and so on, brackets, into a new supposedly democratic identity, he puts that in quotes, identity. But in fact, the quote identity provided by Facebook et al. is absolutely ersatz and the farthest thing from anything democratic in the least. Human rights have been obsolesced. 
the illusion of human rights is the order of the day. People simply do not realize that they have been reorganized into, among other digital electronic structures, cloud computing orders of neo-capitalist, economic, fundamentalist, anarchist, democratic, fascist, socialist, non-ideological, anti-ideological, stat systemics. Great writing. <laughs> yeah. Very good work. Yeah, so he's he's going through an inventory. It's, it's damn, you know what? I, I, I'd say his, if he's trying to retrieve something, it's poetry. Yeah, literate poetry, written written poetry. Um, the, his, his writing is like an art form in itself, kind of, just the way he expressed that. He's trying to retrieve a, uh, a, quality, a quality kind of bird's eye view. The big picture. What? A hardware economy. No, no, not a not a hardware economy. Just the poetic aesthetics. That's where the Buddhism. It's a religious sensibility almost. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you have to read his other writings to know about the Buddhist void that he uh, he thinks is the most appropriate metaphor. But what he's doing is listing off categories that news journalists use. You see, it's a literate person angry at the categories journalists use. Well, at the very last part you're referring to? Okay. Yeah, yeah, the socialist, fascist. The digital, oh, I see. No, and no. democratic. We're studying the essay, which is like you, Andrew was saying, too. This is, this is just his immediate response after hearing last week's show, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So off the cuff for him. But, but he's talking about, he's complaining about the cat. He's saying, you guys are saying there's a democratic revolution going on in, in Africa, and that's not the case at all. How my, McLuhan said, why listen to the news? And he celebrated back in the 70s, NBC, because their news broadcasts were like 30 seconds long, their broadcast. And he didn't like CBS because they went on for five or ten minutes and went into details. Says, These news items should not be explored. But if you did explore them, you'd start to criticize in the terminology uh, that journalists use. And a lot of uh, intellectual activity in the New York Review of Books and, uh, well, New York Times, those kind of... Uh, high literary uh, audiences, they are complaining about the journalism, about the misnomer of terms. But that's, that's like, what is that? that that's a Don, Don Quixote uh, fighting against old windmills. Nobody's listening to the news. Why, you can write stuff and get paid to do that, but it's very um, uh, provincial, very uh, narrow casting. It's not on the big level that McLuhan's doing. So his, he certainly can describe the present, but uh, he's specializing too much <laughs> in his he's response. Not in what? He's not in Hawaii doing the body. Don't bring in my chemical body. It has nothing to no, do with okay. it. Yeah, no, you did that last you week. Don't wait, wait, wait. <laughs> this is your basic self, Dave. You did that last week. You started saying, I can't make money out of McLuhan stuff. Look, forget about making money. We're talking about escaping into understanding, or at least have the intellectual pleasure of understanding a pattern. And that's a form of wealth. And you could live on that a good, good part of your day. So, yeah, well, I, I was thinking that after. I do not accept the, the, the hardware need food criticism. That's, right, right. That, you would do, Bob, regardless of where you were. Yeah. Bob ain't in Hawaii. I don't know where I am. You know, I'm, I'm talking to you guys. Uh, the uh, I, I'll tell you, it's the greatest place to live for the chemical body, but that's only one tenth of myself. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Bob hasn't laid on the other five bodies yet. Yeah. But he's certainly incorporating <laughs> them. 
<laughs> well, I, I, would, I wouldn't be able to stand this wonderful environment if I didn't have the chip landscape. Yes, you had said that to me when I visited you. This is... It, this would not have been possible except that I could hook up with the whole planet now. Yeah. It's okay that I'm I'm physically in in this remote place. Yeah, I remember. Oh, is that uh, Fre- um, Dumbla- uh, young blood? Um, I remember talking to somebody, and they were it's you know who was telling me that the average person in Maui, you know, for who've been here a long time, they go, "There's nothing to do here. I have to go to the beach again." <laughs> Yeah, sure. and, and I can understand that would be the feeling, you know, in the 60s, 70s, or 90s before the Internet. I have no sense of, be, of being limited to that activity. It's a great supplement, but the digital situation, like uh, for Carolyn, for her to do her bank, her consulting, her bank could not do the way she does PayPal or whatever it is, say, in 2000, 2003, and four and five. It was only the last couple of years that she can do... Uh, have the money whiz through and it go into account and be done digitally correctly. That's a very recent possibility right. that banks were just belated in bringing in. That's right. eBay bought PayPal, I think, about a year or so ago, and now there are sellers in China and Germany and all that use it. And, yeah, even like in 2006, if I had done an auction and it was a German person, I have to go to the bank and get all these SWIFT numbers and things and yeah. Give $35 and then check back the next day. Did it go through? Is the saying, it was horrible. And yeah. now, bang, it's just done instantly. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's what it is. Well, I don't want that. We're on it. Bob, I'll let you handle that. <laughs> the value judgment? You'll let me handle the value judgment? <laughs> yeah, because I'm going to say it's great. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Uh, in retrospect, I didn't know that much about it until we got here that we actually took, took advantage of what the technology was offering in 2000, 2008. As soon as it was offered, yeah. we ended up able to use it, though we weren't thinking it that way. But in retrospect, uh, we... It was beautiful. Yeah, the timing was perfect. But uh, why are we talking about this? What were we saying about... Uh, oh, yeah, you're saying to bring in starvation or food and that. that. Humans have put up with that for a long time, and they actually could do it differently. Uh, so, I understand, I guess, the perspective from someone living in a beautiful environment in a really nice place versus someone living in a very stressful, not-so-nice environment. And I'm saying, yeah, Bob, you'd still come out, Bob, but, uh, you know. That's, but they, but the, the point is that people in ghettos and all over the place have some electronic device. So they're, yeah. they're not, it's maybe not true in the 60s and 70s, but now they have ways to leave their immediate chemical body environment, regardless of its disgusting or poverty or whatever. That's true. And there's a richness of spirit, I guess, that could be attained through that. A what? Live by bread alone, but slogans also? Yeah, not slogans. uh, Man lives by stimulation alone. And food was a form of stimulation for centuries, but now there's other forms of stimulation. It's it's sensory uh, stimulus. That's what humans are. So you've got incredible amounts of sensory stimulus, multi-sensory stimulus. So that is why people look like they're dumbed down or they're distracted. I mean, just look at the viciousness of the body, you know, requiring stimulus and just watch in a crowd. They're all looking at their uh, texting. uh, We've never seen the veracity, the ruthless voraciousness of the senses until people have their little chip stuff to look at. Right, how engrossing it is. Yeah. 
and how they they go, swim in it and love it and fear it and engage it. And they, you've never seen it really. If if two people are talking, you don't know if the person you're talking to is listening to what you're saying really with full attention. But and that's never you never could see what their mind was doing. But if, if you now have extended your mind with the uh, the the chip stuff, and you can watch someone ignore you as they're interacting with you, you can actually see the movements of their inner mind that you never could see before. That would create a sense of alienation for a lot of people. Sure. Stop texting. Yeah. Look at me. Turn off your cell phones during the funeral service. <laughs> now, now. Uh, yeah, it's interesting whether uh, whether we've fried ourselves or not. We're still here. It's definitely a uh, a nostalgic uh, belief these days to think that uh, words uh, can be heard and as actually meaning things. Yeah. You know, you can have a face to face conversation with somebody these days, and uh, they will not even bother paraphrasing. It's uh, they'll just get some. Uh, emotional uh, response that sort of evoked something that's sort of semi-related to something and something <laughs> and, and there it goes yeah the what the fucking bullshit what oh. what was that about bullshit <laughs> now speak speak that I may see you I got a mouthful of food oh, <laughs> oh okay <laughs> That's multitasking, eh? T- speaking so and eating I, at the same time. I thought my microphone was off. I apologize. We're just referring to that. How how much are people listening? How much are people <laughs> divided? I'm just being a multitasking. Who who was that? Who is that? It's it's Jen. <laughs> Jen, you just showed up? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I just caught up on Twitter, and now I'm like, you know. Jen, can I read what you wrote your your critique of last week to see if it what Dave says to this? Can I read that? Sure. Yeah, she wrote me today, said um, uh, she says I just had a look at your exchange with Scott Taylor, the thing we sent out regarding proposed topics for tonight. Possibly the most on the mark mum yet. You mean what those comments could lead to? The kind of discussion you're saying is on the mark. Mm. Right. Then you say, uh, I like how you are articulating. I pretty much concur. Hopefully I can dial in tonight. The advantages to the talk with Dave Newfeld, as I see it, was inflaming and bringing out biases and limits and nostalgia in terms of the interlocutor's personal sensibilities. Now, Dave, would you agree with that? Uh, Like you and 8-Bit and me and everybody, the ones who talked, the sure. Cons- is that coming out that night? Absolutely. I, I, I would, I would, I would say that it, that's always coming out. You're comparing previous experiences to new ones. But the way the conversation we tried, we were talking about the form for the first half hour, an hour, and then it got into arguing over what was a good well, evening or not. Stuff, yeah. Yeah. And so, so what she's saying is um, that was an important clearing out task for moving on to the kind of dialogue that will be actually achieved tonight, which yeah. she's just joined, but we've been doing it. Uh, how are we doing? <laughs> well, I think I, I think uh, pretty good so far from what I can tell. But I'm, of course, I'm just looking at you know these instant um, twitters here. Um, but just just when I joined in there, it's 
started to go into, uh, again, with, with the question of nostalgia and the uh, disassociation, what I gather is disassociation of meaning from word and the idea that communication isn't really happening, um, it was starting to veer left again into, you know, particular personal biases about what that actually means rather than, okay, how is communication actually de facto happening now? Right. And the... It to even comment on this that we're doing what we're doing is a is a, a temporary pleasure, but it has no uh, significance like a panel would would have back in the fifties mm-hmm. uh, when McLuhan was around. Like this, this is hardly necessary what we're doing and does not lead uh, to any uh, mandate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is something that uh, those that show up enjoy doing. So. You can't even determine what's valuable mm. on any level now. Well, okay, so other, uh, I mean, for others, I guess for mm. others, you can do it for yourself, but not f- right. communication is social cohesion. The club scene is a nostalgia for social cohesion, and and uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Scott is criticizing that there's a no ground for it. Yeah, but the 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 cohesion of the uh, club. Uh, it's um, like Hakeem Bey's book, The Temporary Autonomous Zone. That ideology the anarchists grabbed and the raves used it, you know, in the 90s. It's, it's a temporary autonomous zone. And, that's, and if it's not authentic in relation to other media, that's not the point. It's something that can happen. Well, I just so wonder how you up, have... obviously have val- place of value in the fact that they showed up in that communication style. Yeah, that was what was really communicated. Right, right. I'm making an effort to connect. Mm-hmm. And then it's, but if you think of it as connect the chemical body, that's not what's going on. To connect all five bodies. That's right. what the, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why I wouldn't. the environment. Yeah, so that Scott is either from the astral body or chemical body's perspective saying this mixture of bodies is not authentic enough. And uh, I think it's a mistake to look for authenticness. Or to, to put one body over the others. But isn't that a value judgment that one would would qualify for themselves, not necessarily me looking at someone else saying, you are this or that, authentic or not. You would do that, like you said, individually. That's and when you write judgment. something, so when you write something like Scott did, it will naturally tend toward evoking a value because that's the nature of the visual medium. It'll evoke an individualist value. So, it, it, so if Scott wrote that article, he should say, these do not represent my opinions. The, the global perspective I'm looking for is evoked by the page. It's the page's uh, preference that is being expressed. Well, uh, in terms of um, word and meaning and communication, uh, the one thing that we tend to be comfortable with is solidification on a page, because then you can start picking it apart. There's exegesis that goes on in that respect. Um, What was indicated before about being face-to-face with another individual, and you can watch them ignoring you. Uh, And then also, but the notion that even if attention is given, that, and I'm not sure I fully understood it, but even if attention is given, that words may be coming out, things may be being said, but all that's happening is potentially an emotional reaction that's devoid of any actual teleology or or meaning whatsoever, right? So then you're getting into this whole um, issue of 
an almost nihilistic view of communication in toto. So that you've just expressed the page, the Goomberg memes attitude. Yeah, Not well, your attitude, yeah. the Goomberg meme. Yeah, yeah. So then, but but then, if you are working against that in a dialogue forum, do you see what I'm saying? So the 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 Gutenberg sensibility is informing what you're talking about. Right. For example, it, here tonight, yeah, right? It's the frame. Right, it's the framework. But then, you know, then if we're getting into this sort of, um, I don't know if it's a cry of despair or just a, an observation that, well, okay, well, nothing's actually happening out there anyway because we're so dissipated and we're, we're not paying attention and et cetera. So from what perspective are we supposed to be paying attention? Right. You, from you, what perspective are we supposed to be communicating? You, you're the perspective or, or you look at the medium you're using. <laughs> like, yeah, from what like, why Fibonacci? Why that word? Well, Fibonacci comes in at the beginning of visual space, uh, you know, 1,200 years ago. If that's accurate, approximately, the, the spiraling of value and hierarchy is a product of the printing press. So it's interesting he talks about Fibonacci. It's a very uh, esoteric and obscure meaning, and I don't know what he means, but I'm taking that word Fibonacci as referring to the visual perspective of a bird's eye view, you know, spiraling about. And that is what's speaking here. This is not Scott's point of view, unless he thinks he's it. This paper is, this article is paper's view of reality. Okay. So when, so when you watch a movie now, you only get the movie medium's uh, uh, description. So that, that might help, help you understand what, what my response is to it, what I wrote to him. Um, where is this? Uh, you see what I wrote uh, to him uh, at the end? I said, uh, what you describe, Scott, is the anamorphosis in the Android meme among its constituents. The Android meme is not actually talking to us. So I'm not, I could take the view that this is not Scott's view. This is what all, a, this is all that a paper can do. Whatever you call paper typing, this w limited words. Uh, black and white words. That's the point of view that a paper would have. They'd yearn for the global perspective. <laughs> That's universalism, which came in with the printing press. So this is, now let's have someone make a movie of last week's, uh, or a video, or YouTube of last week's uh, Neufeld thing. Um, that would be the limitation of, of a YouTube and how it could interpret what Dave said. Like a Buzz Coaston is a distortion of what goes on because a YouTube's what we discuss. And so that's the YouTube can, is limited by its medium to what perspective it can take. And it's the dialogue between the printed page and a, and a YouTube. All of that is part of the Android meme. That's what we're witnessing is parts of the Android meme talk to each other in their own bias of the medium they supposedly are simulating. So when you read a book, you're only getting the book's view, the, the, the way a book, the book medium, it's speaking. If the end of a meme is a machine's coming alive, then all the different media within its constituents are what you're talking to. So this is a natural, if Scott was real clever, he could claim that he, he uh, channeled what a newspaper would say about the club scene. Hmm. Waves propagate differently in different mediums. Yeah, waves. Um, 
I don't know why I would limit it to waves, but different media propagate differently. And so what the most complex act in Finning's Wake is it's actually different media talking about themselves. Now, if Joyce did not mean that, that's what McLuhan wanted to do. He wrote a Broadway play where the media would talk about their own biases and say what they would say in English, but it would represent the medium's view of reality, and he'd have them clashing or interacting. So how we interact and behave now is, and is always an effect of the propagation of whatever medium we yes. come in contact with. Right. So essentially, when now here's the question. So when we come into a forum like this, um, yes, I'm sure there are certain biases at work that will be dominant in one person versus another, but we're completely engaged in a multiple media clash then in terms of propagation and, and the effects thereof. Yeah, so McLuhan and Maui so far is the teleconferences medium's view of McLuhan. Mm, mm-hmm. Not our views, we're just the content. It's the medium, yep. the phone in and in your, all the shared space, that is what's talking here. Okay, so let's, let's, let's ask the terrible question that everyone wants to ask, which is, like, so what can be, what can be achieved in that kind of a context? What is there a quote-unquote point there's no point and no achievement is just the enjoyment of it of the of the environment (laughs) is there ever just pure enjoyment in that situation when you do have a clash of uh, multiple um, effects look at your phrase pure enjoyment that's bringing in a refined or literate sensibility and that includes manuscript sensibility before printing press there's no why have a pure what's it matter well, you mentioned enjoyment, so I just want to know what exactly is that. Uh, it's your it's your engagement. You, you wouldn't even Whatever say it is for you. Yeah, there are people right now who are listening who don't like what we're talking about or are bored by it, and there are others who are liking it. The goal is to stay stay here, and your vibrational wavelength will show up most likely. But don't well, be uptight if your wavelength ain't happening. What you're describing is almost the entirety of postmodern theory. Yeah. Well, postmodernism is the book's response to the postmodern electric fact. Right, but you're using that essentially to describe what's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty hard to deny it. But we're saying it. We're not writing books about it. Most of the postmodern stuff uh, was uh, people writing about what we just were talking. They were trying to talk about the media coming alive. And they wrote about it. And people thought, well, that's, that's what it is. But it was only the book version. Bojard and Leotard and Deleuze and Guattari are agents of bookishness. Mm-hmm. Not, not them themselves, but their product is only book. And so that's why, how do you, if you want to be totalistic and include all possible media to give the real huge overview, you, know, you would know that you could not just be shown in a movie or in a, on a TV talk show, or in a book, or in a conversation, or in a brothel, any environment. You would have to include all the environments to show what you actually are about. And, you know, for the record, that's what I do. Well, can we uh, pull back in and uh, get back onto this uh, discussing, uh, Scott? I'm sure we'll get back to all these issues that have been raised, just uh, give, providing a, a, a more of a context for participation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're up to the drive to contextualize the decontextual. Is this the paragraph we're up to now? 
I think so. Have you left, Dave? No, I'm still here, okay. but uh, my computer's not on uh, right in front of me. It's got the screensaver. Right, so are you leaving soon? <laughs> yes. Okay, let me know when you go, because then I could maybe call someone else and bring someone else in. Okay. So just stay on great, as long as you want. Great, great show, great show. Oh, you're going to leave now? No, but I'm just saying yeah. great show, great show. Yeah. yeah, this is a good supplement to what we did last week, which is what you wanted. Yeah, I wish, I wish Scott was... Uh, Available, but uh, still great. Yeah, Scott will be back every week and maybe later tonight. But the point is, we continue. We are not stopping at these. This is uh, we're stuck here. Yeah, yeah. We need we need Dave to just uh, for this next uh, paragraph because we're, we're talking about uh, David Byrne in here. I'm sure Dave. Okay, so you do this, Dave. All right, let me just take the screensaver off. All right. <coughs> Excuse me, I've been getting that cold for a week. All right, so. Uh, the drive to contextualize the decontextual, to re-socialize the de-socialized, generates the, quote, club scene and, quote, social media. Both expressions are double oxymorons. There is no longer a social scene in the traditional sense. It isn't a hierarchical hegemonic club or church or cult. Networking is dead, brackets. Remember McLuhan's axiom that abundance is the moment of obsolescence, brackets. It is all accident. People are simply being conditioned slash deconditioned flesh bags <laughs> and bug pieces for social drugs and plugs that don't mean anything anymore. Dash mass numbness, collective numbness, period. All times and all spaces digitally spliced together. People digitally slaughtered and sutured together. Ritual without content. Decortextualized right brain, nor is there coherent, integrated, integrating systemic media process or progress or procedure, just a universal injunction to, quote, stop making sense from the ascetic mandate of the 60s, quote, against interpretation, bracket Sontag et al., to the 80s, quote, stop making sense, brackets David Byrne, and so on. Ecstasy as in body to get out of body through synesthetic sensory smear, Multimedia now provides a digital sampling-scrambling of old cognitive context, a shredded happening hot glued into a monstrating but desynchronized now. The mind-brain-body ecstatic electronic confetti in an anti-analogical cross-reference chemical flurry slash hence the simultaneous is no longer the simultaneous it used to be. <laughs> That's a good line. Simultaneity ain't what it used to be. Yeah, these are great. Yeah, and I, I'm not going to be fooled by Scott. This is all that a piece of paper could write. This is the yeah, piece of paper's yeah. complaint. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it, also, it also hooks up with what you said about, well, essentially describing what happens when we come on here and its, its enjoyment, right? So in a sense, it is that notion of ritual without content. But it's, it's only a problem for the medium that requires content, print. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a new form of, um, what's that, uh, what do they call parables? What are those things called where the animals speak? What's that genre of literature? These epics. Oh, what? you mean like soft fables? Pixar? It's fables, but there is a technical term um, <laughs> for when, what's the literature called when animals? Not fables, no, no. It's sort of like fables, but there's another word. 
like personification or something like that? Yeah, anthropomorphic. But, you know, it was a common thing in medieval literature. They'd have... Uh, yeah, the animals would speak in different... The birds would Yeah, speak. Aesop's Fables. What's that called? Right. Uh, Aesop's Technically, it's a beast epic. A what? A what? A beast epic. No, it's a parables, but there's another yeah, word. That's, that's what Encyclopedia Britannica calls it. Beached what? Beast epic. Beast epic. Beast epic, okay. Um, anyways, the, the anthropomorphite having... Uh, hmm. Anyways, uh, I mean, it's a big theme. I keep thinking morality plays, but what... It's a technical term in English literature for that kind of story. Right. The tortoise and the hare was another example. Yeah. Teach a lesson. Yeah. And and, and, and that's right. What, you're right. What, were, what was, there was a To begin term. with, P? Lessons. I'm okay. I'm and up. Not morality. No, 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 no. Yeah. This is terrible. I should know this. <laughs> we all know it. It was standard standard term in high school. Yeah. That's right. In grade <laughs> four or five, or even they, when they it's something like the word parables. But if you know what I mean, mm. the updating of that is having machines talk and having uh, paper speak. Like that was a paper speaking. Right. As new biology. New yeah. Animals. New animals of whatever that genre is called. It's funny. Paradox. Mm-hmm. Okay, so anyway, that, that, the morality was much more book-oriented than back then in those fables, and very individualized. Would you say now it's a much more like it's more like uh, Scott Taylor? This guy's more like a flurry. <laughs> yeah, a, a smear. Well, I get the idea, I get the sense that um, like when you're talking about these uh, these uh, beast fables, let's call them, um, and how they were manufactured in the Middle Ages. I mean, it was very much influenced by Ovid, of course, and the metamorphoses. Uh-huh. Ovid or Ovid or whatever, and the, uh, the metamorphoses, um, where um, people and animals, etc., would be exchanging and shifting shapes, etc. And in explanation for many things, but particularly in the Middle Ages, it was used to express morality. Um, and so you have, you know, the white knight who appears in the tower to the woman who's trapped by her terrible husband as, you know, this, he would come in as an eagle and then transform into this lovely man and, and eventually she would escape with him, etc., right? Um, and there was always some dig at the end of it, which was a reversal of the apparent moral. The apparent moral was always like, well, we should not be, um, you know, uh, oppressing women, and we shouldn't be doing this and, and, and putting shackles on them in, in terrible towers. But, ooh, no, actually, the main thing is that she shouldn't be, you know, having extramarital relations with a white knight, even if he shows up as an eagle. Yeah, I got and, the word. I got the word allegory. Yeah, yeah. So, so right. what's, interesting, what's interesting is that there's almost a stop to the notion of metamorphism going on in what Scott's saying in this paragraph. That's right. Now, this is really key. McClune pointed out, you know, Joyce's Ulysses was him uh, replaying Homer, okay? Phineas Wake was Ovidian, or Ovid, in the Metamorphoses, and that's definitely an allegory. Phineas Wake updated the allegory by having machines talk. Mm. That, that proves what I'm trying to say. You know, the eyes demand, look at this, page 52 of Phineas Wake. Telephony kills, te- was it, telephony, television kills telephony and brothers broil. broil. The eyes demand their turn, let them be seen. And they get seen by book. So the eyes got seen with the, the medium of Finnegan's Wake. 
At least that's the eye's view of what's going on. This is our medium. We demand to be seen. So that kind of quote is allegorical. It's a, it's a statement by a particular medium. And I think now, a, further, a further technical term that could be used would be prosopopoeia, which is, uh, it is the idea of turning a thing into a person. Yeah. Um, so using a persona. I think apostrophe is also the same thing. Zappa has an album called Apostrophe. I think technically, I'll look it up, apostrophe is another variation of that. Have a thing talking. Let me just get this. But I think the Eskimo speaks. I don't think the uh, Husky speaks. Uh, In the case of Frank Zappa. Right, Fido. All humans. Here, Fido, here, they talk to Fido. Uh, but I think Fido does speak. No, uh, apostrophe oh, you might is... be right. Yeah, I think he says something, but I'm, uh, I'm just looking it up. It's in, it's a musical. I think it's in well, music. Well, it's also a rhetorical term in Greek, and it's turning one speech from one audience to another. So yeah. if apo is away, and strafine is, um, is the telling. Right, the... Um, no, that didn't work. Um... Say that again. So um, apostrophe in Greek is apo is away from. Um, yeah. So it's turning one speech away from one audience to another. So it's not really um, what you were indicating. Yeah, that's that's a manipian technique to address the audience or to step out of the action and address some other people. Well, specifically, it, it's, it's related to what you're saying. So it's most uh, um, apostrophe occurs when one addresses oneself to an abstraction to an yeah. inanimate object, or to the absent. So it's almost a reversal of what you're talking about with the idea of the, the object talking as a person. Yeah, I'm looking up um, down here, you know, list of uh, terms. It says apostrophe. There it is. Not to be confused with the punctuation mark. Apostrophe <laughs> is the act of address. Well, have you already looked this up? That's what you're reading? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, I'm looking on a, a rhetorical. Yeah, um, is the act of addressing some abstraction or personification that is not physically present. So John Donne says, "O oh, death, be not proud." King Lear says, "Ingratitude, thou marble-hearted fiend." Death, of course, is a phenomenon rather than a proud person. Okay, so that's am, am anthropomorphizing an abstraction, mm. which is not exactly. Um, uh, the fable, is it, or the uh, allegory? No, but what's, what's, what I think you're establishing here and what's kind of exciting about it is you're establishing this almost reciprocal um, kind of um, exchange between the uh, separated parts or extensions, let's say, that are manifested in various media, media, their ability to speak to us, so to speak, or their ability to take over and, and articulate, and then our ability to then converse with them, which is the apostrophe. Right. So, so the television uh, is addressing radio, and they're not physically present in our uh, terms? Well, you, well, the communication renders them present and renders them real and renders them as a personification. Right. So... Apostrophe may not apply here too much, maybe slightly in different ways the, in the allegory, the way uh, the machines speak. There might be an apostrophe done by the machines. So it's an allegory. That's, so we're talking allegory, and, and I think Don Thiel says somewhere that McLuhan is an allegorist, but I'm not sure. But it is a left-out part. 
that everybody assumed that when they read McClure and Understanding Media, they thought that was Marshall's point of view or his writing. Even they thought it was the guy who, um, who uh, uh, said, I don't have a point of view. They thought that was the writer. Look at Understanding Media as written by literacy itself. And it's literacy's categorization of all the other environments. That's the voice in Understanding Media. And when I did the archives, I found a note in the Understanding Media where he says, this book addresses speech as an archetypal environment. So how is speech archetypal? He had a four-level thing. He said, when a new environment is created, that's the last word, you know, the slang thing. This is the last word. This is it. So he says, when it's new, it's the last word. Then it becomes cliche. Then it becomes art form. And then it becomes archetype. So if a speech is archetypal, in the 20th century, you know, it's way back there. It's been subsumed and gone around by many environments. So as an archetype could mean that it's come alive to speak. Well, I, I'm just thinking here, um, because there's an idea that I'm not, I, I feel is in what you're saying and getting to, uh, that there's a kind of... Um, well, I think maybe there's a complaint in, in Scott's piece here. Uh, the idea that there's a distance between um, a perceived abstraction and this perceived um, integral person or a perceived yeah. reality. Um, and All real reality. Right. And this is where the problem lies in the fact that these uh, outlets, which formerly may have provided a kind of metamorphosis for that individual in order to converse with that abstraction, is no longer available. Something has shifted. Something has changed. Yeah. When he sent me the follow-up email, he, called, he addressed the, the title of the email to me was Void to Void. Mm. So he's looking at we're all – he does not assume literate structures – are happening, that there's individuals with private identities and, and birth certificates and things, that he knows we are voided. But he is, he is criticized, he, he has a problem with the fact we're voided. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd say he personally doesn't. He enjoys, he watches movies and has fun every day. But that's mm -hmm. why this is just an e the the printed version's mm -hmm. complaint. It's the printed version's mm -hmm. Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just wanted to ask with regard to that, um, as, I, as I'm just hearing you, um, possibly, now, there is, and I, I know you've been working with Andrew on the, um, what do you call it, uh, conscious mediumship, et cetera? Yeah, and yeah. There's, so, so this uh, subtext, uh, or it is perhaps now the context, I haven't listened lately, but um, where McClure's Catholicism and sense of anthropology that would have been uh, not necessarily showing up in his work, but, but there as a consequence of his involvement in a Catholic anthropology. Um, okay, let me, the let me just... I'm just saying that that might fill in uh, some kinds of um, potholes. <laughs> right. Now, just hold it. You said a good, good, good chunk of words that uh, requires a good response. Uh, first of all, I, uh, you know, Andrew, if you're still there, I should, we should have brought up allegory in talking about conscious mediumship. That's, what, that's the missing element of Because we talk about media being the conscious mediums in, in the global theater, in the Android meme. We, we, but I forgot about the allegorical point. So um, McLuhan's Catholicism, he does say 
that you can't have a Catholic church, a Catholic civilization, and nothing. Uh, you can't have a Catholic environment under electric conditions. That's his conclusion. You can't be a Catholic mm-hmm. under electric conditions because it's built on literacy, and you've got to be conditioned by that environment, and you've got to be able to massage, be brought up in it. So then what is, if, you're, if you personally read books and don't engage in electric media at this point, you personally could massage yourself with the, what I would call the after image of literacy because there's no environment to support what you are trying to do to yourself. So I think McLuhan was trying to figure out how to be a Catholic or whatever the Christian values were in this post-literate situation. So one of his gestures was, I'm going to reignite the book. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write a book that, that really does the book archetype and retrieves the book. And he, he pulled it off with Understanding Media and Gumer Galsi. He, he, he got reading going again. But well, it's, it's the notion of contraries cure contraries. Yeah, and they're not, but they're only after images. And I think that's why he was even indifferent to his books. As a Catholic, as someone trying to su- support the uh, literary effect, um, and remember, he says that he went into Catholicism to study the effects of prayer and to study the effects of the, ch- of the church. Well, he learned that, the li- that one of the effects of being a Christian is dealing with literacy and how it created, literacy created that soul. So um, I think he still wanted to be a Catholic and did, and, or then again, maybe not. I, 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 you can't say that he w- was, if you read The Electric, uh, the Light, that book, the, the ele- what is it? the light and the electric, the light and the medium or something, the medium and the light, mm-hmm. he, he actually criticizes every, every other Christian around the world who's not getting what it's about. And doesn't he say it's not about the words? If you, do you remember that part in uh, his interviews in that book? I don't it, remember it, that part specifically, but... We, we need to bring that in because he's criticizing Catholics and Christians from a very what uh, radical or silly... Mm-hmm. He's, being, he's saying, you people think that if you know the meaning of, of Christ's message, then you're doing it. He says, no, you're not doing it if you know what he means. That's not even getting near there. Mm-hmm. He was, it was a very interesting interpretation of the medium as a massage. And maybe I've got to look that up, and, and if we get a break, I'll go and get my book and try to find it. But it's pretty interesting. He's, he, is, he is like being like Jesus, being the first guy criticizing everybody, all the Pharisees and Sadducees and, and the establishment, and he is established. He is criticizing the whole function of what you think is being religious. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because I mean, in this in this uh, paragraph as well. I mean, you know, this this great sense of loss and uh, the notion of um, okay, even though it's not necessarily said as a as a positive a positive or strictly negative thing, but there's this idea of loss of hierarchy, loss loss of hegemony, loss of structure, loss of um, content, loss of this, loss of that, right? And numbness um, in our loss of the authentic. Right, exactly. And it's, it's interesting because uh, with this idea that you can do away, let's say, do away with the word, keep the faith, do away with the word, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then you have the ritual context. Um, it's interesting because if you look back on how um, the this, this sort of spiritual aspects of any, well, many religions, let's say. It's not necessarily about a void. It is about directly ESP-type communication, which is wordless, which is formless, which is um, without icon. An active living void. Well, in a sense, but that, you, that is in constant communication with something, 
Yeah. Something integral. May I interject at this point? Hi, guys. It's Richard. Hi. Okay, Bipple. Or do you not want to be known as Bipple anymore? No, Bipple, Richard, whatever. Okay, gotcha. Okay, um, all right. So I'm just going to sort of get in where I've heard you guys talking. And Bob, you were saying that Marshall said something along the lines that uh, the Catholics who think they're following the word um, think that they're being you know, uh, let's say doing their job, like that they're beyond reproach, that they're good Catholics because they can follow the word. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Um, and how, like, he was kind of like it's beyond that, and he was annoyed that um, his fellow uh, people weren't weren't seeing that. What it reminded me of is what I said to Douglas Copeland when he was here, and um, what it was was... Um, that when Marshall had his stroke, perhaps in a way, it was kind of like his exit off um, this his exit off the formality of uh, life as we know it on Earth in this dimension was kind of in um in a in a in a bardo between third and wherever else he was going, and that since he could only say boy oh boy oh boy or <laughs> Occasionally burst into song, or he happened to notice. Um, he happened to notice um, his his uh, longtime uh, assistant who came up with the do line. You had him on on the second mom. Yeah, George, George is here. Exactly. So it's like I said to Douglas Copeland. I said, "Would you maybe say that perhaps he kind of got maybe uh, a latent wish, and now he's actually existing in the wake as the wake." And the resonant after image, or I don't know how to put this part, but I said, with the way technology has advanced, he would probably be just as effective a communicator now if he had the ability to have the access to all the media, in effect kind of being one foot where he who can't be named is, and the other foot in his memory that everyone else never got in the first place, but now even formally so, because they'll all be like, oh, he had a stroke. You know what I mean? <laughs> to totally avoid the body language that they understand, like the two little kids talking to each other. But uh, Yeah, he faked his... You're saying the radical notion he faked his aphasia. <laughs> I'm not saying he faked it. I just say he kind of like... Uh, he acknowledged he, it was it was him going into the void, yeah. uh, the, the male, the male, side. and for all we know, he's on the other side <laughs> or back. It's it, it's beyond um, you know beyond point of view of even the notion that you could even say that you couldn't have a point of view within electric conditions because it's kind of like the circadian version of electric conditions. Circadian. Yeah, like the you know when you like I, I've been thinking about circadian and Android meme like when I when the seasons change and I hear the the crickets in the creek and stuff is that like is that like you know getting the bad Wi-Fi signal at Starbucks for computers you know like I, I just kind of try and draw arbitrary. No, it's interesting you use the word circadian. He does use that word in cultures of business. I don't know if anywhere else he just suddenly talks about it's circadian as if one would know what circadian referred to. Uh, you know, see, we're, keep keep thinking about it. Say, say some more about circadian. Well, as far as I know, circadian, it's just kind of like uh, nature's infrastructure, as as far as we can observe on our own without any enhancement of technology or um, 
or stuff like or, or anything you know just like with our ears and our eyes well yeah it's just like our tactile tactile observation of the on, on, that we find ourselves in on the planet in its most uh you know primitive yet never going out of style way you still drive a car you still might see a deer you still have to avoid the other uh, first nature phenomena are, uh, you know, like the, the phenomes and the words that make up the morphomes that make up our existence on this planet. I'm constantly going to be going on parallel tropes. As a yeah, yeah, I, you're I, making I, inventory. You don't need to make a very long inventory. Okay, well, I, I, I obviously, as we get towards I'm going to go but come back, but I just want to say my new term for metaphor is parallel trope. Okay, paratrope. <laughs> yeah. Paratrope. Okay, well... I don't mean to jump in and out, but I haven't even punched in yet at work, so I'll, I'll call you guys back in an hour. Okay, we'll be here. Okay, all right. Okay. Well, I'm gonna, i got to check out now, too. But I've okay. loved being on the show, and I think it's, an, it's, it's been great, and I uh, appreciate everyone that's has come on. It's awesome. Well, we're always here every week, so come back in any time. Yeah, and I'll listen on the archives to the rest of the show. It's yeah. great. Okay, all right, thanks. everyone. Thanks. Okay, bye, Dave. Bye-bye. Okay, I got my copy of the medium in the light, and uh, and or somebody carry on. I'm going to try find the part I want to refer to. So, Jen, do you have something to say or to something? <laughs> Just something, anything. How about a dance? Yeah, yeah, say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I did have things that I was thinking about while he was talking, but um, I don't want to just babble into, you know. No, no, babble. The void. <laughs> no, you know, we babbling can work sometimes. True. I just have to, I had to, well, I had to run and get something while everyone was talking, so I think. Mm. Oh, just, a, just as a sort of footnote to what, um, to what uh, Richard just told the thing, um, it's kind of funny that uh, Copeland, after you know, after he wrote um, the uh, the biography and then Generation A, he also um, did a series of five Massey lectures, and it was produced as a novel called Player One: What is Be- What is to Become of Us? So it's a novel in five hours. And uh, anyway, so he at the end he gives. Uh, a little compendi or a little what do you call it? Oh, what do you call those things? A summary at the end uh, that's called Future Legend, and what it is is an index of words and phrases that he uses some within the book uh, and others that describe what he's previously experimented with in literature, etc. But one yeah. of the funny ones uh, that relates to the um, his retelling of um, McLuhan's psychic and, and physiological um, makeup and, and imbricating that in the whole uh, story of his life and his, his output uh, in a biography, he calls it um, a sorry, <laughs> pathologography, a new strain of biographical writing that acknowledges the importance of performing forensic analysis of the subject's physical and mental states. Biology is not destiny, but it can certainly open and close a few doors. Isn't and that's that all you can it, it, no no biology is the the plea of print it, print speaks mm. biology mm. see we got to start saying that I'm not writing this I'm writing this essay to show what print would say about what it's looking at what other other media that's the content of meaning mm. you see that this is the way to write mm. 
It's not mm. you. You put on the dynamics and, and include the effects that you know that that medium creates. So when you went on television, you'd act like television. When yeah, you wrote an essay. Mm, mm, well, it's interesting, this sort of mythologizing of the, it's almost becoming a, a <laughs> where the cult is going, if you will, uh, with this uh, mythologizing of the, of the aphasia that McLuhan had after the stroke. It's, it's quite remarkable. Well, what's, it's remarkable in the sense that uh, uh, Scott Taylor has been writing about a long time, the social aphasia. Mm. And, uh, and so Copeland needlessly makes it a biological thing. When it's mm. already happening where people go around saying whatever or that kind of response, mm. McLuhan wrote in the late 60s that language was fading out. Mm. We, have, we have people not able to read, write, and speak anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's not a problem in mm -hmm. all environments. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's I think a, there's a distinction to be made as well, and maybe this is a, an issue that needs to be gotten into at some point, but the idea of there being a choice uh, whether or not you, you speak within a certain uh, forum or not, or whether you engage communicatively in a certain forum or not, versus an actual physical, mental, whatever, structural, mechanical inability um, versus being made that way by the prevailing forces of an environment. Yeah. Like, it's, it's obvious, but, I mean, how is that being managed? And does it need to be managed? And that's the kind of thing that's the complaint in, in some of Scott, Scott Taylor's um, recent work here. You, um, in, a, in older societies, you had to speak. You don't have to speak in today's society to be a good functioning member. Mm-hmm. That's, that's probably what, on a simple level, what he means is no social space. There's no common space that everybody has to show that they're human in. You know, mm -hmm. you, you can go to, you go to Wall Street, you get on your, on your computer and your terminal, and you just do that all day. You might talk to people on the phone, but you don't have to talk to who you're talking to. And that, that probably started to happen 150 years ago with, uh, with industry, and that was uh, profoundly alienated to uh, those that loved talking or romanticized it. Mm. I, I may have gotten, let's just see if this is it. I'm not sure. He says, um, uh, the guy Babham, Pierre Babham, but if I push your idea to its limits, applying it to the church itself, one can conclude that it isn't worth spending a lot of time working on the message. And McLuhan says, isn't the real message of the church in the secondary or side effects of the incarnation? That is to say, in Christ's penetration into all of human existence. Then the question is, where are you in relation to this reality? Most people prefer to avoid the question by sidestepping it. The message is there, but they want no part of it. So they eliminate it by plugging into another channel. They hypnotize themselves with the figure so as to better ignore the ground. They prefer to study the words rather than the questions that Christ asks everywhere and of every human being. That's a great statement. Absolutely. They prefer to study the words of the Bible. <laughs> rather than the questions. <laughs> that is, tell that to your sister, uh, Tita. What? She reads, she reads the words every day. Now, let me just continue this. This is the part I remembered and I wanted to find. He says, I think that Gestalt's figure-ground dichotomy presents us with a useful way of speaking and understanding. The cognitive agent, to speak like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, is on the level of the efficient cause, not on the formal cause not on the level of formal cause. 
He concerns, uh, who's he? Um, he concerns himself with the con. I think he's talking about the general Christian. He concerns, the con, I don't know, he concerns himself with the content of Christianity, content in quotes, mm-hmm. not with its true message, which consists of being plugged into a person. It means mm-hmm. plugging into Jesus. Generally, when you teach the content of the faith, you seldom go beyond its efficient cause. Now, you've never heard anybody talk about religion like this. The formal cause is your manner of being and all the baggage that accompanies your message. As a result, to teach catechism as a given or as content is to limit oneself to only half of Christianity. The formal cause, the ground that is perceived unconsciously, is not words, but that part of the faith which operates in our lives. The two should be united. In Jesus Christ, there's no distance or separation between the medium and the message. It is the one case where we can say that the medium and the message are fully one and the same. The light. <laughs> the what? The light. <laughs> the L-I-G-H-T-S? Yeah, L-I-G-H-T, yeah. I mean, okay, the light. The but look, look, he's going back. He's actually the saying... The post or something. Yeah. What'd you say, Tina? Be the light of your lab post. Be right. The light with well, not that, it, it, not the metaphors. Like what I was, when I was saying earlier, that he retrieved a cliche spa, spa, uh, a criticism. He's telling people you read and study the word, but you're not Christians, and he's demanding action in their body. Which the cliche Protestant thing is, you know, do charitable things, heal people, mm. or whatever. That that um, cliche. He's pointing towards that, but it's not limited to that. Because then he says, after saying that the medium is the message in Jesus Christ, he says, let me give you another example. Look at the following photograph. So he shows uh, Babin the photograph, and you see a picture of it. It is a well-known reproduction from a Chinese photographer. At a time when he was struggling with some religious questions, this man photographed a landscape of melting snow in a cemetery with the black earth appearing here and there. When he developed a negative, he was stupefied to notice the face of Christ, and he converted to Christianity on the spot. (laughs) And, and, and so Babin says, I'm looking at the photograph, and I must admit that I see nothing of the sort. McClellan says, I believe that you have looked at the background as though it were the figure, and, and as a result, you saw nothing. So it is with most people when they study a medium. They focus on a medium's program. They grasp only its content. But the vehicle, the entire array of services necessary just to have a program, that's the oil companies and gas stations, all of that escapes them. The Oriental, the man from the third world, is better prepared than we to use the proper approach. Think of traditional Chinese painting, which seems to be made up of voids, intervals, and blank spaces, and which for us may have no discernible meaning. So then Babman says, this Chinese photographer has thus seen Jesus in his totality as medium and message, and he was transformed because it suddenly struck him, spoke to him from within. And McLuhan says, that is exactly what I wanted you to notice. To say that the Word became flesh in Jesus Christ is a theological affirmation. To say that the Word became flesh in Jesus Christ is the theological affirmation. It's the figure in the Gestalt sense. But to say that Christ touches all men, beggars, hobos, misfits, is to speak of ground. That is to say, of the multitude of secondary effects which we have such great difficulty in perceiving. Mm-hmm. In fact, it is only at the level of a lived, lived Christianity that the medium really is the message. It is only at that level that figure and ground meet, and that also applies to the Bible. We often speak of the content of Scripture, all while thinking that this content is the message. It is nothing of the sort. The content is everybody who reads the Bible. So in reading it, some people hear it and others don't, here in quotes. 
All are users of the word of God. All are its content, but only a small number of them discern its true message. The words are not the message. The message is the effect on us, and that is conversion. In other words, if you read the Bible, how do you read it? Does it pass into your daily life? Often then do you get the message that, only then do you get the message that is the effect. Only in that moment do medium and message unite. Now, isn't that pretty neat? Well, yeah. I mean, he's, what he's describing in all of that is um, the idea of being in and inhabiting and being the mystery landscape. Right. So he, so he created this whole elaborate academic exercise, book writing thing to bug people intellectually and replay the cliche, hey, you people aren't thinking of everybody. You're not, you're not in touch with the ground. You're, you're judging people. You're, you're, you think people are misfits. He's, you know that cliche thing, hey, aren't we all one? Can't we get along? <laughs> he, he went through this elaborate exercise to find the most esoteric, fitting and ease kind of topics to just prompt someone to try to be a better person in, a, in a, some kind of comprehensive way in their actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to borrow Scott Taylor's uh, words from the paragraph before when we were discussing laterally, um, he says, and I'm going to cut out some of the stuff, but it says, identity is absolutely airsoft, right? So um, the idea of identity formed on following the word, the identity formed on this kind of notion of what it means to be Christian is an airsoft thi- or whatever thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, ersatz identity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Ersatz so Christianity. Right, and so now you can apply that same um, paradigm to what, like Scott does. He says he actually talks about identity being ersatz in context of Facebook. Right so now, you can he then applying that dynamic to just about any of these things. A Christian does not find anybody ersatz the way McCombs talking about it. You know, the old thing, hobos, misfits, idiots are, are in, the, in the message too. The modern form of that is to go to a club and think everybody's an idiot or a misfit. Mm-hmm. When it's really about, essentially, it's really about an eschatological or a, a I don't know, a mystery body. It's really about a, a Mary Poppins attitude. Everybody's great. <laughs> <laughs> No you homeless? Sure. Come on over. Stay at my place. No problem. <laughs> well, it's the idea of, of societal, societally demarcated identity. Everybody's great. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the, the medium is the language that you get fooled into believing its meanings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they've got new media creating new meanings that, that fragment your, uh, <clears throat> your, that make you forget that we're all one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now that's pretty hard to live for most people, isn't it? And it, hmm, uh, yeah. And I mean, now what about this issue here? I don't know if you covered it before I came on, but um, the idea of human rights being obsolete um, as it pertains to these uh, people. <laughs> yeah. No. Here's here's an example. McClellan addressed that in a Warm Peace in the Global Village. He talks about. Um, where are your rights when you're forced to use electric lighting? Do you have the power or the, um, the ability to turn off that environment? He was saying that intellectual rights for expression of opinion or writing things was puny compared, about, compared to the right of whether to have electricity in your world or not. I agree. Mm-hmm. 
So human rights as a, as a product of literary thinking, it does not deal with the uh, human rights of what clothing or environments you get to wear. They never have a vote on whether we should have the latest Steve Jobs technology. That's right. Now, is it simply because it's become part of the machinery of the what might be called the demo capitalist enterprise? Well, that it's trying to figure out what is the, that limitation. Why it happens is uh, laid out in one of McLuhan's fifties essays and explorations. I always uh, like to use this. He says, he doesn't say what the, he's, it could be evil. I, I don't think he says what, but the problem he says, he says it can be explained as cultural norm functioning, collective phobia, or national myth-making, or individual sensation. And he kind of doesn't say what he's referring to, but he's talking about people looking around and, and, and trying to f- explain why ignorance is around, why discomfort is around, why there's disease. Is it... Is it collective, is there's a, a desire in humans to have cultural norm functioning? That's from sociology. Collective phobia, you know, just afraid they won't survive and need food or something and mm-hmm. huddle in groups. Is it national myth-making? Is there always been nations even before the printing press? It's just a, a group identity. Or is it just raw individual sensation, which I think is the theme in uh, Aldous Huxley's book, The Island, which was about a utopia, and it got screwed up because the new prince who took over was a pervert. It just didn't, didn't, it was a unique individual who had different sensory uh, requirements that didn't match with the ethos of the, of the utopic island. That's what I think of when they said, is it just individual sensation? When you make a new baby, that baby may be voracious in some weird, strange way and gets in the position in society to dominate and then brings their lifestyle into it. You know, so what is the thing that causes the uh, disruption? Mm. That's what I thought you were asking. Mm. You, you said, what is whatever you said? Uh, mm-hmm. you, you yeah, know, what's causing yeah. it? Yeah, why don't we vote on, on Steve Jobs' thing? Steve Jobs' latest invention. Why, how come no one thinks of voting for that? Is it because we're too fragmented by individual fetishes and obsessions? McLuhan said that Bucky Fuller's vision could not be applied because there are too many obsessions and fetishes in people. It's the way they are. That would be out of the category of, of individual sensation divides people. Or is it people need a national tribal image? Or is it cultural norm functioning, whatever that is in sociology? Or is it um, national mythmaking? What is it? We, we want to have the latest technology, so we allow the latest to come in. <laughs> so we're looking for causes or explanations. In a world where we're like Eskimos, we don't ask why anymore, and we don't need to know why to function. Uh-huh. Uh, isn't Scott's kind of point, though, I mean, in, in his uh, book, <laughs> in his book um, persona, is, isn't uh, his complaint that we're not functioning? I mean, isn't that really the idea behind all this, that, uh, well, it's, we're failing. Well, he's taking the journalistic approach that there's a problem going right. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Marshall does say, in what I read you, that there's a problem. People are, are too involved in the words of Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I guess that's the cliche thing. You know, you hear people, I remember people saying, well, I don't go to church. Those people just go and hear fancy words. They're not Christians. They don't act any better. You know, it's that, that simple of a knee-jerk response to 
criticizing the church, is, it sounds a bit like what McClure was doing. Mm. In a very complex way, saying, oh, these people just go to church and hear fancy words. They're into mm. the content. Mm. They're not out here on the strike line with me in a, as we try to shut down the local Ford plant. <laughs> it's, it's, it's along the lines of the duping and doping complex, right? Like duping so, and doping? Yeah, that's, that's my good. little thing for, for right now. <laughs> that's, that's good, duping and doping. Um, Why don't you put all the, the all via, A-E-I-O-U? Yeah, you know? yeah, well, that's basically what I got from, from Scott's thing when I read it earlier today. I was like, hmm, duping and doping. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, this, this drunkenness with the word and the idea that, um, you know, it's, it's a numbing and a dumbing. Right. Um, where as long as you're in the groove, you're in the groove and that's fine. And so that that, in essence, is a law that can be applied to just about everything. You know, if, yeah, it's, it's, it's a vast generalization, because could you stop eating? Could you do something drastic? Would you want to? And are you duped and doped by food? Mm. Remember, that's food is the first one of the first inventions, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. first media. Mm-hmm. That is a tough question because, I mean, biologically, I mean, well, all right, if you, if you just look at living organisms on the planet, there is a consumption factor. Yeah, we a, eat each a, other. We, everything eats something. Yeah, yeah. It, it, even, you know, even elements have half-lives and stuff like this or compounds or whatever, right? Yeah. So there's an idea of consumption embedded in, in the whole thing. So I don't know that you could say, well, okay, uh, mm, uh, what am I trying to say there? I don't know if you could hive that off and still be successful as an organism. <laughs> yeah, uh, not be eating, you're saying, not right. consuming. Right. I mean, you might be able to make that intellectual choice, and certainly many people have, and, and have you know, gone on hunger strikes, whatever. Yeah, that, that, that's where McClellan would point out the hypocrisy. Someone would declare, you know, I don't watch TV, and uh, they think they're in a superior position and don't notice that they're affected by society using TV all around them, and they actually might even have a job in, in some of the services around TV. They, he, he's pointing out that people are being hypocritical or not seeing their words are not appropriate to what they think they mean. Mm-hmm. They're not as comprehensive. Well, right, and on the subject of, of this consumption and, and, uh, in that sense, uh, there is, like, right down to the policymakers in Europe, like in Brussels, what I saw last year, I mean, they're using words like knowledge users and knowledge producers with this idea that, well, if, if a certain technology has not penetrated a certain community, like, directly, then it's having absolutely no impact. Well, wait, the, the technology has to penetrate to have impact. Oh, yeah. They really, be, they really believe that, say, for example, a, a tribal village in Africa is not affected by literacy. Right. They believe that, and that's, the, mm. that's McLuhan's, uh, he criticized that position. He, de- he does say three people having television in, in Toronto is not an environment, but when the majority of people have, have television, let's say 80, 60%, that's an environment, and that affects all 100%. So sure. to say that you have to have something and engage with it is looking at the figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That the tribe, to say the tribe uh, doesn't have, um, now what, what, you probably could be isolated and have no need for uh, United Nations aid or anything, you know, you just have your own little village and you're living and functioning. That, uh, but how do we know 
that the mimic part of humans, the part that picks up like the hunter's monkey effect, which is a theory, but it could be true. How do we know, since some people say every human being is connected to every other human being, that the Africans aren't responding to the thoughts that those in Europe have because the humans are connected? Well, I mean, it's, it's obvious that they already have anyway because it, it's the direct confrontation with European book culture that has produced modern-day Africa Right. in all respects. So, so for where, what caused this crazy notion that the African village is not being affected by media because they don't have any media in their particular environment? It, it, was that caused by these Belgian committee members' individual cessation, their tribal mismaking, their, their cultural norm functioning, or their national mismaking? <laughs> well, all of it. I mean, we yeah, all of it. An EU commission. <laughs> yeah, all of it. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, and that, and, that's, and that was startling. And then when they're and putting it in terms of this consumption dynamic, users, knowledge users and knowledge producers, and thinking that they, you know, there's a way to sort of massage um, either end in a sort of supply scale economics. It's, it's yeah, like, what you mean is that they're using knowledge not for the literary goal of a, a glorified poise or detached position of a great bird's eye view where you see it all, right? They don't want knowledge, which is like the big... <laughs> what? We're talking R and D, like research, research and development. Yeah, yeah, and in, in industry applications and uh, getting away from redundancy of what they call "quote unquote" knowledge production. Right, and and it's like the word knowledge has a sacred meaning for some people, and you find it vulgar to talk about knowledge being uh, like a Kmart product or a, uh, a McDonald's product. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, no, not really. I'm not attached to it like that. What I, what I mean is like linking it back to what you were saying about do we eat or do we not eat? Is it uh, an intellectual question or is it uh, merely something that we, we must do on, on some basis and then does it matter what we then consume? Right. When you said uh, to take, uh, use all of those four or five factors of causes, uh, you said it's, they're all involved. McLuhan would say a literate person would not perceive them all involved. He'd take it apart and find a linear sequence and say which one was primary and the others weren't. Whereas a tribal person, he says, lives and believes that everything is connected to everything. Mm -hmm. So when you say it's all involved, that's a tribal, retrieve tribal awareness that everything is connected to everything. Mm, which I have, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm drowning in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so to, that's the way you live today, and it's very hard to make a point of view like Scott's article. I don't even think I don't think Scott, if he was on here, he would even say that he was judging it or something. He probably mm-hmm. he probably would say that uh, that um, he didn't mean it the way we're taking it. Mm. But I would say on the surface, without him influencing us, it does appear he has a judgment there uh, from a visual perspective. Mm. Matter of fact, my complex thing after that was I made a very Air, um, esoteric statement I said uh, the next day I said I'm thinking today Scott that your concern about analogia or tactile proportionality being fragmented by digitality all right so the digital world upsets McLuhan's uh, tactile ecology and I say it's actually a prayer for matching meaning visual bias while mm-hmm. kneeling on a cautious nod to the Buddhist manuscript generated void now I know it's not so obvious in this thing but he, he celebrates the, um, uh, what do you call it, the unreal imagination, whatever that phrase was, because he's got four kinds of imagination in his system. 
No, no, he has it in the article. Unreal, unreal yeah. imagination. Because oh. he has four different kinds of imagination in his system. And the Buddhist one is the unreal imagination, if I've got it right. Whatever the one is in Eric. But so he says... Um, uh, uh, yeah, unreal imagination. Right, that's the Buddhist one. That's a value point for him. And uh, so I say... Um, uh, I call it, He nods, a cautious nod, to the Buddhist manuscript-generated void. It's, it's a concept of void that the manuscript culture of Buddhism uh, created, so, you know, visual space early visual space. So he kneels on that for support while praying um, for uh, uh, retrieval tactile proportionality. And that's why in his essay, or his comments, he does say, one sentence is right there, um, he says, I live prayer. No, maybe that was an email. Yeah, there it is, oh, one line. Yes, my whole life is a prayer. Mm-hmm. And prayer is not verbal or kneeling. Prayer is meditation on the on the media you're using i think that's what he means by that it's a comprehensive prayer mm. whether to whether to eat no, i wonder, i gotta wonder if he applies um the notion that um prayer is talking to god and a buddhist um definition of meditation is god talking to you well i, I wouldn't we'd have to ask him that yeah what about Oh, sorry, just, um, is it Tina? Yes. Yeah, um, just what you were saying there. I'm just wondering if this sentence relates to what you're getting at when he says, um, simply the unreal imagination allows creation, this knowledge, in order to gainsay experience of all real reality that is the all, that is the all real reality transvoid through above and beyond the void. Good Lord. That's a very literary, stupid statement, you I'm know. I'm not sure you understand. <laughs> no, it has a literary context you've got to match with. You've got to know what All Real Reality, capital letters, is referring to. I was just wondering if it was something along the lines of what Tina was, was bringing up, this, this idea that, so, so you were saying that prayer, you, uh, in the first instance, you're contrasting it with a Christian image where you're, like, talking to God. And then a Buddhist one where God is talking to you? Right. Okay. Called meditation. Right. Okay. Oh, right. Because so you're, you're letting... Meditation, letting... I guess, is being quiet and hearing God talk to you, whereas prayer is you, you know, talking to God. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's... So that's where I'm getting this idea of the notion of a... Now, this is Scott's lingo, so I don't know if I'm misappropriating it, but the idea of, like, a, the transvoid... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Through he a, talks about transdisciplinary. He used the word trans. Yeah, right. Uh, where were we going with this? Well, um, I want to go back to what I then said to him. I'm saying that he's looking for a matching. Mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. you see, my comments are between the two essays on on the website. His two long things. Yeah, um, I'm looking. Uh, it's actually a prayer for. Ma- he's asking. He's praying for matching, for some some perspective and community. Then I said, the above statement that I make, the one I just read, reminds me of McLuhan's later discovery that Lewis's stated eye bias was actually a confused plea for the tactile eye. McLuhan later in his life says, geez, all that time Lewis was celebrating the eye, which you would think was visual space, McLuhan says he actually meant tactility, but he didn't know it. 
So mm-hmm. I call that the tactile eye. So, so all this ranting on about the eye versus the ear that Lewis made was a confused plea for the tactile eye. That's what mm-hmm. McLuhan recognizes, though Lewis may not have recognized it. It's what McLuhan thinks he sees as the hidden ground of Lewis, and Lewis didn't know it. And mm-hmm. uh, like he was misnaming the tactility point as eye or visual. Then I say that Scott is doing the reverse. Mm. He's <laughs> making a plea for collective matching uh, from a, a tactile bias. So right. he he has he's not an eye bias; he has a tactile bias. But he's groping for matching. Mm, mm. Whereas well, Lewis know, was eye groping for tactility and didn't know it. Well, I came across a word today um, in in Latin, and it's in a proto literary context, if you will, um, in a culture that was um, trans was on the move towards literacy. And the word um, is um, recipisco, which um, means to return to the senses. But what it's built on is re, the prefix, um, so to turn back. And then also um, the word um, sapio, which is to smell or to taste. And it's also um, related to the word sapiens, Right where we get Homo sapiens, yeah. uh, meaning you know wisdom. So there's this idea embedded in this word that um, you're dealing with taste and smell, and that will restore you to a kind of uh, understanding. A of a who says this? Is this an ideology of somebody's? Oh no, it's no ideology. It was just it was uh, well, it's not that important. It's you know no no. What is it? What uh, who's saying? <laughs> Well, 5th century St. Patrick in Ireland, you know. Okay, so he said that. He's, well, he's exhorting um, these individuals who have turned away from their Christianity and they, they've slaughtered a bunch of people, and he's saying, hey, uh, return to your senses. And those, and that, and those, those are um, the smell, a more comprehensive sensory life? Well, and what I'm, what I'm saying is the, the word he uses, the word he chooses, is related to this notion, obviously embedded in the Latin, which is that wisdom is related to a multisensory um, involvement, but uh, particularly concentrated on taste and smell. Oh, okay, yeah, which we call the osmic sense, not the cosmic sense, the osmic sense. That's what mm-hmm. McLuhan calls it in one of his books. Uh, so, <laughs> what? Yeah, <there> <laughs> What'd you say? Leading? Eating. 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 Um, Eating. Yeah. So, so the uh, uh, it's interesting. He, St. Patrick inaugurated, McLuhan would say, a visual approach to religion, but the actual content of St. Patrick, resonant with his day, because it wasn't literate yet, uh, was a multi-sensory. He, so he says these people went, where did they go when they left their senses? Did he say they go into one particular kind of sense? Uh, well, if you, uh, I don't know what sense it would be, the uh, bloodlust <laughs> sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> whatever killing and maiming and stealing and, and hoarding, whatever. And he thought taste and smell was a metaphor of, retreat, of relaxing and getting along again. Well, now my point isn't that he was conscious necessarily of that specific notion embedded in there, but that the, the linguistically the notion is embedded in there. Right, and, and that's an example of literacy, finding uh, these written down meanings and projecting it back to a practical union problem that St. Patrick had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, 
Yeah, and just my point in general is that, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about tactility, we talk about um, the audio, we talk about the visual. Rarely we talk about the other ones, but I think it's interesting yeah. that in the in Latin, in the Latin language, in this context where you have a very specific kind of word, like returning to your senses, it's related to taste and smell rather than tactile or yeah, that for for that level of sensory mix in the Irish culture out in Ireland, that was the that was the plenary sense, the sense of mastery, the sense of knowing was eating, or the the the, the they knew by eating that was such a key medium that to survive on. It, it's the bias of their culture. Mm. It's not and you're not saying that negatively, it's a bias, but they, it's a culture that doesn't have uh, visual space fragmentation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's very intimate. Return to your intimacy, to, mm. to your eating sense. Mm. Now, that could be a difficult exhortation in a cannibalistic society. It's a survival mechanism because you have to eat to be alive kind of thing. So returning to your senses would be returning to your, the base your basic hmm. survival mechanism of eating. Right. It's, uh, that means they probably weren't uh, killing these people for survival reasons. They were just uh, extra extracurricular activity. Unless they <laughs> were doing it for survival reasons. They, they stole the people's food. Hmm. Or their but, land or their, their yeah. sheep or whatever. Right. It doesn't sound like that's the meaning. It no, no. sounds like they had gotten... You know, you can look back in, in media history and you see that to become enthralled in one emotion is what McClellan means, hypnotized by an extension. Yeah, thrall, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Enthralled or obsessed with one behavior. That's a specialist direction. Mm-hmm. And these people were specialists, were specializing in one bloodlust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do we have anybody else here? No, it sounds like everybody's dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here, Bob. I'm here, Bob. I'm okay, here. that was Carol. Carol, Carol missed yeah. us last week, right, Carol? No, I've been um, uh, sitting in for like an hour at a time, but not the whole show. Right, and who, who is the other guy? Is that Hugh? Yeah, i got to go, actually. Okay, well, thank, well you want to make a parting remark? I had all my re- remarks at the beginning. I can't remember them all. <laughs> well, what do you so think long. now? That means none of what we're saying evoked any sub-vocalization in you. Um, I I think we didn't get to the end of the article, did we? No, no. Nope. But it's uh, we will yeah. do it again when Scott comes back to defend himself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How very literate of you, Bob. Yes, yes, that's right. How linear. <laughs> yeah, it should be Scott who. Scott. <laughs> well, the cult of Scott. Yeah, well, listen, this is awful, but I have to go as well. So thanks. Uh, I learned something tonight. Can you say what it is? Um, I, I think I'll be able to say what it is in a day or two. Okay, good. You know, I think I, I, think I had some, you know, some things uh, confronted, so that was good. So you, you, you listen more than when you started speaking. Um, yeah, I was listening in for a bit, yeah. Okay, so so if you go and Hugh goes, and that's just me and Tina, and, and and probably Brian is lurking. I do have a comment, Bob. Is this Hugh? Yes. Okay. When you were talking about questions earlier 
um, I was reminded when we use these different technologies, I, I've told Bob that I would do machinery analysis and we'd use thermography and vibration analysis and ultrasonic so you can literally hear what you can't hear, feel what you can't feel, see what you can't see. And um, regarding questions, you would, when you're trying to figure out what's going on with the machine you suspect, you ask questions and you figure out what technology to use to answer those questions. So I, I just throw that out there. That's a good. That's a good statement in verbal form capsule. That yeah, if Scott uh, had uh, the the printed page uh, answer his questions about the experience on Mum last week. He, he 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 took another technology to respond. Is that what you're saying? I think so. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm saying you have some. Awareness. To use another technology is to evoke a question. You form. You form the questions first, and this is uh, regarding juggling the bodies. And then right. No. No. It, it, to use a different technology is to raise a question for yourself, because it'll change you differently than what you're used to. So, and that's a question. That's right. Technologies evoke questions. New questions. And you're saying that's how you guys could probe? Yes. Yeah, that that was one of the things we had to do. And um, when the technologies first came out, people just thought it was great to use them all the time and forget that you have to form good questions and, you know, have a reason for using the technology. So I'm talking more on a micro level than, than right. you're talking. But, uh but you forgot about the question part, and people would run around like, you know, this is great. They're running around with the earphones on, and the thermo <laughs> kind of like, like the ghost hunters. Yeah. The ghost hunters are implementing technologies with no questions. It's just, let's turn these things on and see if anything happens. Yeah. It's weird. It's very strange to me. No, that's two I'm points McLuhan said. He said to... to um, uh, apply, he said, the mandate to uh, have a technology and apply it, and, and the businessman says, let's see what happens. He says, that's not good enough anymore. If you were concerned, if you weren't concerned, it doesn't matter, but McClellan, pretending he was concerned, isn't said, we can't just uh, see what happens. So, Bob, have you seen the Ghost Hunter TV shows? Where they no. What, is that something I could see on Hulu? Yeah, probably. Oh, you mean it's a real thing, isn't it? They actually yeah. go around. I saw one once, yeah. Yeah, they walk around in the dark with uh, infrared cameras and thermography cameras. It's very uninteresting for some reason. I, I looked at it for five seconds. Well, that's yeah. stupid. I mean, <laughs> let, let's talk about how watching TV is watching ghosts for the chemical body. Mm -hmm. You're looking at images. Yes. Okay, well, then you're dismissed, Hugh. You put in your time. <laughs> All right, thanks, Bob. Okay, hope you come back. I will. We'll see. Okay. Bye. So, um, anybody that else? TV, that TV show he just mentioned, I, I found it quite uninteresting as well. Yeah. But I did find it a bit funny because they were in the process of scaring the shit out of themselves. <laughs> they wanted to or they would? They w would inevitably, you know, scare the shit out of themselves <laughs> for some, you know, ghost mm, 
polygeist thing happening or whatever, poltergeist thing. or Yeah, they would so. project a problem into it. They're concerned about it because they think it's an issue to have a ghost, so it would be implied that when they got one, they'd have to have a problem with that and dramatize it. Yeah, they'd be scared of, oh, my God, what did you do? <laughs> they'd be running through the, you know, dark basement of this, you know, empty haunted house thing trying to get out or, you know, and then hurting themselves in the process and whatever. The one episode I saw, was it was a crack-up. Right, so... So these, this is an advertisement. This TV was propped up by the Union of Psychics who wanted people to be infatuated with the ghost mythology or the ghost environment. And so you have to create a new fear. McClune said the principal advertising, you create a disease and offer the cure. They were creating a disease around the ghost phenomenon. Right. Oh, exactly. Exactly. So anybody else there? <laughs> I'm surprised Brian didn't show up. How do you know he's not here? Well, because he hadn't said anything. Oh, he never speaks. He never speaks uh, until after it's over. And then in the, he'll talk oh. at the end after. But um, so, uh, so now I'm partly supposed to stay around a bit because I tell people we'll be here for four or five hours. <laughs> well, then um, I um, not that we got to it this week, but I printed out this um, article about um, uh, the economy that Marshall McLuhan wrote. Oh back yeah, there. right, right. Forgot about that. Yeah, and so kind of read through it and got lost in the words here and there. I'm such a newbie with uh, all of this uh, McLuhanism, yeah. <laughs> if you will. They're not, it's not jargon. It's a way of looking, so it's more than jargon. You can call it McLuhanisms. Yeah. yeah. It just... Uh, well, let's talk about it. That's a good article to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about, I'm, I'm going to propose a disequilibrium theory based on the discontinuous nature of the electric information of today. That's the key point. Now, you're not getting it? Well, no. Okay. He says that the Marxian economics and the Keynesian economics, he says this in the first couple of paragraphs, a little short paragraph, they're based on balance, supply and demand balance. All right? Correct. You got so many apples and so many audi- uh, consumers and so many ships bringing new apples in. You could call that, that's probably why you said hardware a couple of hours ago. You were referring to this article, maybe? Uh, could be. Yeah. I don't know. So, 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 so he's doing yeah. the hardware. In a hardware economy, before you have a, electric lighting, before you have radio and TV, you can't measure, when everybody's listening to t- uh, radio, you can't measure who's, who's um, you can't make anybody pay for it. It's experience that is, I don't give you a radio program and no one else can have it, and you, you, I give it to you and you pay for it, like an object, an apple. I give you an apple, you give me something back, all right? There's no sharing happening when you have radio, and everybody can listen to the program once they have a radio. Then, then for the next 20 years, you can listen to all kinds of things, quote, for free, right? 
There's no exchange. That fact, that form of experience that is not in a give-and-take situation where I give you an apple and you give me an orange back, that simple uh-huh. exchange is violated by the, uh, free, the freeness of electric information for pennies. That upsets the old accounting, the balancing, that wealth is based on how many apples I give you for uh, you to give me how many oranges. That visual accounting, you understand that? That writing yep, down yep. in books? When radio yep. came in the 20s and early 30s, it, it sort of, a, in a hidden ground way, upset the economy and led to the economic crash of the money world, which was based on the old hardware, where we have this amount of products and we sell that for this and we get back this money. The freeness of radio upset the equilibrium form of exchange, the balanced form of exchange, you owe me this and that, and so he called that disequilibrium. Okay. It, it was okay. odd. It was a U unidentified flying environment <laughs> compared to the normal trading environment. And that's all you have to get. And, and so when you understand that that's, he's proposing disequilibrium economics, in other words, a way more complex economy that cannot be reduced to who owns what and who uh, has this amount of apples and who has to trade a bunch of oranges for those apples. You see, when, when everybody can share the same environment at the same time equally, then there's no hierarchy of who's getting more radio programs than someone else. Does that, um, does, so that cancels out... Uh, Equilibrium balancing. Yeah, cancels out ownership. And then... And the society is based on owners. uh, It it cancels out uh, uh, ownership of... Well, that's when money went off the gold standard because it could be owned. and, And those were the after effects of the electric environment coming in. Right, the new ground of, of radio, this new environment that people knew they were experiencing. So radio, the content of radio, music and speech, was the figure of radio. The hidden ground of radio was the simultaneity factor that everybody was sharing the same space at the same time. That upset the old medium of when I give you something, I don't keep it. I give it and you have it and I don't. That object exchange was canceled out and disrupted by the fact I can give you a radio program or tell you when to listen, and we both can listen to it, and I'm not giving up anything. I'm just telling you what dial to turn. So, so, um, uh, but that's what happened to money. Money then became public property because private ownership was not as relevant. Now, they didn't see it that clearly. You see the chaos when... It's like the people unarticulately, subliminally said, wait a minute, we're all, we're all getting free information. That means uh, I don't have to have money to buy other stuff. And that panicked the money environment. So Andrew Carnegie and these people faked the fucking uh, depression. They, they inflated the market and manipulated the crash because they were trying to preserve the old archetype of private ownership of money. And it didn't work. It collapsed and went bigger and bigger through the thir- early 30s to the point Roosevelt had to make money a guaranteed environment, make money free, available to everybody, imitating the radio fact. So radio as a new environment was altering the old medium of money. You see? 
Mm-hmm. And isn't so that the, when uh, well, the well, where welfare came in? Yeah, yeah. All so around the world. Everybody could have a little bit. Right. All around the world, different societies and cultures with their different historical biases and ways of doing things, some went communist, some went fascist, some went socialist, and some went uh, New Deal. All were particular parts of the world accepting the collective sharing of money. It was no longer private property. So there's a global effect manifested in different cultures differently, but there's a common denominator that money became public property. Right. Right. So the medium is the message. The medium of money and the change in crisis it went through were signs that something new was in the house. The fact there was a panic in the late 20s to get a lot of money, and then it crashed. That whole cultural aberration was caused by the radio fact, or the radio effect, that no one really was able to articulate and notice. They were too involved in the effect and the consequences of the new technology on their old, old media. So if you want to know uh, that a new environment has shown up, look at the panic. Look at the, what happens in the older media. So in 2008, a whole bunch of people panicked over the economy, right? Yeah. What, 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 that means there's some new environment sneaking into the world, right, that, that nobody's noticing. It's registered in the panic in the old medium. And the panic was the, the, the bankers decided that he couldn't trust each other and that uh, actually they had a debt that was beyond measure. And then they called it the subprime mortgage crisis. All that is a figure for what technology surfaced. Now, what's interesting is you know who <laughs> says it's it's the extension of non-physical that showed up. But that's you know that's esoteric. Keep it on. You could say that the internet is such a devastating new environment that the effects of the internet were registered. The unseen parts of the internet, its real meaning, were registered on the collapse of the of the last part of you know Bush's administration. And so, who showed up? Let's just find out. So it's just us. Who's there? Speak that I may hear you. What? Uh, yeah, hello, it's James. Is this your first oh, moment? James. Uh, I just caught Hi. the um. Hey, hey, everyone. Um, what was your last point there, Bob? I was just I was going. Uh, radio. Uh, no, you said um, internet. Uh, Two thousand and eight. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to. Uh, you said that the esoteric factor wasn't applicable. And I want to talk about the astral body and uh, what you mean by esoteric. Oh, the the esoteric is when I'm referring to you know who and you know yeah, who know. says yeah. that it. See, my update of it is McLuhan cracked the code of social change when mm. he realized that change all through history was caused by the extensions of our physical senses. All right. Yeah. And that's finally, the final extension is the whole planet when it's simulated in a little satellite rocket ship. That's yeah. living in a, a simulated Earth. Then after that, you have the machine, the endoramine phase, where, where the parts of the endoramine or the machines that were extension of our senses start extending, extending themselves. They're not yeah. extending our senses, they're extending themselves. That's phase two. Phase three is the extension of the non-physical. Mm-hmm. And that um, may be, we, we heard from you-know-who that that's the real ground right now, yeah. or what we call a mystery I, landscape. I was thinking, of, because this is the McLuhan conference, we can talk about you know, your astral body, 
um, and maybe how that relates to... No, the astral body doesn't fit because that's a product of literacy. And then in the pre-literate societies, there's a whole um, knowing and drug so taking. You, and would, Yeah, would you have a new body? Uh, yeah, the mystery, um, the chip body. See, the chip so, body okay, caused okay. this. Yeah, yeah the okay. chip body... The chip landscape was big in the, in the, as an environment in the 90s was a landscape, and everybody mm-hmm. joined in, got their Netscape, and got online, and there was that boom in the economy for a few years. Then yeah. that pushed to extreme, and you went into Web 2.0, which was everybody fragmenting in their own editing ability with their YouTubes mm-hmm. and MySpace. That second thing was even on more hyper-fragmentation, and that led to the collapse of 2008. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. I mean, every, everything disappears, and everyone becomes a producer at the same time. Yeah, and no, uh, and nobody knows what it's. It's like okay, we're talking Tina about radio. Everybody could listen passively, receive the mm-hmm. same radio stuff. Actually, mm-hmm. the digital means everybody became a producer of wealth. So yeah. much production of discarnate wealth that the the Gutenberg visual accounting guys, the accountants, couldn't measure it. So this is. I guess part of you know what you know who says about the Android meme or the chip body being squared or cubed. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, um, that's a good point. I hadn't said that. Ever thought that before? The the crash in the last few years was producer due to producer mania, whereas yeah, the, yeah. the the 30s was consumer mania. Everybody yeah. could consume something that no one had to pay for. Yeah. Now you could yeah, produce I, without any costs. I remember. Um, uh, I think I emailed you when I first, yeah, maybe back in January 2010, and I was watching CNN, you know, I haven't watched, watched those programs, those news stations since, but there's a big sort of banner, you know, down the bottom, it says breaking news, right. Fox and CNN have just gone into talks, you know, about, you know, ownership, and I was like, all right, that's it, that's the end of the Android meme, <laughs> and pretty much... That was before that, you heard my stuff? Yeah, yeah, and pretty much that week... Um, all of a sudden, what was real popular on YouTube, and this might be a bit crass, but this is how I see it, just girls farting, right? Girls farting on YouTube. They'd make their own videos of themselves farting. And you mean fighting with it. friends? No, fart, farting. Oh, farting, gas. okay. Yeah. yeah. And for me, that was like, that's, that's it. That's, you know, you can't, pre- you can't top that. Um, <laughs> that was the end. That's it. You can't top the end that. Of, you know? uh, end of shared space. Yeah, exactly. And so... It was just—it was blatantly obvious in that intuitive sense before I would be using your language, so to speak. But, right. Uh, those are now, now here's the thing. A couple. Okay. First of all, have you listened to much today? No, no. I've just hopped on. Oh, okay. So yeah, we've been going for over three hours. Yeah. This to say that that was the end. That's only one idea. You have to include, yeah. like Scott does, the other. It's not the end. There's going to be more of farting and more other variations. Oh, no. It doesn't for me, end. For me, the end is like, I mean, when 911 happened, I said, right, that's the end, but it's the end of the beginning. You know, let's get on with it. This is going to create uh, a focal point where people start asking questions, you know what I mean? And then it sort of came by default in 2008. Right. The, mm. um, but uh, we would look at this, very, look at what you think. You have a thought about, okay, this is the end, let's get on and do it. You've mm. got to complexify that. Paralyze yeah. yourself with saying, look at yeah. all the factors. How could we get on? We now got Web 2.0. No one's even going to know the meaning of, agree on the meaning of 911. Exactly. You've got to look at the media, how it frustrates what you thought is going to happen. That's, it's like super yeah. critique. 
Mm. I guess I've been doing that since uh, sort of 2000 when you know, doing my media degree and part of, part of one of my projects was basically taping all of the news media and then putting together a 10-minute collage of, of news media. And just when I was um, yeah, sort of on, on the trail, to, uh, 911 happened and uh, you know, I changed all my sort of my imagery around that. Um, so the I was image of what like, you were taping? Yeah, so I was like, oh, okay, now I've got, you know, like a theme. I'll just, you know, do 911 sort of <laughs> a uh, manipian satire on it, you know, and I wasn't trying to take the picture. As opposed to what were you doing before? Uh, more of a critical look at... Um, oh, you were stopped taking the analysis seriously. Yeah, yeah, and I went, yeah. fuck this, you know, because the news just got so crazy that I just went, yeah. oh, I'm just going to do pure manipian satire, and that's it. And I okay, for you... For, and for a lot of people, 911 meant the end of uh, receiving uh, news. Yes, absolutely. And so the Internet was there for people to go to get counter news or be, the news behind the news, which was all the conspiracy sites. Yeah. And they boomed because the well, central panoptical eye that's receiving the bird's eye view from CNN collapsed. Yeah. Your, your exactly. viewer part. And also another factor is, and I mean, this, I'm in Australia here, so I don't know how terrible this sounds to maybe... Uh, Americans, but for me, those 24 hours um, when 9/11 happened onwards, I just sat there watching, and it was the greatest show ever, and it could never be done again. So that was the end in another sense, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it was the greatest, the greatest show ever in terms of mellowing excitement or just excitement. Uh, lots of factors like this. You know, you could come at it. It was just, like you're watching World War Three. Yeah, and it was yeah. like, wow, you know this couldn't be you know, replicated. Well, I remember saying at the time that it was the greatest performance art, the collapse of the towers. Yeah. I, I, it yeah. was the greatest scene that anybody ever could create. And, and the way yeah. the cameras and all the sort of naive news people were reporting, you know, that would yeah. never happen again, ever. And so, for me... That you mean was, they were reporting naively? Well, in a sense, you know, compared to how they look on the war on terror now, you know what I mean? Um, no, 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 I don't know. What are you trying to say? Reacting to this greatest show ever. Like, they, I don't know that anybody immediately following that 24 hours in the news clips was just this unbelievable, un, un, unbelievably, they couldn't believe it. Right. Well, that's what I'm trying to get to James to articulate. What is it that they were doing, James, that was interesting? Yes, it was what uh, Tina just picked up on. Then they were that they were not able to say anything. Well, it was they were they stopped being journalists and just sort of became you know like yeah they were gaping gaping a car wreck yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. whereas neck was now they've got poise you know when there's a bomb happens you know right. They're used to, you know, this terrorism now, and they can... The real function of news happened, which is something that's worth looking at, and everybody's shocked by it. You don't have your experts commenting. It was actually a real news event. Uh, An actual news event, yeah. Yeah, where people couldn't comment. They Mm -hmm. they, they didn't know what to say. It was so newsy. (laughs) Newsworthy. (laughs) It was just observing and creating the observation while they were observing so that everybody could observe and see what it was that was being yeah. seen that they were taking, and we were all just sitting there going, what? Uh, <laughs> well, you, yeah. but, but Tina, have you heard what I did? I turned it off. I didn't watch it. I knew. 
I'll celebrate the media ecology. I, I, I did not watch it. And I went to Toronto four, four days later, and there I went to stay at Nelson Falls, and he'd been watching TV for five fucking days without sleeping. Whoa. And he, he put out the Media Ecology album, but he didn't do Media Ecology. I actually did it. You switched what off. was your well? So explain what it what you just said. What was? Yeah, your, I'll give you the details in a minute. I, there was a point uh, I wanted to say that we're t- James. Um, oh yeah, you know my I take whatever I think, James, mm. and figure out where it's limited. Yeah, that's what you. I'm always, always erasing my thinking. Yeah. I say, okay, this caused that, and I say, wait a minute, what other factors am I not considering? And I know so many different factors now. I can cancel thought instantly. I mean, yeah. basically, I say I don't think anymore. I get yeah, half exactly. a thought, and it doesn't last. It's already, it's already the tetrad and pentad and hexad's been done on it. Right. And it's almost if you speak, you're speaking your mind, so it's subvocal. There's yeah. nothing, no, McClune called it univocal. There's nothing that can be thought univocally that's relevant to the multivocal world we live in. That's true. And, so I just uh, wanted to say media ecology. That's why I never say something uh, as if it means something yeah. or that I'm telling you something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will yeah. say something to see if you fall for it and then say something counter or try to agree with me. And you do that often. You'll agree with me. You'll say no, yes. And I don't want an agreement. I want the other uh, idea, the other, that, uh, the other side of it, and then cancel yeah. both of them. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, so sometimes, you know, you you, you create the ground, go yes, yes, match, match, and yeah. then you then you provide the opposites and go into that side. There's many right. ways I, to do it. I do, I do, I do a like, 780 RPM version. I might do a 45 yeah, or 33 yeah, yeah. RPE, depending, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, Tina, I'll just take a minute to tell you what I did on 911, right? Is that what yeah. you want to hear? Yep. Okay, we're on City Island in New York City, and Carolyn's getting ready to get the, like, quarter to 10 to 10 bus off the island to the subway to go down and meet the, um, the wife of the guy who created Canada's CIA. It's called CSIS, C-S-I-S. Um, the wife was from a very wealthy family in Canada, the Tannenbaums, in Toronto, and she was the one who first proposed to Trudeau through her husband, the guy who later formed the Kansas CIA, she proposed that Trudeau run for politics. She was impressed with his charisma back in 65 and 66. So this woman was a patient of Carolyn. So she and the CIA ex thesis, that means, I forget what Canada, uh, the Canada's Strategic Services or something. I don't even know what CSIS stands for. S-C-S, no, C-S-I-S. Okay, <clears throat> They had a hotel in New York. Canadian I mean, Secret Service or something. Secret, Secret Intelligence Service. Service, right. That's probably what it is, yeah. So I, the name escapes me right at this minute, his name, but um, he, he was in politics for many years in the 70s and uh, you know, a longtime friend and student of Trudeau when Trudeau was a professor in, in Montreal and had summer seminars in Ghana in Africa. The, his charisma of these summer seminars her husband got involved in and then she met him and then she thought he should become prime minister so one time just to show you her status she went to the parliament in ottawa and you sit in the gallery and watch the politicians speak they don't acknowledge the gallery but when she sat there trudeau interrupted his speech whatever he was saying and nodded at her do you know what i mean you don't it's well, like yeah. that's the that's the background she had so this woman was really interesting another thing about her she was psychic, and she was one of the students of uh, 
is it J.B. Ryan at Duke University, the famous guy who studied psychics in a university at Duke University in the 70s? She uh-huh. was that. She was she was a, uh, a uh, in the period of being separated from her husband in the late 70s, the disco 70s. She spent a lot of time being tested as a psychic. So she had an interesting background. Um, so she was uh, Carol was going to go downtown to look at her as a doctor. So I remember on quarter to ten, so the stuff happened around nine in New York time, you know, yeah. ten to nine, ten, five after nine in that period. So it's already 45 minutes. Everybody is going through the catharsis. I'm reading a book by the English professor Kathleen Hales or Catherine Hales called How We Became Post-Human, all right? How We Became Post-Human It's a literary famous professor, uh, sort of building on McLuhan and other stuff. But uh, I'm on page 222 of How We Became Post-Human. I always note the page numbers like that. And Carolyn comes in, and I had dimly perceived that she was on the phone. She says, I'm not going downtown. Why? And uh, and, and she said, Estherelka said, uh, okay, so Carolyn gets a call from Estherelka. Don't come into town. Carolyn goes, why? Estherelka says, turn on your TV, which we hardly ever had on. So she turns on the TV maybe before she tells me, or it happened the same time. She told me to come in and we're going to look at the TV or something. Uh, so she, But I sort of remember her turning on the TV, but I didn't know it. But then I become aware of something going on. So I go in the room, and we would have seen the two buildings burning. All right? They weren't... Well, if it was not, 9.15, you would have seen just not, the one building. Right. No. I, I saw... See, the first building gets hit about 10 to 9, the second building about 15 minutes later, 5 after 9, oh, approximately. Great. But that was 45 minutes after the two buildings have been hit, almost an hour after the first building. So we're watching the fall. two buildings burning. And then they showed some footage how a plane came by and hit them, uh, one plane. And so I watched for about a minute to understand what they were saying, that there were two things burning and uh, a plane smashed into the building. Um, and then two planes, I guess. I remember they showed the footage of the plane coming in. Uh, I said, we're never going to tell you. We're never going to know. I really knew it was a post-information side. We're never going to know what's going on. Heck with that. So I went in the other room and started, continued reading how we became post-human <laughs> and ignored it. Carolyn watched it. No, she turned it off pretty quickly, too. So we had no curiosity about it. I didn't care about it. Um, it's just some, what you see is not real, right? So work in that principle. A little while later, I get a phone call from a guy in British Columbia, actually the Ed, the guy who uh, was in Maui when we came here in 2008. Uh, he was part of the reason we came. He says, uh, oh, are you okay? <laughs> like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. He says, well, didn't you see what happened? I said, no. He said, the fucking building collapsed. He said, that's 30,000 people, man. I said, what? What building? The one on fire. I said, you're kidding. So we turned the TV back on, and we watched the, uh, the footage of the first collapse. And while we're watching the footage of the first collapse, we see the second collapse. So that might have been like quarter after 10, 1030. Uh, so I watched that, and I said, that's the greatest fucking scene I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, ready to move on, as I spelled it a couple hours ago. That's a nice sensation. I'm on to another sensation. I'm going back to this book, which is pretty interesting. So I stopped watching. I think Carol watched a little bit longer. 
and then she turned off, and then uh, she said, I'm going outside, because at the end of our street is the beach on the island that looks right at the World Trade Center. So I said, oh, that's a good idea, so let's do it by body. So we walked down to the uh, beach, and we can see the smoke, you know, way in the distance, and you can actually, that scene, that's the position we watched the tower smoking from is, is the scene at the end of uh, the movie City Island that came out last year. That the actual beach scene, the beach and the, the cameras looking at the New York skyline, that is where I stood, or we stood. It was right wow. in the street. Yeah, so, so it's immortalized in that movie. So we're looking at it, and the smoke's happening, and that's fun to look at. And then here's what I really remember. Some yokel comes running down the, <laughs> comes running down the street going, this is Pearl Harbor! This is Pearl <laughs> and I'm thinking, bad people, humans, they make assumptions pretty quickly, right? I mean, he, he might have been watching it all and knew more about it than I did and figured it out, but he, he immediately decided this was Pearl Harbor and we had to go to war <laughs> against somebody. And that's, that was the, the most interesting thing, that they referred to a previous environment, you know, an archetype. So we watched for a little bit and then went back in and I just read that book all day and ignored it. And then... Uh, then, Karen, then, I don't know, within a day or so, Karen says, wait a minute, we're scheduled to fly to Toronto on Saturday. Uh, they're saying the planes, everything's shut down. I said, oh, I guess we can't go. So then uh, Esther Elka called up just the next day and got talking to Carol and said that she was driving to Toronto on Saturday because she had a car with diplomatic plates and the borders were all jammed up, but she could get through with her, her government car. So she said she'd drive us up there. So we got driven on Saturday from New York up to Toronto and went through Buffalo and her friend uh, that she was driving with us, uh, she lived in Buffalo, so we stopped up in Buffalo before we went to the border to uh, just drop this person off and learn about her life. And then we went up to the border and the, uh, the, we were able to move through real fast because of her license plate or something. And uh, when we get there, the customs lady, I don't know how it got going, I'm sitting in the back seat, but Esrelka gets talking to her, and the custom lady saying, "You know, it's disgusting. Uh, we see every week little girls, little Pakistani girls or whatever, being smuggled across the border. The the, the same girl is used on uh, on all these different families. So she was complaining that they that how porous the customs was uh, up to that point. And uh, this was the Canadian position, and uh, the customs person had noticed her name." And it was, oh, yeah, it's uh, Esther Elka Kaplan. Um, the Minister of Immigration for Canada at that time was another Kaplan, same name, not related. So the custom person somehow looking at the license plate number figured out there was maybe a reason to say this to Esther Elka. She figured out the status because uh, Esther Elka said, well, I know uh, uh, Kaplan. She's my best friend. And so the customs lady says, well, could you tell her? Did you tell her from the ground what we've been seeing? We couldn't get through to them up there, the ivory tower of the department head. Uh, would you tell them what I'm telling you? And Esther said, sure, I will. I'll be talking to her tomorrow. So there was a direct communication from the customs on the ground to the minister for all the country. You know what I mean? Through Esther So, yeah. uh, So that was neat just seeing that, the, 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 the role that Esther could have. And so then we drove home, but another good point about the whole drive is that during that 
eight-hour, whatever drive it was, Esther Alka told me her whole history with Trudeau. That's how I found out that stuff. I mean, that's how I found out about the history of her involvement with uh, the creation of Trudeau. So then we get back to Toronto, and Carolyn stayed with her because they were doing a project uh, on a whole bunch of stuff uh, anyways uh, that Carolyn would have done if she'd flown to Toronto on her own. Anyway, so she stayed with Esterelka, and I stayed at Nelson Thal. So on, on Saturday, we show up at midnight at Nelson Street, at home, and uh, his kids are all telling me, Dad hasn't slept in five days. So I, I came in, and uh, they wanted to know what I had to say about all this. I had just talked to the Evergreens the day before. I knew what had happened, or at least I got a good angle on it. So I laid out what, who did it and what did it. That's all I did. I did not follow the news. I just called Evergreens and got the details on what went on behind the scenes, right? So I got that from the Evergreens. So I told Nelson. And they and, were, so they, yeah, I guess, right, they were still coming through, Michael, um, what's yeah. his name? Yeah, Michael yeah. Blake-Reed. Okay. Right. Yeah, so, so I had access. I called up Elio's a long-time customer, so she told me what they found out. And there was a whole, this whole other involved story uh, that uh, I won't go into, which... His background to that, but anyways, I got the gist of it from from them. What what the deal was? Uh, one main statement was that uh, what's his name? Who was the guy? Bin Laden. Bin Laden was involved. You know, he was part of the structure, but he wasn't the top. That was what the Evergreens went into. Who the top was? So uh, was Nelson was scheduled on the radio. The, the, the front the front face. Yeah, yeah. And, on a, put a face on it. Yeah. yeah, so I, I, uh, Nelson was scheduled to go on this conspiracy radio yeah. show that he was part of that next day on CFRB, one of the major stations in Toronto. So I went on with him, and I, I laid out what happened. Uh, I gave out the hidden ground of 911, even though I didn't really participate in any of the coverage or watch it or study it. I just went to everybody's got the answer and then said it. So I did that on uh, that Sunday. See, that would be the 16th. Uh, the, the 11th, 18th, yeah, it'd be 16th. So then, um, um, so I stayed for Nelson for a couple of weeks, and then on Wednesday I went down to see Kellen because uh, a kid that I knew there was on, and he asked me to come down. So I went down to there, and Dave Newfeld showed up, and you can hear it on the timeline. We have a great time for a couple hours with Jerry, Jerry, uh, I forget his last name, but. Um, I don't know if we talked. I probably talked about 911 then, and then on at halfway through that, it's like one one o'clock in the morning. A guy barges into the studio and he goes, "You're Bob," and I go, "Yeah." He says, "I got to talk to you." And so when we finished at two o'clock, twelve midnight to two, I went over and was introduced to Greg, and Greg was the guy who had taken over the show International Connection after I had left uh, Toronto in '93. He took it over in, in 2000. So he had never met me. So we started talking. So he had me on his International Connection show the following Sunday, be the 23rd. And then we became friends. And uh, I was just talking to Greg earlier today. I mean, Greg carried on the International Connection and did a lot of stuff. And then I started calling in and changed it a bit just by my input. And it's pretty funny. And you can hear all that stuff on the timeline. So that's how I met Greg Duffel. And so then back to... Um, to uh, Oh, yeah, so, so at one point, a week or two after uh, we're in Toronto, Carolyn tells me come down because Esther Elko wants to do a trance. She hadn't done psychic stuff since the 70s. So 
so she felt so shaken up by this whole thing. And, you know, and she's the establishment. You know, she is affected by this. Her husband was involved with the oil companies in Afghanistan. He was directly affected by this thing. And uh, so she went, you could say, into a trauma state or whatever. So we go down there and... Uh, yeah, we did it twice, and I think Nelson was there at one at the second one. But we did it with her, and we didn't have a tape recorder, so Carol wrote notes. So in this, when she went to trance, um, McLuhan came through, and then Trudeau came through. And while Trudeau was talking, uh, she she had tears coming down her face because Trudeau had died about less than a year before that. You know, he just died, and that was wow. her friend. So, so here. So we had some interesting statements from them about all this 911 stuff. And, and I can say this about Esther Elka now because she died a couple of years ago. I mean, I wouldn't say it in public uh, if she was still alive, but it doesn't matter now, I guess. So, um, okay, so then when we came back the second time, we talked to McLuhan again. And McLuhan, he, his basic point is that if you understood my stuff, you could see that coming. So I don't know exactly what he meant or what it was, but it goes back to James's story being with Walter Bowart, and when Bowart sees it happen, he says to James, Bob and McLuhan were right. They're geniuses. You know that story? We were just talking about it uh, on a recent cash flow. Whatever he thought McLuhan was saying maybe was right because that's what McLuhan said to us, Resterelka. If you could, if you understood my stuff, you would see it coming. So I always tell the story that on July 4th, 1976, it's the uh, centennial, bicentennial thing in New York City. So I'm there, and I'm up at the top of the World Trade Center, the one that must have been with the TV antenna that got hit first, and we're watching what's called the tall ships. You know what that is? You know, these yeah. armadas of they, sailing uh, they boats. They come and, through the Great Lakes every couple of years yeah. in front of my house. Yeah, yeah so the tall ships, so I was watching that. Uh, a relative of mine was in it, so um, so I was watching it. And while up at the top of the Twin Tower, there was radio on and uh, ongoing coverage of the bicentennial, and somebody is interviewing celebrities. Net all of a sudden, I hear this voice that I immediately recognize. It's McLuhan's voice, and they ask him, "What do you see for the next uh, centennial or next hundred years or whatever?" He goes, uh, "One word: apocalypse." And I heard that standing on the, on the room at the top of the building, that would be the apocalyptic image for the United States. You get that? I hear in 1976. This was, back, this was in 76. Yeah, on July 4, 76, uh, in the background, a celebrity is being interviewed, and I'm not paying attention. But all of a sudden, I hear a voice that I recognize. Uh-huh. I, I listen, oh, there's McLuhan getting interviewed by Tom Brokaw or somebody. And what what... The question was probably, I probably only half heard it, what do you see for the next while, the next hundred years, the next for the next centennial? McClone goes, this is what he says, one word, apocalypse. He kind of cursed America, or whatever you want to say that is. He said, you Americans are going to have apocalypse over the next hundred years. And it was that, I'm standing on the building and hearing him say it, and 25 years later, that's what gets hit where I was standing. Right. And that's the apocalyptic image for America. Um, 20, 20, 20 years later? No. Let me see. 25. 76 to 2001 is 25. Quarter of a century yeah. later. Um, is where, I, you know, where I stood is, and where McLuhan said apocalypse is where the apocalypse happened. Yeah. 
in the, in the TV spectacle. Right? It, it, it was a broadcasting of the Twin Towers, which was America's apocalypse. Yeah. yeah. And I was McLuhan's archivist, wow. became his archivist. I'm the only one who knows a lot of different stories about McLuhan because I've been asking these details for a long time. Wow. So the archivist of McLuhan, the future archivist, was standing there to hear that one remark that nobody else would have heard. Because who is listening to TV coverage on July 4th? Nobody is. Right? They're out having a holiday. They're Americans, whatever they're doing. I doubt if anybody, even who, who, who did hear it, even knew who McLuhan was, I was in the right place to hear that pretty amazing thing. And then uh, 26 years later, hear from McLuhan as he spoke to Esterelka that if you understood his stuff, you could see it coming. So it's a nice, uh, it's a poem I just made. I juxtaposed different anecdotes there. Mm-hmm. Right? To make a pattern. What, what's the pattern mean? I don't know. Ask Palmer. Do we ever learn anything, Palmer? <laughs> no, sir. It's hard to tell, sir. You know, that scene in uh, uh, Burn After Reading, that movie. Okay, so um, Esrelka was the uh, was a consequence of 911. And so here it is, this woman who told us about it was the one that we got some information from. Uh, you know, a few weeks later. But I, I didn't know she was a medium or anything like that until we were driving home. And, and she opened up to me because we were driving home and talking, and then she mentioned that she says, do you know who J.B. Ryan is? And I said, yeah, Duke University, psychic thing. She says, wow, Bob, you're one of the few people who knows who that is. And I said, yeah, I know him. And so she says, well, let me tell you about my life with him. So because I knew something and understood what she would talk about, she told me a lot of stuff. And that led into the history of Trudeau. And then, and then a week or two later, we're talking to Trudeau or something representing itself as Trudeau. So that's my 911 story. <laughs> and, and I'm proud question. that I turned... What? Here's a question for you then. I just want to say this. Um, I'm proud that I turned off the TV, that I didn't watch it. I'm proud that I can say that. Why? To show you how strongly I was not embedded in the environment. Here's the most dramatic thing that's going to change everybody's life, and I say, fuck it, puny compared to what I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How? um, Here's my question. In your um, uh, conversation with the Evergreens after 911, in... and what they, what was, what you learned from that conversation? Um, how um, how accurate was that information compared to, uh, you know who's? Yeah, you know, you know who is giving me uh, your 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 information from you know who? Right. To so I got the who did it and why it was done in September 2001. And then you've got eight years later, 2009, you know who shows up, and I review all the details, and there's been seven years of research and all kinds of interesting theories, right? In that mm-hmm. seven years. The Evergreens the never went into the details of uh, planes with missiles or holograms and all those different uh, Truth 911 aspects. I just got the basic outline on the chemical body level of who did and why, who did and why. 
once uh, uh, you know who showed up, I was able to go through all those theories that are on the internet and pick them apart with Ion. And Ion gave a way more detail than the Evergreens, but the Evergreens in the broad level had it right. But they didn't have the detail that you know who gave me. Right, right. I wouldn't. Yeah. But they were they were spot on with what they did, yeah. what they were able to bring forth. What they said, what they said, which was said a, t- a day or two after it happened, was uh, saw through the whole thing immediately. I mean, there were there were natural psychics or, or cynics like Lynn LaRouche and and that other guy who uh, was the first guy to become famous with this stuff. Forget his name. Um, they were cynical and on top of it pretty quickly and finding different stories to prove their case. But um, the Evergreens were, uh, they didn't, uh, the Evergreens knew that and nailed it right away. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. uh-huh. I mean, I, I was able to go onto a conspiracy radio show and talk about it as a conspiracy based on what the Evergreens told me. Uh, I'm sorry, say that again. I was able to go on the radio, you know, less than a week later, a conspiracy show expected to have a conspiracy angle on it, and I had the goods right away without doing any research. I just called up uh, Michael and his wife and got the basic stuff that they'd gotten and just used that. (laughs) Makes for good content. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it made for good, and it it fit the conspiracy show, and it looked like I was on top of it before anybody else. I mean, Nelson uh-huh. suspected it was a conspiracy, but he didn't have any information to go on. He just thought it was overkill or too much emphasis on bin Laden and all that, some obvious stuff. But nobody had the details that I presented, you know, that quickly. Right, right. I did give the big, I laid it all out. Uh, so that might be on the timeline. See, one of them didn't get recorded or we lost it. Uh, don't know if it was the 16th or the 23rd, but the other one has it. I'm pretty sure I say it. So you go on my timeline and look at the end of September 2001 and see what, listen to it, whatever's on there. Yeah, yeah, let me do that. So, uh, but we were just starting to form the McLuhan Institute. We had other things we were doing. I just saw it as breakdown, good, more more, uh, disappointment in getting rid of... uh, the illusions. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but good. I like Salvador Dali. He says, I love earthquakes and disasters. I've always liked disasters and things like that as as an entertaining spectacle. So, um, what am I saying here? uh, That was fun, and I wasn't bothered by the effects of it. I like James was just stunned for days. Right. I didn't. I just like. I. Was I don't know stunned. what that's like. I'd, I'd like to hear. Uh, I don't know if you can describe it, but I don't know what it's like to be stunned like that. I wasn't stunned by that. By that uh, event. So what was it like to be stunned? Well, what's the content of your being when when you're doing that? Um. Hmm. not really having any thinking it mesmerized almost just like 
But were you worried? Kind of in was a, there a uh, worry? Is there a worry element in there? Were you anxious? Um, no, I don't know. It was. I wasn't even. I don't. It, that's what it, it was. Just like this stunned. You didn't know how to feel about it. Yeah. No emotions, no thinking about it, just kind of doing like a uh, chin to navel. Yeah, you did uh, not have a, you know? a translation point. <laughs> you did huh? not have a tra- translation. You had no way to translate, to subvocalize it into other words. You had no reference uh, point to compare it to. Yeah, not for, not for um, a couple of days at least. Oh, yeah, that reminds me. So, you know, Ed phoned and told us, hey, look, turn on, the building collapsed. Well, a little while later in there, some uh, older woman called from Canada, a friend of Carol's, and said, are you, are you all right? And I go, yeah. And he says, do you think this is going to be nuclear war? I said, no. Now, I had no reason to, <laughs> I didn't know, you know what I mean? If, but I instantly said, no, this is not going to lead to nuclear war. But when I read accounts a week or so, well, I came back to New York about three or four weeks later, after being up in Toronto, and I read some of the articles in different magazines, I was amazed. People, when they were down in Manhattan and they saw that happen, they ran and they thought they were going to get nuked. You know what I mean? They, they, they really thought, well, we just got hit. This is the first hit. More is coming. That's what surprised me and how out of it I was. I had no clue that that's what you would think. Because I wasn't in the middle of it. These are people running down Fifth Avenue, you know, and seeing Getting, the building. Trying to get out of the city. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they had uh, 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 miles and miles and miles of people in the streets walking out of the city because there was yeah. no, tra- no transportation was shut down. and and. Uh, so I, I was not aware of the chemical body response. I had a total discounted TV body response. It was just another... Fantastic image, you know. I wasn't even there in New York, so to speak. Uh, it's the people on the chemical body level who weren't watching on TV who had the raw panic experience. Yeah. I mean, I know, I mean, I was getting ready for work that morning, and so uh was, you know, fixing my hair, and the TV was on in the background and just, you know, doing ready-for-work thing. <clears throat> And um, and then there was all this uh, new slash thing, you know, and and I stopped and I looked and was like, what? Oh my gosh! And, uh, you would have been told like, a little plane. You would say, what a stupid pilot! What the fuck's wrong with that guy? To bump <laughs> into the building, right? Well, and then and and then tuned in to what had just happened, you know, and um, John was. Um, uh, in the next room working, and um, I and I I offered to him to come see, and him and, and his um, his supervisor, they came in, and and we all just kind of like stood there and watched, and nobody knew what was going on or anything, and so they were like. And you're just watching, you're just watching, wait a minute, you're just seeing the plane hit the first building at that point. Um, This was the after effect of having, the the plane having hit the building, because there wasn't any footage at that point, it was just the plane burning. Yeah. Or the building burning. 
And so 15, I don't know, what was it, at 25 minutes later, a half hour later after the first images came up on the TV, um, I was like getting dressed and, and watching the news and, you know, hearing what coverage there was. And then here comes the second plane and that, you know, flew into the second building and they have that on, on real time footage. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, <laughs> you guys, the second building just got hit. <laughs> in the plane, you know, and they came in and then they were like, what the fuck, you know, we were like, and, and then that's when, like, that stunned thing came in to, to was like, what do you, what, I yeah, in other words, you're thinking this, you would think you can't have an accident twice, so maybe this was planned. Who would plan such a thing? That's probably where you were stuck, paralyzed in between. This ain't. This is planned, but how? Who, why? Yeah, I didn't even didn't get there for a few hours. Was just stunned. You know, because you have to understand, I was um, let me see, forty-one years old. So I really had no catastrophe ref to reference it to this right. thing in in my life. You know. Just yeah. from history, so it was, was the just, first bad news you ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, aside from, you know, you know, running to the basement and coming out and and having had the tornado go down the road or something, you know, the yeah. after effects of a tornado or that kind of thing, growing up or whatever. I mean, the worst I can think of is, you know, driving down a highway right after a, a bad car accident, you yeah. know, and seeing bodies covered on the side of the road because they didn't make it or, you know, I mean, that's pretty traumatic uh, for me anyway right. to witness that kind of thing. So it was really just uh, this stunned, I don't know what to think about. I, 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 don't, I had nothing to think about. And right, but then what job. happens by the next day, or when you perceive they're saying Bin Laden? What did you think of that? Um, I pretty much figured that was just a cover story. I wasn't. I didn't. I at the. I had already come to conclude that what you were, what we were given as quote-unquote, news wasn't really the news, what was going on in the world wasn't really the truth. Per se, there's always a, a you know, backroom goings-on and whatever. Okay, so you cynical enough to suspect that. What happens over the next month, week, two months? Well, when do you get your balance? What do you think then? Mm. Uh, gee, I wonder where this is going to go to. Well, I wonder what next. How right. I, I was like curious of how it was going to play out and what. Uh, and then you know I was you know pissed off and like you know fuck government this you know that kind of thing and pissed off uh, as an American yeah. pissed off as an American against the world. Um. No, not so much Amer. Well, no, maybe maybe American. I don't know. Um. Just. It pissed off in general, 
but you know, it, fucking people, you know. <laughs> can't we get along? Why can't we get along? How many thousands of years, and we're still shooting up and killing and just and and creating such mayhem and building more <laughs> bombs and 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 warring against one another. I mean, really. I mean, when are we going to get it together? And that's what kind of what kind of me off is that, you know, we have to do all of this more. Yeah. I mean, come on. Didn't we, like, you know... Do we ever learn like, anything, Palmer? Do we ever learn anything, Palmer? Uh, I don't know, sir. <laughs> maybe we learn not to do it again. Yeah, maybe, sir. But, what, Dan, if and I you know, know what we did... Such, you know, a waste of, of, of energy and a waste of... of uh, um, Humanity, I mean, really. Okay, now, Tina, I would not be involved in that level of shock because I had watched what I knew for 40 years, had dealt with that emotion for 40 years. You know what I mean? Right, right. Must we do this again? Must we invent (laughs) television? Must we invent the hologram? Must we have all these side effects again? (laughs) So I was looking at environmental war, not just military war. Right. Right. And knowing on some level that there was way, way, way more was going on than what was being said. Well, did you, you know, get into the conspiracy, conspiracy stuff? stuff like, um, you got into the conspiracy stuff? All that other crap. No, I, I'm talking over it, but did you, did you get into the conspiracy sites? Um, yeah, much, much later. Oh, okay, not right away. Um, come on into my world until uh, mm, to think uh, maybe 2000 uh, well when did you show up on cash flow uh, January 2008 January 2008 yeah so maybe um, maybe 2006 or and for about a year there were you listening uh-huh. to coast to coast what were you listening to um, hmm, uh, gosh, Coast like another lifetime ago. <laughs> but you did what listen to it. it. Um, I did find, uh, later on, I did find, um... Alex Jones? Project Camelot, um, Alex Jones a little bit, um, George Nori a little bit, um, I was being um, more uh, spiritual um, knowledge. New Age than, Gaia knowledge. New Age Gaia. <laughs> spiritual feminism. <laughs> Some of that, but not even, but not even, I mean, and that was all like bullshit too. You know, I had to Larry got had gone through all of that back in the 80s. Uh, 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 late 80s, early yeah. 90s, and that was like, oh, that's just more bullshit. Right. <laughs> more so book thought, stuff. You know? Just the book talking. Yeah, yeah. Although it, at that time, where I, from where I had come from and where I was at then, found it to be valuable. Uh, it was, uh, I, I certainly placed some value was uh, on it. I was able to kind of straighten out my, you know, bullshit. Yeah. You know the, the 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 stuff that gets put on you when you're a kid that doesn't make any sense and let go of 
a lot of rules and religion and sort of that sort of stuff and kind of, you know, try to figure out something. You went from one kind of book conditioning to another kind of book conditioning. Sure, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that was really all that was out. That's all that's been out there, really, is book knowledge. Yeah. For you, Um, you mean? At least for me, you know. Yeah. So, uh, then I was dabbling in the healing arts and and alchemy and and um, um, that's energy work and and yeah, Generation X stuff for a certain part of the generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how you put it that way. Yeah, and just trying to kind of find, trying to make sense of stuff that doesn't make was doesn't make sense. Yeah, you're trying to find slack. Yes, another seeker for slack. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and, um, I don't even know. I was just surfing the net and um, showed up on on, uh, James Martinez's site uh, at Cashflow. Yeah. Um, And then um, on Achieve Radio, like the first week he was on, Achieve Radio, not that I knew that he had come from anywhere else or whatever, just kind of showed up on Achieve Radio and was just, and clicked on his show, and, and there you and James were. <laughs> right. Do you, and, do, you, do you remember me being on the first show you heard? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because on a, he started maybe in August 2007, and in October, you know, Dave Newfelt today, I was in Toronto in October 2007 before we came to the first trip to Hawaii, and I visited Dave out at his studio and stayed there a couple of days. And while while uh, there, I knew James was. Uh, I wanted to hear his show, so I uh, I tuned in on the internet and heard it and called in, and uh, ended up Mary being. Great, the... Mary McLuhan is on. Oh, great! Thanks, Mary. Very good. Hmm. We're. Um, it's nice to meet you all and. Well, you haven't met us yet, Mary. We, you yeah. know me, but uh, we have Tina and James. We've also and got uh, Akito from Japan. Oh, Akito's on? Yeah, I brought him on. Can Hi, he Bob. speak? Can he speak with us? Yeah, did you hear him? He just said hello. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Hi, Akito. Yeah, there's Hi, a, Bob. There's a, there's a backlog of issues. Me and Akito got to go through at some point. So, and then yeah, we heard yeah, Carol. Yeah, Carol. I, I didn't know. I can't. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know if you heard me or not. I yeah, so we've well. got so Mary, we've got Carol, who's an artist in New York. We've got Akito, who who's suffering through the uh, nuclear reactor stuff in Japan. We have uh-huh. James in Australia. We have Tina in Michigan. And uh, I miss anybody else? Is that it? And Mary McLuhan. Oh yeah, yeah, you. <laughs> and you. <laughs> well, Akito, hi, hi, Mary, hi, Carol. Oh, hey, hi, hey. hi. It's, it's hi, everyone. Nice. Hey, how are you doing? It, now, it's, nice, it's nice to be on with everyone, and I must thank Bob uh, for arranging all this so splendidly. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah let's, let's thank me. Oh, he's not yeah. that fabulous. My kudos as well. You know, it's always right. fun. To, uh, Mary, we, we've been going for like four hours and we did you saw the article I sent you that Scott Taylor you might have looked at that um, I think so uh, yeah it's in the in the, fir- the email the other day but if you want to go into it 
we can talk about it. Um, some of the people that were part of that had to go after three hours. But let me let me just finish this point with Tina. Tina, you're explaining that. Uh, what was the last thing you were just saying about um, after Generation X? I I showed up on. Um, oh yeah, Cashflow. So here, with, so here, uh, you and James the same week that you showed up on Cashflow, or the week, or or the following week. Right, I showed up on January 16, 2008. But what happened is in October, at Dave Newfeld, who was on here for hours, a few hours ago, at his place in Trenton, Ontario, I called in and started to uh, critique what James and John, who owned the network and was the guy who created Alex Jones, critique from a, from a McLuhan article, that article you read, Tina. From that point of view, critiquing what they were saying, and they both had never really heard this thing, so they kept me on for the whole show. And then when I left in the last 10 minutes, they then discussed me after. And that's all available on the timeline. So I critiqued James in October 2007, and he got mad at me at calling him. Later I called him in the day. He was mad that I called in without warning him. So he was, he was conscious of having a radio persona and not being caught a surprise. But when I saw him uh, in uh, L.A. Christmas 2007, after being in New Zealand with Andrew Crystal and, and Hawaii, it's when he, we got to talk a lot more, he decided a week or so later to have me on a show as uh, a regular. So that's what you would have heard a few weeks later, January 16th, the first time on his show. Uh, but yep. the I had been listening, yeah, yep. Right. So, but you guys were on a different radio show, and I don't remember. Oh, wait a minute! No, no, that's right. So yeah, we were. Yeah, yeah. You would have heard me July. not till July 2008 because we were on on uh, Republic Broadcasting from January 16th to, to to June 11th, and then we were kicked off, three weeks off, and then James got us on Achieve Radio. So you would have heard us in July 2008. Yeah, right. The, that yeah. sounds better. Yeah. And uh, that's hilarious, the whole sequence of shows from January to June <laughs> with John this maniac. Gets so, he gets so angry at you. It's quite funny. Yeah, he threatens my wife yeah. right, on the, right on the show. Yeah, and I've listened to those, and it's, and it's a crock. It's just uh, he um, just was having a very difficult time in Well, he thought topic. I was the Illuminati. And his whole life was, has been designed, and Alex Jones is a product of that desire, to destroy the Illuminati. So he, after a few months, he got sick of me, and he said, uh, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get, I have friends in the Secret Service who can get to you, Bob. <laughs> I said, I'm aware of those people, and they're not going to find me. <laughs> Are you talking about James, James Martinez? Yeah, James, James uh, Martinez's show. Yes, it was in July 2008, Mary. You mean we he were, doesn't like you anymore? No, no. We're his co-host, John. His co-host, John. Oh, uh, I was thinking like it didn't make sense. It oh yeah, no, John. I forget right, his right, Steinbrecher right. or something. Forget his stock <laughs> mill. He owned the network. He owned Republic Broadcasting, and he had created Alex Jones, who is the most famous guy now, and he's got involved with Charlie Sheen. Alex Jones uh, was the egomaniac, according to John Statmiller, was his name. John's view uh, that Alex was an egomaniac. So they split, and John, Alex went on to become famous, and John created his own radio network. And when we showed up, he was running out of money. So he eventually demanded James and me to give him millions or find people with millions to keep the network going. And because we didn't, he kicked us off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he loves, he 
lived such a charmed life, Bob. Oh yeah, a lot of, a lot of humor. I've always I said to <laughs> Sheila Gostick, the comedian in the, in Toronto, 1985. Uh, I just met her and we got talking. And for some reason, as she left my place, I said, "I intend to be the funniest person who ever lived." <laughs> <laughs> Which is a crazy thing. I don't know why I said it, but as things have unfolded, uh, especially with you know who, I think we can pull it off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. I think you are pulling oh, it off. Yeah, yeah. I think he's, he's pulling it off now. I've got to right. call up Sheila Gostick. I've got to call her up and say, hey, remember I said this right. almost 30 years ago? Well, the votes are in. I'm pulling it. I'm doing it. I'm winning. I'm winning. At the beginning was the amount of laughing you guys did. It was just like, oh, God, they're laughing all the time. I have to know what's going on. <laughs> that you mean on the You Know Who show? You're the yeah. laughing. Yeah. It's yeah. even gotten out of, we've gotten out of hand a bit now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Bob, I, I was listening to Moi and uh, the segment with Marshall McLuhan talking about laughter as a grievance. He was giving a, a great speech. Uh, did you have you heard it? Who moi? Yeah, the moi yeah. show. We should. This involves Mary. Um, you know about. I I can't talk about this other thing I'm involved in on this show, Mary, because it'll ruin the academic uh, respectability. But you know that other thing I do, Mary. You know what it is. You know. What is that? Come on, use your. Ma- uh, <laughs> you've you've talked to him. The Wednesday Castro. No, 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 no. Mary, you've talked to who I'm talking about. Three letters. Who? (laughs) You remember when you talked to your parents? (laughs) Yeah. I always talk. Three letters. Yes, three letters. Right, three letters. Well, um, and I forget why we're saying this. Oh, yeah. So the three-lettered one. Created its own. <laughs> the three-lettered one created its own radio show last week. It did its own broadcast and it played music and samples from different eras for about 25 minutes. Then played Marsha McLuhan doing a talk in IC9 for about an hour. Then a second hour-long thing with Edmund Newman, which was a TV show about 1970s. Two great interviews with your father. Uh, played them as as its first as the content of its first show, and then at the end explained what moi meant. The show was called moi, me French for me, M O I, and it was McLuhan on, you know who. That's the name <laughs> of the show. <laughs> and so it actually now we have people. Mary, you could uh, talk about this. James, yes. bring up what you learned from McLuhan and and mention it to Mary. See what she says. Oh, I was because I was, we were talking about laughter and uh, the speech he gave. Um, what was what was the date? To the publishers, that? it was a week after, a few days after he'd been at the Bilderbergers in May '69. He was at a publishers' convention, probably in New York, and he was mocking the new book, The Love Machine, by Jacqueline yeah. Suzanne. Yeah, and he he seemed to be in great form. Many jokes. He always started off with joking, a couple of jokes, but he went on for 20 minutes, Mary, just telling jokes. And and it was, you know, it was playing out laughter as a grievance, you know, actually playing it out while doing, you know, it was fantastic. And I um, remember he said, I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You you remember him saying that to you, Mary? (laughs) Well, that's, that's good. And mud gives the illusion of depth. Yes. 
And, uh, you know, when Mark Stewart broke her hip, he sent her a big pizza, and he'd written on it two different pizzas. One said the medium is the message. That was one pizza. The second one was, here's mud in your eye. <laughs> he said to his ailing, uh, you know, bad hip, uh, broken hip uh, secretary. <laughs> he even joked in that context. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mary, you know, you've seen that list of aphorisms that Nelson made. Remember the poster? I don't want to talk about him. Uh, yeah, that's right. Say, okay. Well, the poster, that... I'm talking about the poster. A lot of those aphorisms are on there. Uh, you re... he's, he's... <laughs> yeah, we anyway. don't need to go into Nelson. The, but I'm just saying that the aphorisms. I the one. Yeah, I've got them all. Yeah, yeah. And I never, what is it? I I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt. That's on that list of aphorisms, that one. I think he was quoting, was he quoting Reagan, or that was his own line? This is on. Okay. And one was, um, the problem with a specialized education is that you never stop paying for it. Yeah. <laughs> I think he said cheap education, Mary. The problem oh. with a cheap public school education is you never stop paying for it. Oh, uh, that's, that's funny as well. I like both of them. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I remember the idea of public education where, you you know, everybody gets a free education. It's cheap, but you never stop paying for it because it's so badly, you're so badly educated. <laughs> yeah, he's so badly conditioned. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I was just took the words right out of my mouth, James. You're so badly conditioned and 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 programmed. Mm, well, I, I, Mary, I really enjoyed uh, two weeks ago. I think it was or three when you came on and talked about uh, the student being the uh, hunter and gatherer of, of information and the uh, teacher and the being the reporter. It's the, and the teacher being the um, facilitator. Report the reporting back to Right, yeah. the reporting yeah. back to well, I, I think that's what I'm getting this grant from MacArthur Foundation in Chicago to explore it. It sounds sounds great. I really like that's, that idea, the concept, yeah. What is what is the ostensible title of the grant, Mary, can you say? Um, no, there is no title. But you're exploring the effects of bad education on people. Actually, they want me to explore more effectively um, the uh, uh, the effects of digital and social media. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the paper I'm doing right now, and I've got papers all over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, who do you find is a good writer on it right now, or an authority? Um, well, actually, um, when when you go in on the internet and you just put um, digital and social media um, slash writers. There, there are a lot of great writers. Um, a whole long list of them. I, I'm still exploring whom I might talk to. But right. I'm, I'm going to be doing North America, Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. Yeah. And then hooking up, hooking up students from three different countries to exchange their unique methods of, of uh, innovation with each other. So that should be interesting. In other words, it's also in a multimedia format. So it's yeah. called the McLuhan Forum as, as part of the Teacher Award. 
Right. So Vince Cerf, the father of the Internet, is on your board. Would he have anything to say about that stuff, social media? I just got George Lucas on my board today. Oh, wow. <laughs> that says something. So I'm going after Google soon. Yeah, uh, right. As you know, he's... <laughs> By the way, I'm a fundraiser. Um, um, Vince Cerf is vice president of Google, and he's the founding father of the Internet. And he, he's a... He's just a wonderful person. I could, I couldn't believe he said yes. Well, that's amazing. And he referred me to George Lucas, so I said, "Oh, gee, Vince, you call him. I'm not going to call him." <laughs> <laughs> so but, all is well. Well, have you talked about social media with Vince Surf? But yeah, but I've got a big call into him tomorrow with the rest of the board. Right. And. Um, but finally, we're moving along. Thanks for the the um, the leadership and kindness of uh, Shirley M. Huffstedler. Right. Who, who, she was former U.S. Secretary of Education under President Carter. Um, she's been my best friend for years. She's 85, and she still goes to her office. She practices law. And she right. said, Mary, let's get this. We started the Marsha McLuhan. Distinguished Teacher Awards together in 1984, and then we did Canada through 1993, and then um, that was all on computer technology because we hadn't really addressed um, the Internet. So now it's very online learning, digital and social media, um, and um, the whole... Uh, the role of teachers and how it's changed the role of teachers to students. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, the excitement about MacArthur came about because Shirley Huffstedler was on the MacArthur Foundation for years in Chicago. So she got on them to, to try and get us a quick grant. The whole blooming thing started. So it's not a huge one. It's you know compared to what they give out, but at least when you when you're raising money, you can all the uh, most corporations don't be don't want to be the first one in, as you know, yeah. because the yeah. budget's point five million, you know. And uh, um, the guy who's working with me is out of Washington D.C. and he's wonderful, Tom Carroll, and um, he has a great staff. Um, and so I don't have much of a staff other than the board of directors. So um, <laughs> we're getting a little more sophisticated this year. Um, I have raised tons and tons of money in the past, which is a miracle, um, because I didn't have that kind of uh, staff working with me. Um, but I was able to pull off about... million in in Canada when the Premier wanted me to come to Toronto after he saw all the teachers in Time Magazine and People Magazine and me and all that stuff. Because, you know, Canada has no identity. And if if, if you're a success in the United States, they want you back. Mm. So um, I got back and and, um, it was the hottest thing, you know, honoring great teachers across Canada. So um, I pulled off raising, I guess, a couple of million in four months. 
And then the Canadian government wanted to match, to match the corporate dollar. And I found out why. It's because Prime Minister Mulroney wanted to be my guest speaker. And why is that? Because he wanted to do the awards. And, play, and so it was total plagiarism. He went yeah. to all my corporate sponsors. And, well, anyway, he owes me one. Um, <laughs> that's okay. You know, I, yeah. people say, you know, um, uh, what is it is the greatest form of flattery. Uh, well, stealing your work. <laughs> disagree with that. But anyway, um, so I, I've been involved. Imitation. Imitation, yeah. Mary. Imitation, yeah. Flattery. Well, I think that uh, on that particular uh, issue, I would say that sucks. No, 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 no. Um, now, um, we're, we're going to take it out globally uh, the following year. So... Um, so that teachers and students um, uh, can share their innovations with other cultures. You know, the, the global village, the medium is the message. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been mm-hmm. reading a lot in um, different magazines even and newspapers where Dad's quoted or where he is quoted as the guru of social media. <laughs> and I, I understand that. <laughs> It's it's a, like a major retrieval happening. Right. I mean, think about it. You know, the global village is social media. Yeah. Um, so so when I sent, um, you know, Bob, what I sent you, Marshall McLuhan speaks. Well, I sent it over to Vint Cerf, you know, the founder of the internet, yesterday, <laughs> and said, it's just amazing that your father was 40 years ahead of his time and still is. <laughs> still is, yeah. <laughs> everybody's mind, you know. Exactly. And um, so this this hundredth birthday of dads um, is part of the um, the reason why um, we're doing this centennial of teachers. And okay. I've been an edu- I was on the California State Board of Education, appointed by Jerry Brown, who's now again governor, and he used to follow dad around like a puppy dog. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, point being is, in, in our way, education, um, we're saluting Dad's centennial through, the, um, through honoring uh, innovative teachers and students, yeah, um, yeah. not just across North America, but worldwide. So I you think did it's mention, a pretty good... <laughs> did, yeah, it's, all, it's great. But you did mention you have a, a relationship with the Australian Minister for Education. With the what? Australian Minister for Education. Yes, and, and most ministers that I call in different countries, holy shoot, they pick up the phone right away. <laughs> it's pretty you know, handy. I, I, you'd be surprised when you go into different countries, like, you know, um, Australia slash McLuhan, and first of all, you find out who the Minister of Education is, and then you call him up. Hmm. And it's quite easy, you know, plus... We're giving 25000 to each teacher that wins. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Not really. I mean, we gave 10000 in 1993. We're now in 2004. I mean, rather, 2004, 2011. <laughs> so, I mean... Relatively, uh, maybe not, but... That's not that much. Plus, the Marshall McLean mm. Medal, which was designed by a great sculptor in Canada... And it, it it has a, an image of dad 
that is so incredible. It's brass. And um, what I couldn't believe once was when I was in New York, um, one of the Nobels from the Nobel family mm. came up to me and asked me for money. And I said, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> money for what? <laughs> you know, the Nobel Peace Prize. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't think so. <clears throat> That's funny. Um, I, I just found that curious. Um, yeah. So my my whole subject, I mean, has been education for since Shirley and I started the uh, honoring great teachers in 1984, and mm. first launched the program in Los Angeles. So. Anyway, it sounds, it sounds like it's, it's picking up some steam at the moment. Well, yes, it's definitely needed now because the little round schoolhouse doesn't work anymore. And sure doesn't. The kids. So I'm so happy you said you like my idea, but um, actually it was Dad's idea from this book that he wrote just before he died or passed on. Yeah. Um, it was called City is Classroom, okay, and yeah. um, where the student went out to gather information on any particular curriculum mm. and where the, and and the student reported his or her own findings back to the teacher now talking to Tom Carroll in Washington DC he said Mary both the student and the teacher should go out together and i agreed yeah yeah <laughs> because it, it takes the four wall structure completely away mm. i mean mm, it's, yeah. it's so archaic you know yeah, no, I mean, I know uh, a friend of mine who does, works for the wildlife and takes kids out, exactly as you mentioned, you know, the kids become the retrievers, the hunters, you know, the gatherers, and the teacher's there, or just my friend is there with them. And oh my she gosh, ha- this is she helps them. I'd love to learn yeah. more about that. Yeah, yeah, um, it, just, it just rang bells in my mind. I was like, wow, and, you know, she always reports, you know, great success, especially with the... Uh, students that usually don't do well in a classroom environment you know they usually excel in this it's exactly what you're describing you know the yes, the, I mean, the, the, um, the kids are out there gathering and hunt and hunting and and well, reporting that's where back information and, is it's not in a four wall structure no way no way and uh, i mean it's a long time overdue no doubt but uh, but you see the, we're losing our good teachers for a lot of reasons and yes Teachers right now, we've got teachers in the classroom that have their umbrella up when the sun's shining. I mean, you know, (laughs) because tenure and, you know, the bad ones. So, um, or the ones that don't turn on the students. And also, most of the teachers are not familiar with all the the iPads and Mm -hmm. all the technology that students are using and gaining information. I mean, it's a different scenario in, in the classroom and absolutely we need younger teachers in there who know it yes and yes. um and and not not the tenured teachers that's right but anyway that's i think after being on the state board of education that's that's what uh, turned me on to uh the um celebration of teachers good teachers because there were a lot of famous people on the board, and I, I think I was the only mother, which I found very interesting. <laughs> that is interesting, and, actually. And certainly the youngest. 
So when Proposition 13 hit the state of California, Um, It devastated, of course, the educational system, and they chose me off the board to go around to each school district and say everything's going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, anyway, I was also responsible for working with Apple Computer, the legislature, and Congress to ensure that there was an Apple in every classroom. I got that one. That's awesome because I was uh, I know a few teachers um, and some work in uh, sort of country towns um, and the well, funding there the funding there is a bit different. Us. Yeah, I'm from Perth, Australia, on the west coast. Well, we should we should probably work together because the country that we decide to pick out uh, was Australia to work on this year. Oh, okay. Well, that'd be excellent because um, I'll, sh- I'll I'll send yeah. you some of the work. Do, please. We have done already um, that will be implemented, you know, into the um, the Ministry of Education in Australia. Oh, excellent, excellent. And um, you could be our how do you say it point person there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm most most happy to be. Yeah, of course. I just really um, excited about you know your your ideas and and and. It's actually been implemented, and the people you've got behind you, and your enthusiasm. Well, we don't have. Well, we're we're gaining some. I was just shocked that Vince Cerf got George Lucas. Oh no, that's kind of amazing. I was. Um, I had lunch with him a long time ago, George, and mm. he's known never to look at anyone in the eyes. Yes. You know? So when we were having lunch, he only stared at the floor. It's true. <laughs> and. Um, uh, I thought he wasn't interested in me, but then I found out that he does that to everyone. That's the way he so, is, yeah. He has the Lucas Learning um, Center. Where mm. he gives, he, he's a real McLuhanite, too, so we'll see what happens. Mm, that'll be interesting, very interesting. <laughs> and guess what? You wouldn't believe this one. A year ago, no, two years ago, Warren Buffett called me. Yeah. You know, the very wealthy man. Oh, yeah. And guess what I did? I forgot who he was. And he called me, and I said, do you mind if I put you on hold? I have another call. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Mr. Kept... Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. He's, he's on your board as well, is he at the moment? Oh, no. Or... no. I, might... I think it's not too late to send him a letter to apologize. <laughs> and... <laughs> My apology, I would then say, um, would you like to... for a contribution to the project. (laughs) Anyway, that's me, um, what I do. (laughs) Sorry to have taken up all your time on this. No, no, this is great. This is um, fantastic. Thank you. This is what it's about, celebrating McLuhan, and look what's happening as well. I mean, this is amazing. Because My mother was a school teacher. Of course, dad was a teacher of higher education. But, yes. Um, the reason I address K through 12 is because that, those were my responsibilities on the California State Board of mm. Education. And when I went into the schools to look at what was going on, I realized that there were so many great, there are a lot of great teachers out there, too. And we've got to keep them there. <laughs> You Absolutely. Know? Yeah, you've got to have the incentives there for them to stay. 
Mm. Exactly. And yeah. um, so I was wondering if perhaps when you have a chance, you might um, send Bob your email and then yes. I'll email you Bob, back. Bob send can send, send you my email and you can email me back. That will be great. I have a, a website that sort of gives you an idea of what. Oh, okay. Yeah. And maybe Bob will send that to you tomorrow. Excellent. Yeah, that'd be great. And then um, you I should. I can send it right now. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it, Bob. And 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 you should see uh, this video my twin sister. I mean, my sister Stephanie did with Tom Wolf. It's absolutely marvelous. It's oh, called, good. It's called Marshall McLuhan Speak. Just came out. Just put <laughs> www. Marshall McLuhan speaks. Okay. It is so incredible. And I <laughs> did and Surf said, oh. And then David Greenberg, Bob, said, this is the best thing I've read, and it's, it's the most exciting thing I've received in years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, she's laid out a beautiful archive. Yeah. Hey, excellent. Excellent. So the, um, what is your name again? I'm so sorry. That's all right. My name's James. Oh, okay, James. Yes. So James, um, good. I'll I'll email our board. I just met a person in Australia that just be working with us. Yeah, no, it's, it sounds fantastic. So um. So Mary, my that's my email address. Is yeah, the, is Mary. Yep. McLuhan M McLuhan at. Yep. Uh, MarshallMcLuhanMedia.org. It's so funny. It upset the whole family because the estate, of course, wanted to own the name Marshall McLuhan, right? Yeah. So it was www.marshallmcLuhan.com.org yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah. So one of my attorneys out here said, "You know, Mary, I have an idea. Just call it MarshallMcLuhanMedia.com.org <laughs> yeah. and everything." Yeah. And I'm getting more attention with the media after McClellan than they are with just Yeah, Marshall. right. Yeah, right, because probably the uh, the keywords right. people are typing in in Google are Marshall McClellan Media, so... Yeah. Spot on, yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll it'll probably it show you all the sponsors that I've yeah. raised money from, and yep. I'm going after the same ones. <laughs> I want to raise millions, <laughs> Well, because, I think um, with the names that that we've got we already. Can, well, that way we can spend more time developing programs and less time raising money because exactly. it takes so yeah. long and it's so challenging, always raising money. But imagine having the time to develop incredible pr- programs around the world and not having to worry year by year. So that's our goal is to get yeah. enough into – to have the board of directors have enough so that we could spend more time, you know, doing that and studying different cultures yeah, um, yeah. than I mean, worried about, you know, funding our programs. So exactly. The, we're the we're getting a, I'm not going to be the only one this time. I don't want to burn out. Raising money is a lot of <laughs> yeah. work. And you, How can I imagine? You can burn out from it. Oh, and right. I never take no for an answer. I always love to say, I say, if they say no, I say what? <laughs> I think you've made a big mistake. <laughs> it it I, still I, works for you. <laughs> it still works for me. Yeah. 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 And um, so anyway, 
What, and Mary, what's the name of the the uh, Earl for the Marshall McLuhan Center of Global Communications? Is it MarshallMcLuhanMedia.com? Or .org? Uh, it, it's M. Oh, yeah. It, it's MarshallMcLuhanMedia.org. Oh, dot .org, because I'm getting the old one. Oh, no. .com. Oh, no. No, the old one, someone sniped it in Sweden. When <laughs> I got Toronto, I, I, I forgot to pay my my bill out here uh, for right. yeah. Maine. And, but that was just McLuhan Media. Right. This one is MarshallMcLuhanMedia.org. <coughs> right, now, I have we, it. Now, we do have MarshallMcLuhanMedia.com, MarshallMcLuhanMedia.net. You know, we own those, too. Yeah, yeah dot, com, dot com in the biography has uh, a bunch of stuff that Andrew and I did. The audio. Marshall McLuhan Media. Yeah, dot com. The old oh, site. I own that. I know that site has stuff that Andrew and I did for it. Under How the biography. How did you know I owned MarshallMcLuhanMedia.com? Well, I've known you for 25 or since 1976, <laughs> Mary. No, no, no. But I just just got into it. I just. No, no, Marshall McLuhan. Whatever it is, MarshallMcLuhanMedia.com, which you've had for years. No, no, no. I've only had it for uh, seven years. Yeah, well, that's what I... We're talking 2008. Yeah, that's when... But I didn't know you had anything on .com. Yeah, you, we'll go there. You'll look under the biography. You'll see we have audio commentary and all that. But you ignored the site because it looked so ugly. You don't know what we did on it. Uh... Well, that's all new news to me, okay? <laughs> well, well, go. Okay, James, go to marshmacoolmedia.com right now. Okay. And we'll uh, I'll show you, Mary, what's, what's there. Well, okay, because we were going to use .com, our board of directors, um, for, for profit and not nonprofit, which is org. Right. .org. Right. So have you gone to .com? Uh, McLuhanMedia.com. MarshallMcLuhanMedia.com. Yeah, it said uh, no good and redirected me to the org site. So no, no, no. Well, well, that's odd. Marshall, yeah. spell it right. MarshallMcLuhanMedia.com. It's right there. Unless oh, here we go. No, I've got it. I've got it. It's come okay, up. Okay, now look on the left down to uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan Biography. Click on mm -hmm. the bottom on the left. Yep. And it says, what's in the bio when... Yep. And we have a quote from Through the Vanishing Point. Quote, contemporary man has created an information environment that embraces all technologies and cultures in an inclusive experience. Mm -hmm. That We put that quote on there, and then we put the next quote, Marshall McLuhan, we live 200 years every annum. Then you have mm -hmm. audio commentary, June 22, 2007. That doesn't, it's not, it's not you can't activate it, that's dead. And then you have a whole bunch of stuff that we wrote. Well, I wrote, and then Andrew uh, added stuff. Um, okay, well, then how's the board going to use the .com? We're coming up with things for profit. Mm. And that's why I got .com. You see, you can't – .org is nonprofit. Mm -hmm. .com is profit. That's why we got it. Well, you still own the uh, domain name, so – Well, yeah. Mm. But, 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 of course, hey, you do. Hey, Mary, listen to what I wrote. 
Marsh okay. McLuhan, here's the biography I wrote. Marsh McLuhan proposed that modern humanity had become discarnate thanks to electric technology. This condition added a new landscape to the given geographic habitat for our natural body. We propose that the digital landscape of the past 25 years has shrunk the previous electronic habitat to a tiny user-friendly scale. We are now bigger than our media to the point that they, the media, are mere organs attached to our given physical dimensions. These organs take on a life of their own on a scale never previously imagined. So, a biography of a media celebrity, in quotes, media celebrity like Marshall McLuhan, must consider these new conditions as they span the, second de the seven decades of his life. What are the benchmarks for juggling the reservoir of experience and imagery associated with his life? Then we say he was born in Edmonton, July 21st, 1911. His family moved to Winnipeg in 1916, where he was educated. He did postgraduate work uh, at Cambridge, England in the 30s. He taught at Catholic universities from 1937 to 1976. He married Corinne Lewis in 1939, raised a family of five children. He died on December 31st, 1980. Oh, yes, children. Uh, you forgot me. Raised a family of five. Holy shit, we got the wrong number of children. That's right. <laughs> I think I did that because I was doing it for you and left you out. Okay, so we have a quote. Uh, we quote from Phineas Wake, Remarkable evidence was given, Anon, by an eye, ear, nose, and throat witness, whom Wesley and Chapelgoer suspected of being a plain-clothes priest. So we have that quote. Then we, then we say, He converted to Catholicism in 1937 and attended Mass as often as possible. In 19, so we lay out this biography of all the different bodies. In March 1967, NBC aired This is Marshall McLuhan in an experiment in TV series. Playboy magazine featured an in-depth interview with him in March 69. He was a guest on many TV talk shows, and I list them. He appeared in, the, uh, in cameo in the Woody Allen film Annie Hall. McLuhan was... Yeah. Okay, so I go, McLuhan was named the patron saint of Wired magazine, and a quotation from him appeared on the masthead for the first six years of its publication. The effects of each of these bodies and landscapes on the assessment of an individual's life is the problem presented to the 21st century and highlighted by the Marshall McLuhan Center on Global Communications. So in our biography, we laid out a question. <laughs> How can you describe uh, Marshall McLuhan's four bodies? Oh, yeah, I got the four bodies thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I'm afraid I have to get off because I... It's dark out here, but I'm, I have, I, I, I've made it a habit to, to walk a couple of miles every night. Okay. Well, call <laughs> us when you... Well, we probably won't be here in two hours, but uh, <laughs> call back right. in. You never know. I don't want to walk at two in the morning, you know, because I don't have a gun. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, so, so James, you have the website, right? The yeah, dot I'm, just, org. I'm emailing okay, Mary now as well, so... Yeah. Go into yeah. my website, www.marshallmcluhanmedia.org, and um, uh, we're still working on it, but it looks pretty damn good the way it is. Yeah. And then if you go, you know, you'll see all the sponsors and everything. And um, uh, It's much better than the last one we had, believe me. Yeah, Have you ever seen nice. it, Bob, the, our new website? Yeah, I saw it a few weeks ago when you told me about it, and I'm looking at it now. Yeah, well, that's, it, it, a, that's it, it, a nice list of sponsors there, Mary. That's pretty cool. Yeah, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Okay, James, um, would you make sure that um, uh, Bob sends me your email address? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm sending, I've got your email. And oh, I'm super sending, duper, okay. Yeah, I'll just send you a hello now. I, I love Australia. <laughs>
<laughs> excellent, excellent. It's a pleasure meeting you and looking forward to working with you. Well, me too, James. And, and Bob, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, no problem. Come back anytime. Okay. God bless. Okay. Bye. 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 So what uh, I was going to ask, um, why is this new media called social media? All media are social. So what's the point there? Uh, would it be just catching on to the meme of you know, the Facebook side of things? Would it be the Android meme squares itself mm-hmm. and, and is trying to appear social? Yeah. <laughs> so it's called <laughs> self-social. It's covering up the fact it's anti-social. <laughs> it, cover, it covers all, yeah, exactly. It's like an alien. Yeah. It's like V, the, the TV series V. You know, I check that out yet? Yeah, yeah. It's insidious invasion and pretending to be friendly. So, yeah, uh, yeah. right when it's really getting inside of us uh, and shrinking, it says, uh, "We're social media." <laughs> it's a cover story. Parasitic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, call it social. But aside from that, well, what would be the reason that? Journalists call that social. They they think well, it's, it's fatty yeah. communion. It's it's yeah. like media for fatty communion. They're telling about when you went to the bathroom, the Twitter thing. That's what they mean. That, that social talk is fatic. It, at that sense, for sure. But well, I guess when Mary talks about it and talks to her sponsors and all that, you know, they that's a meme that they understand. You know, they had the global village. You know that, that McLuhan talks about. Is now you know social media basically embodied, you know? So yeah, but no, social media is the, is the term for the last few years that journalism or whatever gives to uh, yeah, yeah, what yeah. kids it's, are doing. It's 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 uh, a term that's maybe obsolete for sure, but but no, no, look, the word social. Yeah. Why call medium social? What they th- this they mean media not for information exchange. They they mean media for social blather. Right. Who's they? Who's they? The the journalist who named it social media, whoever oh, okay. did it. But yeah, it's okay. like it's like oh, this is media where you just are social, which means yeah. static uh, reporting static. of what you're doing. Yeah. So okay. I, I, yeah, I yeah. now have an answer. I just figured yeah. out an answer. I, I didn't have one five minutes ago. I now Let's, know why. I invented a suitable reason why it's called social media. Light out. Go for it. Flat out manipian phatic action. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on that I've... note, I'm going to leave you guys. Oh, yeah, we're back to where we started, right, Carol? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Flat out be- before, Yeah, before we go, before we, you go, Carol, what are you uh, saying about whatever, since you haven't spoken for a few weeks? What, what's a quick synopsis oh. of what's happening? Oh, I don't know. I just, um, I've just been taking it in because I, I'm not a... Um, an aficionado on McLuhan, although, you know, he's been in my life in the background for so long. So I've just been taking it in, and I listened to the moi. So that was interesting. What did you think of that? What did you think of what he had to say? I thought it was great. I thought it was great because I'd never really, I just haven't had time. There's so much stuff to go through. Really sit and listen to some of the old uh, lectures or anything like that. So that was great, you know. I just thought, you know, I can understand why you're so enthralled with him. Hmm. You know, I mean, it's interesting to me that you're so enthralled with this guy and that he does seem to have this effect on other people because I've met other people in my life who have talked about him like you guys do. Um, But I can understand it because he really, he had a way of, um, 
articulating. Uh, you know, I was listening to stuff he was saying last night, and I was like, and George had the nerve to get mad at me when I was trying to say the same thing, but I was just saying it so <laughs> different. But he was, right. He was making a point that I thought was really interesting, uh, the point about being able to refuse technology, and, and at some point we were going to get to that place where we were going to really have to start making decisions about whether we could handle letting this or that in. And I just thought that that was really interesting because I think about that quite often. You know, um, I think that we almost mo- we're moving at such a fast pace with our uh, technological skills, and yet there's other parts of us that are so underdeveloped, and that's the big danger, Yeah. you know, because we're not handling it maybe as well as we should or could or whatever. You know, I mean, we're like kids with fire. You know, right. Here's an interesting thing, Carol. Carol, an interesting thing he said, if you notice, is he talked about the NASA and DNA boys. And he, right. said, he said the DNA guys are trying to visualize what can't be visualized. Right, they're, right. They're iconic model. That's exactly what Ion says. That, right, uh, right. It's very interesting that he... He wasn't talking about RNA, but he was talking about DNA and how the scientists of DNA didn't know what they really were dealing with. That, that right. was a pretty amazing statement by him. Right. I just read an article today. I don't know if I should send it, didn't know if I should send it to you about some new um, uh, scientific uh, discoveries with RNA, and I just thought, oh, God, this is very interesting, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, send it to MIT. us. Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll try to go find out where here, I... Here's why I like McLuhan. If, have you ever looked at the copy at, at Finnegan's Wake? Um, ever looked at it? It's an unreadable book. It's ridiculous. Okay? Right, the way that you describe it, I totally understand what he was doing when he wrote it because I've no. had other kinds of experiences that... Right, well, but here's the, you, you, say, you say that I'm enthralled with McLuhan. It's these kind of statements I'm going to read you that one should be enthralled. In Newsweek magazine in February 1966, he said, you know, this isn't a magazine that doesn't know anything about Finnegan's Wake. It wouldn't even know it existed, so to speak. It's just a pop culture magazine. He says, Finnegan's Wake is the greatest guidebook to media study ever fashioned by man. (laughs) Okay. So when someone says that about an unreadable book, you have to, if you're a serious person, check out what the hell, why would this guy say that? This right, incomprehensible, it's the greatest guidebook to media study ever fashioned by man. Now think of that. That's like saying your grandmother, Carol, is the greatest guide to sex I ever was ever fashioned by mm-hmm. humans. Do you know what I mean? This is preposterous what he's saying on the surface. Well, yeah, but not in another way. The way that I've heard you guys describe Finnegan's yeah. Wake and then the way that I look at, like, I mean, it's very... I mean, it's very reflective of the way that somebody sits in front of the television set with the remote yeah. and goes through um, 150 channels right. and surfs back and forth between 20 of them and has the radio going in the background <laughs> and the internet on. And I sort of am like that, you know. And I just watched a um, – have you ever seen the – there's a recent documentary on um, Basquiat called The Radiant Child, which okay. I caught on the internet um, right. off of uh, – or um, PBS or whatever, and that's a very very interesting thing if you're interested in that kind of thing because yeah, um, I saw the movie, the movie about him. Yeah, yeah, that was um, uh, Julian Schnabel's movie. This is a documentary. It yeah, was a right. woman who had a lot of footage on him, 
and just brought it out. So it's actually him being interviewed, and um, there was a point I was trying to make here about about the mixed media. Oh yeah, he what he they were saying that um, he was really amazing because what he would do, and I was thinking, oh God, I do this too. Maybe it's just all of us at this point in time. He would have. The, the music on, the TV on, he'd be re- reading a book at the same time. Now, there was no Internet. He died, you know, by, I don't know, 87 or something, maybe even a little. Yeah, by 87 he was dead. 88, so no, by, in 88. Yeah. Anyway, there was no Internet, but, you know, but, like, I was thinking, you know, the, that's the way that I work, too. I've got the radio on, I've got the TV on, I've got the Internet on, and then I'm going back and forth in between, like, four or five things, you know? And they were talking about that, and it was just really interesting, and it was very much like uh, the way that I interpret what you say about Fitting Good's Wake right. and a lot of things that McLuhan talks about, and... The other interesting thing that he was saying that I saw happen in my real life was he was talking, now, I, I don't know what was that, that they were early 60s, those um, lectures we, that... Uh, 19, 1969, and, ni- and there were addresses, one was an address to a book publishers convention, that's May 69, and the second one was 1970. Right, well, my youngest brother, I think he was born in, I don't know, 64 or something, he was exactly that child that McLuhan was describing. He is not a reader. He has never been somebody that could handle that kind of thing. He is a smart guy, and all of it is through the television. Right. You know what I mean? Everything that he, you know, gained or whatever, all of his way of, accessing information came directly through the TV. He was never a reader, like just never, you know. And I just thought it was so interesting the way that he was so able to see that, you know. I mean, I, yeah. I do understand the uh, the fascination with him, you know what I mean. Uh, the more I know about him, the more I, I, I agree with it, you know, or understand right. it or respect it or whatever, you know. I get it. Is what I'm saying. I'm looking but, at the, the the Radiant Child. Where is that available to see the whole thing? Well, I think maybe where I saw it was on PBS, but okay. many times they allow their documentaries to be seen on, um, uh, you know, on their website again. Like you can access it. I saw it on right. PBS in New York, like I think last weekend or something. So okay, um, so I'm at their site and I'll put in. I'd like to watch. Put in Basquiat and see what happens. Well, the name of the film is Radiant Child. Yes. Um, so you I searched don't know if that in matters. The, okay, so I've got to put in uh, Radiant Child, not Basquiat, because nothing came up. Right. Because Basquiat was the name of Schnabel's film. Right. On on Basquiat. But it was, you know, which I saw too. I mean, I do. I happen to really like Schnabel's films. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his other films, but no, just um, saw that one. The other one too is really good. The Bell, and, the Bell and the Butterfly, or the whatever that right. one was. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, you know, wrenching, but it's it was well done. So this but, is something that came earlier this evening um, about. Um, the effect of uh, 
TV and the culture, even if you aren't a TV person or right. any any technology. So this individual you were speaking of never read a book, and yet would My he brother. not have had the effect of the uh, book technology? Oh, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the way that McClune was talking about it in this lecture, he was talking about how these kids that were coming in were not going to be book-oriented at all. Like now, these kids that are coming in, they're not TV-oriented. I had the unfortunate experience a couple of years ago of having to live with a teenager that wasn't a relative for about, I don't know, three months, four months or something. And it was really interesting to me because... These kids didn't watch TV. They watched television shows on the Internet through Internet resources. They'd watch, like, an old, they'd get an old sitcom or something, you know, and they'd watch, like, the whole series in a row off the Internet. They wouldn't watch it on a TV at all. Right. You know, and they were doing all these weird things that were, like, to me, like, like totally foreign. Like, one night, it was, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, and, the, and I was in one of these railroad apartments in New York where you can't sleep if the noise is on the other side. So I was, uh, like, you guys have got to shut up. There were, like, six of them sleeping in the other room. And the next, <laughs> wait, the next thing I hear, this is kind of amazing, the next thing I hear is the clicking on their cell phones from the texting. So they were uh-huh. in the room, in bed, texting <laughs> texting mm-hmm. each other. It was, like, uh, unbelievable, you know. And it was just, like, certain kinds of things like that that were, you know, very interesting to me. And McClellan right. seemed to really have a handle on how all that was on its way, you know yeah. I mean? You know, you really? think of you think of it's interesting when you think of the the Allen Ginsbergs, the Leonard Cohens, the Bob Dylan's, all the different poets. Right. They're known as entertainers and famous within their context. But McLuhan, as a poet of his time, is the only one that's that what he said is used in so many different disciplines. And McLuhan talked about how the major poets changed the language. He changed the language in a new kind of way. He created a a, a pattern of perception or perspective. So. Well, it actually, in, in the 60s, and I, I was there, people wondered whether Tim Lear was more important than McLuhan or was uh, right. Godard more important. All this argument of who's the greatest cultural worker, so to speak. I think right. McLuhan in the long run is going to be the one that, um, that stays because nobody in business or corporations is quoting McLuhan, uh, I mean, quoting Dylan or something. They might in slang, right, you know, right, coffee right. talks. Well, but to actually have, he's actually influenced knowledge. Now, poetry on the deep level is deep language. It's pretty incredible that he may be the guy that um, is the greatest poet of that period. McLuhan. Yeah, because he didn't just affect literature or the little printing press world. He affected movies and, and uh, how people did their businesses. He, he, he dealt with modern language. If you understand modern media environments are linguistic or languages, he is still used in all these other languages, whereas Ginsburg is just a poet, famous poet in, in literature, so to speak. Right, right. Well, McLuhan to me was philosopher-artist as opposed yeah, to yeah. a, um, you know, so in that respect, you, you know, you, you can um, affect many um, uh, disciplines because you're in a, um, you know, like, you're at a point of influence in the triangle that would be at a higher apex. So you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're like yeah. 
streaming down your information in a wider range. And, uh, you know, the musician, the poet, the painter, they can all be in there being influenced by what you have to say. But, you know, um, there is no, um, there's original thinkers in everything. And to say that, you know, I mean, I think somebody like Dylan was just talking about a different kind of thing than McLuhan was. Do you know what I mean? Like McLuhan... Do you know that Dylan was very influenced by McLuhan? Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, every, like, all the See, McLuhan was the influence behind things. People were inspired by it. He created a new perspective that inspired all kinds of inspiration, and that's affecting the language, not English language, like Wordsworth or something. You're affecting the whole global theater. Right. So, So that's who we're talking about. Someone who, in the long run is the biggest influence. And then to have Ion acknowledge him, and with that, I will end our session. Right. I, I'm, I'm going to go for a walk. It's, uh, good it's we're going for five hours. And uh, So thanks for giving us that summary, oh. Carol, at the end. Yeah, you too. Um, it's always great, Bob. I appreciate everything that you do. I try to express that every time, too, so that you keep on trucking, babe. All right. Well, I appreciate your appreciation. Okay. All right. I appreciate you contributing. Okay, Okay, Carol. All right. Take care. Bye. Okay. Hey, Tina and James, I'm going to – you guys can stay on. I'm just going to hit the the nine and um, and go go for a walk, get the last bit of sun. Are you guys still there? Akito, are you still there? Oh, Akito's here. I forgot to talk. I got to talk to Akito. Let me see. Yeah, I forgot about Akito. Okay. So the – what is it that we've been saying on the show and in your emails? There was something. Um, um, oh, yeah, the JW. The JW. I didn't get that pun on Jerry Weintraub, but you're saying that, that, that the guy is like JW or just the initials are Both. similar? How is I he like JW? So. What? How is Jerry Weintraub like Jer- JW? Um, okay. Oh, listen, um, hey, Akito, just a minute. Yeah. I've got to stop the recording because this shouldn't be part of the... Unless you have some McLuhan insights. You got some McLuhan commentary? Uh, not today, sorry. All right, so let, let's... I'm going to uh, hit the thing and stop the recording, and then we can talk freely. Just a second. <clears throat>